Cynthia, the last time we talked, I believe it was the last time you were talking about working on the 50s and 60s. Yes. Uh, in a, as, as kind of a continuum. Yes. With, with the old time. How is that coming along? Patricia, my darling Patricia, I can see all my dreams in your eyes. And hello, everybody. It is Saturday night. You know it's Saturday because that's Patricia's theme song. It's Saturday, February the 17th, year 2018. And hello, Patricia. Hello, Walden. It's Saturday again, and I'm so excited to be here. I am Good too. day, good week, good everything. Good. And Patricia had good physical therapy today, so that's good, oh everybody. Boy. You know, Did I ever. We're all excited that she can walk. That's what we want. <laughs> <laughs> this is true. She can walk, she, she can, can walk. talk, she can even chew gum. That's true. Anyway, I'm going to have Patricia have the honor to introduce one of our very favorite guests because she's been with the more than one, more than twice, a remarkable three times. So here's Patricia with a proper introduction. I thank you kindly, Walden. Cynthia Myers. We have Cynthia Myers, who is the advertising lady. She's the person who talks to us about old-time radio advertising and the systems that were used. Cynthia is Associate Professor of Communication at the College of Mount, uh, Mount St. Vincent in New York City and has a doctorate in radio, television, and film from the University of Texas. She is the author of a book, A Word from Our Sponsor, which covers everything in advertising from the beginning of the, of the word, I think, an A in the dictionary, and it just keeps on going. And some of the things that she will be able to talk with us about, or one of the things in particular, Cynthia, I have been promising our listeners this, we'll talk about a radio show that uh, Anna and Frank Hummert created, and I'll say one night we're going to get to Anna and Frank Hummert. Well, this is the night, everybody. <laughs> Cynthia Myers, welcome, and I am so happy that you're back with us. Well, thanks for having me. I'm always happy to come on and talk to you guys. Oh, it is it is such a joy. Um, it's, it's, I don't know if anyone else in the whole wide world has the knowledge about advertising and old-time radio that you do, and, and I'm just so delighted that you share it with us. Cynthia, I know that we have a lot of listeners who were with us in earlier interviews, but it would be helpful for all of us if you could just give us, a, <laughs> there's no such thing as a thumbnail sketch, but some information about the background of early at radio advertising, which is extraordinarily different from what we know as advertising today. Sure. Um, when uh, radio got started and they were trying to figure out how to make money from it, their first idea was just to sell the equipment. Um, but then somebody had to pay for the programming. And a lot of broadcasters thought of themselves as more like, um, like telephone companies in that they were common carriers. They were providing a transmission service, but they didn't really want to be in charge of the content that was going over those transmissions. So um, when advertisers started getting interested in using radio, um, a lot of broadcasters just turned to the advertiser and said, well, you know, you make the program and we'll just rent you the time, the airtime. Um, however, the advertisers um, 
weren't really sure what to do. You know, at first they were just making announcements, but nobody really wanted to listen to that. So then they started offering um, entertainment, and then they would just name the entertainment after themselves, after their brands. So, um, like the Ever Ready Hour and uh, Clico Club Eskimos. Um, but they also realized that they needed to develop ideas for attracting audiences. And so they turned to their advertising agencies. And what my book is about, um, a word from our sponsor, is actually about how the advertising agencies were the primary producers of a lot of radio programming in the 30s and 40s. And so the entire radio industry kind of revolved around the ad agencies. Um, they were inventing the shows, hiring the talent, writing the scripts, directing the shows, um, advising the advertisers who were called sponsors because they were sponsoring the entertainment. Um, and they were also building in um, the sponsors' brand messages and the sponsors' advertising into the entertainment itself. So today, advertisers are beginning to do that again. Uh, they call it branded content or branded entertainment. Um, sponsorship is coming back big time. Um, and so there's more and more of this integration between entertainment and advertising. But the golden age of radio really is a peak era of this um, strategy of using entertainment to attract audiences. And so uh, in my book, I go through different ad agencies and their different approaches. Um, so they each ad agency kind of specialized in certain approaches to how they um, integrated entertainment and advertising. Some of them relied on um, humor and comedy and the soft sell. Um, some relied on this kind of notion of um, uh, well, it's called institutional advertising at the time, but the idea was just to promote the image of the company so that they would um, promote um, corporations like DuPont by providing educational and culturally uplifting programs. Um, other agencies like J. Walter Thompson really focused on celebrities and stars, and so all of their shows like Craft Music Hall uh, featured lots and lots of big stars. Um, and then the Hummerts, um, they were at an agency called Blackett Sample Hummert. And Frank Hummert um, had worked at Lord & Thomas, where they had developed this notion of hard sell advertising, in which they thought advertising really had to have a, you had to give a reason why somebody would buy something. And so in my book, I talk a lot about how the Hummerts incorporated reason why advertising strategies into their radio programs and of course, as you probably know, they produced dozens and dozens of daytime radio serials. Um, so we can talk about that. I was going to mention for the people who don't may or may not know, Frank and Ann Hummer produced 130 shows in the golden days of radio. And one thing I, I noticed, Cynthia, just compare what I think that what the internet's going through today, trying to figure out sponsorship, is like very similar to what radio was going through in the 20s. We just own uncharted territory. That's just, I just wanted to throw that two cents just in case. Yes. yes, absolutely. And I think about this a lot, and I write about it also. I do write about, um, you know, new media and online media and the rise of branded entertainment and sponsorship um, as a way of dealing with the problem that people avoid ads. Um, and because digital media lets them avoid ads more today, then with linear media like radio, like you had to sit through the ads on linear radio and linear television because you had to wait for the program to come back. Mm -hmm. um, with the Internet, it's easier for people to avoid it. And so 
more and more advertisers are trying to integrate their brands into um, the actual content. So we have AT&T, which sponsored radio programs and television programs. They're now sponsoring um, a YouTube serial about young people um, hanging around and having fun during the summer before they go off to college. It's called um, At Summer Break. So it's not a regular television show, but they're, they're doing the same kinds of things that all of these radio advertisers did back in the 30s and 40s. And so I think a lot about what's uh, the same, similar kind of strategy and what's different. And the main differences are that um, back in the 30s and 40s, advertisers and advertising agencies had a different belief about um, set of beliefs about their audiences um, because it was all really brand new to them. Um, they had all sorts of assumptions about their audiences, most of which we'd recognize today as, you know, being, you know, patronizing or sexist or racist. Um, and today, advertisers um, have a different view of their audiences. They they realize that audiences won't necessarily pay attention to them and are actually um, very difficult um, to reach and to keep their attention. Um, whereas in the radio era, they just kind of thought that they, all they had to do was sort of put on a good show um, and then the audiences would be grateful and go out and buy their products. So it's a very different set of attitudes that um, that they incorporated into their strategies. Mm. That's really interesting. We talk each year at Super Bowl time about the advertising that is going to be running uh, at, during the Super Bowl or in the mid, uh, actually, in the middle of the game when all of the everybody parades out on, on stage. But they do have the advertisers who put together um, what are supposed to be blockbuster advertising samples. They pay $5 million, that what this year's price mm -hmm. was, for 30 seconds up um, to play during Super Bowl. And that, of course, does not consider the writing and the placement and all of the you know, the, the services that come around producing. And the ads are getting worse and worse. I can't imagine that they are reaching out and grabbing people. What are your thoughts about the this kind of advertising that is developed to reach a target audience and it looks like it failed? Well, actually, the Super Bowl is the last kind of live, linear television event um, in which advertising is created just for that live event um, because so much other linear television is not watched by as many people and um, doesn't reach as many people anymore. Um, I think that um, the 30-second television commercial is in decline, and so the Super yeah. Bowl ads are kind of like the last sort of uh, holdout of the 30-second um, yeah. traditional TV ad. Um, and the the ad industry is, is very aware of that. Advertisers are very aware of it. Um, and yet the system, which has been in place since the mid-1960s, in which advertisers bought pieces of time during a program in order to reach a target audience or a mass audience, but targeted by demographic, which is age or sex, um, that's all being replaced by a very different notion of how to reach audiences. They're now trying to target people by their interests and their behaviors um, rather than by their age and their sex. And so um, advertising on television and, and reaching millions of people at one time is starting to be seen as less effective or less efficient um, 
than a lot of digital advertising um, where you experience on the internet um, an ad will follow you around from website to website because all sorts of um, software have determined that you're interested in traveling to Florida and therefore don't you want to see all these ads for hotels and so on in Florida. So there's a whole shift in how advertisers are thinking of their audiences. They're shifting away from thinking them as large masses. Um, they're shifting away from thinking of them as being defined by age and sex. And so um, we're really in this big transitional moment. And I do think it's very similar to that transitional moment in the 20s and 30s when the advertising industry had to deal with a new technology like radio where nobody knew how to make money from it. Nobody knew what worked. Nobody knew what was going to work with audiences. And nobody really knew how audiences were responding back then unless people wrote letters. And so they, they really they did things in order to provoke audiences to write letters. Um, you know, send in a dime and we'll send you this, you know, packet of flower seeds, for example. Mm -hmm. And that way they could prove um, to the sponsor, you know, that they had a certain number of viewers. But it was they were they were flying blind. Um, and I think we're actually in a similar situation today where nobody really knows um, exactly what's going to happen next. But I've been studying um, YouTube a lot and social media influencers a lot. And what I see happening is that um, they're moving away from separate ads and they're moving back to integration. And that was what radio um, really, the, the 30s and 40s, that's what they really pioneered was integrating advertising into content. That is integrating advertising with entertainment so that they weren't separate. And I see that this is happening again. It's all over YouTube. Almost every YouTuber is promoting products and telling stories and telling jokes all at the same time. And they're, they're back to integrating their content with promoting products. I think for radio, and you can help me with this, I think for radio, one of the outstanding examples of that would be Fibber McGee and Molly, where Harlow Wilcox would come in with the product and talk directly to Fibber and Molly about the product, but it was rolled in as part of the show. Yeah, and you know, they did that on purpose because they didn't want to alienate their audiences. They were afraid audiences would turn off the radio. Um, and so initially in the 20s, they didn't have any sort of product announcements at all. In fact, broadcasters usually made rules against it. Um, so the only product announcement was when they announced the name of the show. Um, and then as the depression took hold, of course, uh, the hard sell really came along pretty strongly and advertisers were insisting on being able to mention things like prices. Um, and so then the broadcasters and the, that's the networks and the stations um, began allowing sort of more specific product information, more specific um, sort of what sounds like commercials to us today. Um, but there was actually a lot of resistance to that for the, in the first few years there because they were all concerned that people would just turn off the radio. But then they discovered that people liked the entertainment so much um, you know, they could they could incorporate much more information about the product, but they still did less advertising, really, in some ways, um, than, you know, recent linear television, and that usually they had an announcement at the beginning, one in the middle, one at the end. Um, sometimes they would integrate the, the product into the actual script or the dialogue, uh, depending on the show. But the whole idea was that 
the advertiser was buying that half an hour or buying that one hour or buying that 15 minutes. And so the entire program, the entertainment included, was really part of the brand message. And their assumption was that you would identify the entertainment with the product so that if you really liked Jack Benny's jokes, you would want to buy Jell-O because you would make that connection. And you know, if you liked one, then you're going to like the other. And so that was the whole notion where they were, it was called sponsor identification, where the ad agencies then were in charge of trying to figure out what entertainment would make that close, tight association um, with a particular product. You know, was it comedy? You know, it was, it was the genre, was it comedy or drama? Or was it a particular type of entertainer or a particular personality? Um, and so the entire ad in industry was constantly debating, you know, the best way to sell certain kinds of products or, um, and, and then some of the ad agencies would say, well, well, we're not really going to sell products. You know, we're just going to sell the corporate image. It was called institutional advertising. And so we're going to provide, you know, highbrow, um, programming like classical music, um, or, you know, um, legitimate theater, um, in order to educate our audiences and then they'll be grateful for this education and then they'll think well of us. Um, so they were also using radio kind of as a public relations medium. Um, and this is again, really common today. Um, advertisers like on PBS are basically doing what a lot of radio sponsors did in the thirties and forties, which is that they sponsor highbrow programming in order to get audiences to think well of them. Mm -hmm. Are we interested? You don't have any, you don't, I'm go, sorry. Go ahead, Patricia. You, you, don't, you don't have advertising in the middle of a PBS program, but they will open it with sponsored by and, yes. um, or made possible by and list not only individuals, but companies as well. Yes. So that's, that's I believe, exactly what you're talking about here. About about two weeks ago, I ran an old interview with Carlton E. Moore, who was the producer, creator, writer of One Man Family and I Love a Mystery. And I never knew this. And I, knew, and I met Carlton in the mid-'80s. And in this interview, he said, in a contract for the first 10 years with General Food, they agreed not to do any commercial, middle commercial for One Man Family. So that oh. way, the audience got a full 25 minutes of story without interruption. And yeah, so, so you know, he was a producer who could probably um, get that deal yeah. um, because General Mills wanted, you know, to work with him. And, you know, part of what interests me is that, um, you know, certain shows were entirely advertising agency produced and controlled, and then some of them were just overseen by ad agencies. So, for example, Young and Rubicam um, – oversaw Fred Allen's shows. Um, they didn't write the scripts and they didn't tell him who to cast, um, but they would check the scripts and they would make suggestions. Um, and um, one of the stories that um, I find most entertaining is that, you know, Fred Allen would, you know, complain about it a lot and he liked to complain about, um, you know, both NBC and Young and Rubicam and how they'd like to, um, you know, take a mole, what was this phrase? Take a molehill in the morning and turn it into a, a mountain by afternoon. <laughs> um, so um, one of the things that was interesting to me was um, the one ad man at Young and Rubicam that he got along with was Pat Weaver. And Pat Weaver went on to become the president of NBC television in the 1950s. 
And Pat Weaver was one of the people who argued um, for getting rid of single sponsorship, for getting rid of advertisers being responsible for the program content. And he invented shows like The Today Show and The Tonight Show, which are still on the air, um, as, as like a magazine-style show in which advertisers just bought a minute of time in between um, stories. And these were some of the first television programs um, in which, you know, the, the network controlled the program and the advertisers just bought time. And that model then um, becomes the dominant model for advertising on broadcasting by the middle of the 1960s. But his background um, as an ad man, he sort of saw all the downsides uh, of the ad agencies trying to control content and of the advertisers trying to make the content always match their brand message. Um, and working with Fred Allen, I think he saw that very clearly. Um, and so he was one of the few um, ad men who, who, who tried to give you know, Fred Allen kind of a longer leash um, than some of the other ones. But this was one of the issues um, in which when people criticized commercial radio, one of the things they criticized was sponsor control of the programming, which was really, you know, the ad agencies controlling the programming, really. Um, and one of the reasons they complained about it was that they worried that um, the advertisers and the sponsors were um, so intent on selling their product, you know, that they, um, you know, kind of overlooked, you know, issues, you know, that the entertainers thought were more important um, and that they were then clashing with, you know, the stars and the entertainers over, you know, what they could do with their program because the, they really believed that the program had to align perfectly, you know, with their, with their brand message. And then once we moved to the system where the ads were separate from the programs, then the advertisers didn't have to worry so much because the ads were just simply separate. You know, the ad would come on and it would look different from the show um, and it would be in a totally different style. Um, and it was interrupting the program, but audiences um, on linear television had no choice. They had to sit through the interrupting commercial in order to get to the rest of the show. Um, but at that point, advertisers really liked having the flexibility of not being responsible for the program content and therefore not blamed for it either. If an audience, you know, if an audience didn't like it, um, and then they could just pull their ad and move to another show. So if one show wasn't working out, they could put their ad somewhere else. And so mm -hmm. once that transition happens, um, there's this total realignment in terms of what the advertising agencies then do. They they shift from being program producers uh, to being commercial producers, and they were always time buyers. Uh, and then they become experts in selecting programs for advertisers to insert their commercials into, which is a very different kind of calculation than trying to choose and develop programming that would, you know, line up perfectly with their brand message. Um, another problem with sponsorship, and I've written about this, and I have an article coming out in the Journal of American History about this, um, um, is that because the advertisers and the agencies were so concerned about making everything line up, um, if something was not quite right, um, they would overreact. So blacklisting on radio and television really gets going after 1947 and is really in place all the way through the 1950s. And I actually found some advertising agency papers down at J. Walter Thompson in which I found actual blacklists. And I didn't know that actual wow. blacklists ever existed, but I mean, were, were preserved by anybody. But I found... Um, 
a list. It was a thousand pages long. Um, it was actually had a thousand names on it. And um, these were all people who had politically um, controversial views and therefore they had to be checked with the, with the legal department at J. Walter Thompson before they could be cast like in craft television theater. And so this, this association between an actor's political views and the sponsor, they, they believed that um, viewers would see the, the actor and say, oh, I'm not gonna buy Kraft cheese now because I disagree with that actor's political uh, views. Um, and so then Kraft goes to J. Walter Thompson and says, well, we can't hire, you know, you can't hire this person um, because their political views are, you know, not acceptable to people who might be buying Kraft cheese. Um, so when you have advertisers too involved in the content like that, you end up in situations in which they end up doing things like blacklisting um, which gets pretty ugly, and I think everybody pretty much agrees that that wasn't really a great thing to have happened. We have a caller for Cynthia, Jim from Antioch, California. You're on with Cynthia Myers. Good evening, Ms. Myers. It's a pleasure to talk to you again. I talked to you. Oh, yes, hi. A couple of things. One comment I read somewhere, and I, one of the broadcast articles mentioned it. Frank and Ann Hummert bought the blacklist wholeheartedly in the 40s and 50s, and they wanted nothing, to, they didn't even want to hear or have anything to do with that. Yeah, I also have read that, and I think um, they're interesting that way because they were their own production company, and they kind of ran their own business, and their relationship to their clients, the advertisers, um, they had a lot of leverage over their clients. They said, look, you know, if you don't want us to do it, then we'll quit. Um, Frank Hummert was really good at threatening to quit. He was really good at threatening NBC also. You know, we're going to pull our shows from NBC if you don't, you know, do things our way. So there was um, an interesting period of time where they could afford to, to ignore the blacklist. Um, so what I learned in my research was different agencies and different sponsors um, reacted to political pressure very differently so, for example, um, I also read an article about BBDO. They were uh, the agency overseeing Theater Guild on the Air, mm -hmm. which, was, which was sponsored by U.S. Steel. And U.S. Steel was under a lot of pressure from anti-communist activists um, to, you know, not allow certain actors um, on the program. And it was another um, anthology program where there was a different play every week. And... Um, U.S. Steel didn't want to interfere with Theater Guild because they were basically buying the Theater Guild's reputation to associate with their corporate image. And BBDO ran a department which was which managed blacklists. And uh, this guy Jack Wren, you know, in BBDO was busy making lists. And U.S. Steel was like, no, 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 you can't, you can't do any lists with Theater Guild. And so they had this big fight about it. And eventually. Um, U.S. Steel gives in, and Theater Guild gives in, and instead of blacklisting, they do a whitelisting procedure where um, BBDO gives, um, you know, a list of actors that they could um, select from rather than a list of actors they weren't allowed to hire. So there was this whole negotiation that went on. But what happened there was that the, the agency was pushing for the blacklisting, and the sponsor and the producing um, entity was, was fighting it. But I've also written an article about Kraft Television Theater in which Kraft, the sponsor, the ad manager there, constantly pressured J. Walter Thompson to blacklist. 
And John Reber, who was running the radio television department at J. Walter Thompson at the time, uh, he was one of the most important people in the radio industry. He, he tried to push back on it, but then he eventually gave in. Um, and so they were operating this blacklist, which I said had about a thousand names on it. Um, but John Reber would argue about it. And so I found all these article um, letters that he wrote to Kraft saying, you know, we really should not be blacklisting Walter Matthau. Yes, he was in a play with some communists, and yes, he lent some money to some communists, but he's not a communist, and we really need to use him on craft television theater. So John Reber would then argue with the sponsor about which actors should or should not be blacklisted. Um, Lee Grant was another actor um, who was on their blacklist, um, and she was, it was in part because she was politically active with, um, with the guilds at the time as well. Um, and she was an anti-blacklisting guild member. Um, and so John Reber would say, you know, she's this brilliant ingenue. Why should we be prevented from casting her just because uh, Lawrence Johnson up in Syracuse um, and said she's a communist when it's clear she's not a communist? And so there was all sorts of conflict within these institutions. And part of what interests me about it is how it's connected to ad strategy, which is that they were assuming the strong effects of radio and television on audiences, and they were assuming these really tight associations between the brand and the entertainment. Um, but that, that association, that belief starts to fall apart in the 50s and 60s when they realize more and more that a lot of audiences don't pay attention um, to who the sponsor is, and they're tuning in because they like the show, not because they really want to buy the sponsor's product. And so that's another reason for why the whole sponsorship system falls apart. Curious, too, uh, you're talking about the Hummers. In listening to many Hummer shows, soap operas and the crime shows and the music shows, two companies seem to be the dominant Hummer sponsors. One was Sterling Drugs for things like yes. Mayor Aspirin and Phillips and Haley's and Fletcher's mm -hmm. and Ironized Yeast and all that. And the other one was American Home Products, which made yes. Anderson and, and Colonos and the can you explain, the, is it because those two companies just were the two that were willing to spend the money mainly? Well, they also did a lot of shows for General Mills, Procter & Gamble. I mean, they, you know, they, did, they had a lot of these clients that made multiple um, consumer packaged goods. So American Home Products, Procter & Gamble, um, and Sterling Drug had multiple brands. And so because um, the Hummerts kind of pioneered this uh, packaging idea where they would buy an hour of time from NBC and then they put four programs back to back and they might all be Procter & Gamble um, sponsored but each 15 minutes was promoting a different product. Um, so the, the audience wouldn't necessarily know that these were all American Home products or these were all Procter & Gamble products. Uh, but this way, the Hummerts could sort of produce the shows more efficiently. They could get a lower price on the airtime. Um, and so, you know, they probably, because they really prided themselves with being very economically efficient, um, you know, they used organs instead of orchestras. They used, you know, they, they triple, quadruple cast most of their actors. So, you know, they didn't have to cast too many performers. They, they, they were so good at that that I think these these particular companies that had the multiple brands that they wanted to efficiently um, advertise, 
I think they really depended on on the produ- on producers like the Hummers because they were so good at that. They were so good at being economically efficient about it. I found it interesting in the golden age too, and I guess it went into early television too that there might be a main product, say Bayer aspirin, that would be the main product, and then at the end of the show, not only Sterling but other companies, there would be a backup product at the end, say. Dr. Lyons or whatever would be a backup product that would be used at the end of the program. Yeah, so, you know, it was actually controversial for a while to promote more than one product in a program because of this belief in sponsor identification. They assumed that the audience would, you know, connect only Jell-O to Jack Benny, and therefore you couldn't also talk about Great Nuts Flakes in the same show um, because they thought that would confuse the audience. Um, however... There, there, many times there were um, more than one product. Uh, so Benton and Bowles, when they were, they had a Bristol Myers um, uh, for a while, they they did you know several Bristol Myers um, products um, like during Fred Allen shows. So um, uh, the laxative and the toothpaste was in the same show, um, and Benton and Bowles would then brag, oh you know we're we're innovating. Uh, we're saving money for the client because they only have to buy one show and we're, we're promoting two products. Um, and then also, um, in non-network radio, um, first of all, we had syndicated programs and in local radio stations, they also sometimes did sell you know, interstitial minutes to advertisers. And um, this was also really controversial because the networks were trying to control you know, their affiliates and the networks were trying to maintain their national advertisers and keep them happy. And so when the local affiliate would sort of sneak in like a local advertiser, like at the end of the show, you know, that would make everybody all mad. Um, and a lot of this debate was really revolving around these assumptions that audiences could only connect one product to one show at a time. And, you know, you had to sort of spell it out, which is why they spell out all the brand names all the time. It's because they're assuming that you wouldn't understand the brand name unless they spelled it out. Um, so that's why they spell it out all the time. Um, so it, they were operating under all these kind of misapprehensions about what the audience was capable of. I would like to recommend an additional book, and maybe you've read this book in your research, but it got some good reviews. Jim Cox wrote an excellent book called Sold on Radio. Yes, yeah, so actually I used that book Um I find it really helpful because he's he sort of brings together, you know, all these different radio sponsors and the variety of programs because I had never been able to piece that all together myself because the information is so scattered. And um, sometimes a program, you know, went through a lot of different sponsors. Um, and so uh, what's even more hard to figure out is um, the ad agencies because sometimes the sponsor would stay the same, but the sponsor would you know, fire one ad agency and then hire a different one. So, um, so for example, Jack Benny, um, you know, his uh, supervising uh, agency was Young and Rubicam for years and years, and then there's this big uh, sort of falling out, and then he ends up bouncing around Ruth Ruff and Ryan, and then he ends up at BBDO, um, and then he's with BBDO from the late 40s through the 50s. Um, so... Um, and these with American Tobacco instead of General Foods. So all of these shifts are all taking place behind the scenes, um, and they're kind of hard to document because 
you know, the programs, of course, um, in any kind of credits that they announce, they never announce the name of the producing ad agency. And in fact, NBC had a rule that the ad agencies could not announce themselves as having produced the program. And this came out of a notion that because the program was a form of advertising, um, advertising agencies couldn't um, claim authorship. So just like in a print magazine ad, the ad agency doesn't say this ad was you know, made by BBDO. There's there's no indication on the on the ad which agency made the ad. They they carry that over into radio. So um, and so this begins to change in the 1950s. So when J. Walter Thompson was producing craft television theater on television, um, they started putting in the name of the director and the producer who were J. Walter Thompson employees. And that was in part because they were putting in the name of the actors and the name of the writer, who wasn't always a J. Walter Thompson employee. And so then it was like, well, this is really weird. Why are we crediting some of the people who make the show and not others? And the reason they weren't was because they were ad agency employees. And they were that was like the rule was not to ever acknowledge that it was the ad agency making the show. Um, so um, it's only when they finally leave production altogether um, in the late 50s that um, then that becomes a moot problem. But this becomes so hard to sort out um, because the, the program texts don't have that information in them. If my memory serves, Bonanza may have been the last network television show in the 60s to be exclusively sponsored by Chevrolet, which was one sponsor. I, that may be right. We're one of I know that Andy Griffith had General Foods, a wide variety of General Foods products, etc. But the Bonanza, to, I think, may have been one of the last shows to be exclusively sponsored. Well, actually, it's it's a little bit more complicated than that because um, Procter and Gamble continued to own some of its soap operas in, in um, for decades. Um, right. But yes, but but prime time, um, what they started doing was uh, yeah, Bonanza and Bewitched. Um, I think a lot of those shows um, had single sponsors, but what they would do is they would advertise um, different brand, you know, extensions owned by that advertiser within that program. Um, but that really was kind of the last gasp of making it really um, explicit that one sponsor was involved. Um, but a lot of advertisers like Kodak and Kraft um, really liked single sponsorship, and they really didn't want to give it up. They were fighting with the networks because the networks were like done with single sponsorship. The networks made a lot more money, you know, selling ads to five advertisers rather than to one. You know, they could raise the price more easily. Um, and so, what happened in the late '60s and the early '70s is that a lot of advertisers then did specials, um, which would then be entirely single sponsored by them. Um, and this that continued for decades, actually. Um, so it didn't completely go away in prime time um, altogether. Um, it just became a much um, smaller part of television and less and less of an important ad strategy. Of course, I also remember in the late 50s, a lot of shows would have an alternate sponsor. Like one week, a sponsor would be on, and the next week, and you might get the alternate sponsor at the end of the program. And now a word from our alternate sponsor, and they alternate every two weeks yes and then this happens in television because the the cost was so much higher it was you know over 10 times higher to produce a tv show than it was a radio show um 
And so alternating sponsorship, I have these charts which show the rise of alternating sponsorship. And then participating sponsorship um, was, you know, when you had multiple advertisers participating in the sponsorship of the program. Um, so single sponsorship goes from the ideal in primetime radio in the 30s and 40s to something that becomes rarer and rarer on primetime television um, until the 60s. I mean, and then then it becomes the exception rather than the norm. Um, so if you look at old copies of Sponsor Magazine, you can see that um, a lot of sponsors and ad agencies, well, the sponsors, are, a lot of them are fighting it all the way, uh, but the ad agencies weren't making any money off of producing television shows, um, and they didn't own the show, and so, and production, of course, shifts to the movie studios, um, and so this whole different business model takes over, and the ad agencies really um, uh, don't benefit from producing shows anymore, so the ad agencies start, you know, saying, you know, we don't, this isn't working for us anymore either, but there were certain sponsors, especially ones that like to um, sponsor theater and, and classical music who tried to hold on to their single sponsorship and finally the networks just started canceling them. So uh, I think the, the famous one is Firestone. Um, they had that music show for years and years and NBC finally just canceled them uh, because NBC and the networks realized that they needed to build audience flow. That is, they needed to build audience attention from one program to the next. And as long as advertisers controlled the programming, Networks couldn't make a schedule that built audience flow from one program to the next. And so the networks really started pushing back. So by the mid-60s, they'd really pushed out a lot of those major sponsors. Thank you, Jim, for calling us. And uh, we really appreciate you doing that. And so back to Patricia. I'm here. <laughs> That's a good way to remind me to remind our listeners that we are live tonight, 714-545-2071. If you have a question or a comment for Cynthia, we are just feeling our little brains here. <laughs> this is so good, Cynthia. I had, if, if we can hop back to the earliest days before we go to the Hummers, the earliest days in radio, you had so many people coming together. Where did they find writers who could come up with scripts in a field that had never been there before? Well, that's a great question. And um, when the ad agencies were first starting their radio departments, um, they were looking for entertainment specialists. So um, they hired people from the theater world. They hired people from vaudeville. Um, they hired uh, people from the music world. So the the person who headed the radio department at BBDO for um, the first, like, 20 years was a band leader, Arthur Pryor Jr., who was the son of a famous band leader. Um, and the idea was that these were people who knew something about entertainment and would figure this out. Um, so one of the big challenges was, you know, the theater people were, in, you know, were used to having audiences being able to see and when you wrote for radio, you had to write for audiences that couldn't see the action, couldn't see the actors' faces. Um, and so some agencies, like Young and Rubicam, they didn't hire people who came from another entertainment industry. They hired people who they thought were smart um, and could invent new techniques um, because radio was different from theater. It was different from 
movies. It was different from print. Um, so one of the debates in the ad industry was, well, can they use their print advertising strategies and the way they appeal to audiences? You know, in print advertisements, could they just transfer that right over to radio, or did they have to do something really different? Um, and most of them concluded that actually radio was different. You couldn't go on the air and act as if it was like a print ad, and the and the entertainment had to be different. So, you know, comedians like Jack Benny and Fred Allen, who of course came up through the vaudeville um, industry, um, where a lot of visual humor and Pratt falls and costumes, a lot of that, a lot of those sort of comedic strategies were really important when they were suddenly dealing with an invisible audience. Um, then language um, was much more important form of humor. And then with Jack Benny, characterization, and it's true of Fred Allen also, you know, we're developing these characters over time, um, you know, uh, developing this um, company of characters, you know, who appeared regularly on the program so that you could have these running jokes. Um, so they were they were sort of making their way through um, trying to adapt, you know, their legacy understanding of how to appeal to audiences to this new medium. Um, so by the 1940s, it's kind of, um, you know, reaching its peak in terms of they're figuring out that audiences really like stars and celebrities. And so a lot of the production shifts to Los Angeles and Hollywood where they can get access to more celebrities more easily. Um, there's a lot more um, sort of uh, intermedia or transmedia stuff going on. So movie stars, radio stars, film stars, um, music stars, and like everybody is, is appearing across all these different media and all these different platforms. Um, so it's, it's developed by the late 40s into this very efficient, very effective, very cost-effective entertainment form that's also selling a lot of stuff. And when television comes along, it kind of knocks the radio industry um, off, it, 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 surprising everybody. A lot of people in the industry did not understand what television was going to do to the radio industry. They believed that people listened to radio while they were doing other things. Housewives were doing tasks, you know, um, kids were playing with toys and they were assuming that people would, would want to do the same thing with television. And they thought that people would not sit down and stare at the TV screen. Um, so they just thought that television wasn't going to replace radio, that radio entertainment was going to be around in the same way forever because of course it had been so successful, um, in the 1940s. So, so part of what I'm interested in is how, how the industries make these transitions. So when they make the transition from radio to television, they have to go through this all over again, right? So early television is like radio um, in that it's, um, they, they, they have to get used to having the visuals, but they have to get used to the fact that they're doing live transmissions uh, with the visuals, which they hadn't had to do before. And so they have to, again, go through this whole set of debates again about how to use the medium effectively um, and how many of the old strategies to keep and how many of them to get rid of. Well, I'm breathless. <laughs> wow. In, in um, concert with that question, with the writers and how many people had to do so much work to get themselves into a whole new frame of writing and performing, not, not necessarily performing, but creating, um, 
because radio hadn't been around. What about the directors and the producers when advertising agencies controlled radio? They provided scripts, but they had to be directed, and they needed in-studio people working with them. When you get a director like Hyman Brown, who was pretty picky, how did he wind, how, how, how did he manage to function in a milieu that was created by advertisers, own, not advertisers, the agencies owning the airtime? Well, I, I don't know enough about Hyman Brown to speak specifically about him, but a lot of radio directors were employed by the agencies. Um, so uh, Arthur Pryor, for example, was overseeing, producing and directing March of Time, for example, which is another program that I've just written another article about. Um, uh, and so um, J. Walter Thompson, um, I'm just blanking on names, but the people who were directing the craft shows mm -hmm. were J. Walter Thompson employees. Yeah, so, I think Kel uh, Kel wrote a lot so, of those in the radio yeah, days. Yeah. Right. So this is what I'm trying to say about the ad agencies, is that the ad agencies weren't just overseeing them. They, it was their staff who were producing them. So, so they, the, they were employees of the agencies that were actually producing, directing, scripting, and casting the shows. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, so some shows, the agencies were just overseeing it, but a lot of the shows, like J. Walter Thompson, insisted on being the direct producer so it was a J. Walter Thompson employee who was directing the show. Um, it was a BBDO employee who was directing March of Time. Um, so, yeah, so the, the thing that people don't understand, and, you know, I just had this problem when I was writing about the March of Time, and the people reviewing it didn't understand. People think that the networks were controlling the shows. The networks had very little to do with the actual programs. Um, the networks simply sold the airtime. And the networks negotiated with the advertiser and the agency over the airtime, the time slot, the cost, and all sorts of other things. But the advertiser and its agency was, were making the programming decisions. And so what people don't understand, like when they say, oh, what network was March of Time on? I go, well, you know, that's actually much less important than who was sponsoring it because that's where the program decision-making uh, was taking place. Mm -hmm. And so um, when people think of, um, like in television, if it's a network show, they're network employees who are, you know, dealing with producing that network show, like the Today Show today is produced by employees of NBC. Um, but that wasn't true of sponsored programs most of the time. I mean, networks would produce programs and they were sustaining programs, which meant that the network would sustain them until they could find an advertiser to sponsor them. At that point, um, sometimes the network um, continued production, but usually the assumption was that the sponsor, once they took over the program, would shift the production um, tasks to their agency. Now, some agencies would subcontract out some of the producing uh, tasks. So some agencies like Lord and Thomas um, uh, because NBC was their client, Lord and Thomas often had NBC staff do a lot of the actual um, program production. So it varied based on the, you know, the agency and the relationship with a particular network. Um, mm -hmm. March of Time, coincidentally, was kind of like a co-production of CBS and BBDO, and that it was produced in CBS Studios, 
with a CBS sound effects um, person. Uh, her name was Oral Nichols. She's a really, a really interesting person because she invented a lot of the radio sound effects that we hear. Um, but it was actually produced by BBDO personnel. Um, and it was actually, you know, all the scripts were written at BBDO. Um, Arthur Pryor actually chose the actors. Um, he directed the show. He, you know, they would, he would rehearse it. Um, he'd set the timing. He would add and subtract specific scenes based on how the show was running. So, so it was the agency that was doing the actual hands-on uh, producing work for a lot of these shows. Well, some agencies in radio, were they only specialized in media? Or, or were the sponsor hire me? Okay, I want you to handle my print, my radio, my, you know, signage. Or was it, yeah. were, uh, how did they do that part of it? I mean, was it yeah. a package deal or individualized? Yeah, so, so again, it depended on the client and on the agency. Um, and in radio, what was interesting to me about radio is that some agencies refused to go into radio. They thought it was a fad and it wasn't going to last. And some agencies got into it really early. So BBDO, J. Walter Thompson, Benton and Bowles, uh, Young and Rubicam, they all got in, in it pretty early. And then they could offer it as a kind of extra service. Um, and it was what distinguished them from other agencies. Um, so, um, so some agencies were more full service. So BBDO, um, as it expanded, became a really huge, large, full-service agency. So they did promotion, they did PR, they did print, they did radio, they did television. You know, and depending on what the client needed, you know, they did some or all of those different services. Um, so clients would choose an agency based on their expertise in certain media. Um, and sometimes the client would, um, they'd split up different products um, with different agencies, and sometimes um, one agency would have the radio part of the of the account, and another agency would have the print part of the account. And that was also really controversial because, you know, um, a lot of agencies believe that the print and the radio um, advertising strategies should be coordinated. So different agencies handle that differently. So some agencies, um, the people doing the print advertising, the people doing the radio had to coordinate and collaborate with each other and in other agencies they were entirely separate so um so young and rubicam um the radio department was just like practically a different agency they were just doing their own thing um and so some clients also had young and rubicam do the print campaigns and some of them didn't um so it just it varied a lot by client can you go to the hummers sure <laughs> i can't wait to go to the <laughs> to go to the hummers Give us, if you will, a little bit of personal background on them, how they came together. I know Frank was working with an ad agency, and Anne came on board there. Would you give us a little bit of background, and then we can develop what they wound up with? Yeah, so Frank Hummert had worked at Lord & Thomas, um, where hard sell advertising was um, th the main strategy, which was salesmanship in print or reason why advertising, where you, you wanted to make sure you gave your, um, your audience a lot of reasons why to buy. So it was very um, text-heavy um, kinds of advertising, and it was always product-oriented, so lots and lots of product information. So he um, kind of learned advertising um, uh, from, uh, I'm 
just blanking on his name, a Lasker, Albert Lasker, who was the, the guy who ran Lord and Thomas. Um, so when he got interested in radio, um, he ended up joining up with Blackett and Sample, who were two other um, ad men, and um, he hired Anne Ashenhurst, who was a divorcee with a young boy, to sort of be his assistant at some point, and then they eventually married. Um, and then Frank and Ann Hummert eventually split off from Blackett Sample Hummert and ran their own production company, Air Features, um, for many years. But they sort of sub, so they ended up being the sort of subcontracting producing company um, for uh, Blackett Sample Hummert, and um, which then became Dancer Sample Fitzgerald, um, and a bunch of other um, clients and agencies. So um, they were an interesting pair. Uh, Frank Hummert. Um, was one of these people who didn't like to talk a lot. And so Ann Hummert sort of translated for him to everybody else. And she was a former journalist. In fact, I think he had, Frank had also been a journalist at one point. Um, and they, they started developing these ideas about how to attract housewives um, to their clients' products. And so they decided on the serial format um, and serials, of course, have been really popular in newspapers and comic strips, um, magazines. So serial stories, you know, had already been around for a long time. And the Hummerts were not the only ones who did serials on radio. Lots of people like to claim that they did the very first radio serial, but um, I don't think it's important to know who did it first. Uh, I think the Hummerts are really important because they were the first ones to figure out how to produce a lot of serials at once. And they came up with what we like to call the assembly line uh, production process of um, programs, which is that instead of having one writer uh, try to write all the scripts all the time and try to keep up with producing scripts for 15 minutes of programming five days a week, which is a lot, they came up with this kind of group process where um, Frank and Ann Hummert would come up with the idea they have a tentpole character like uh, Ma Perkins, who sort of held up the circus tent um, of the show, and then they would they would come up with all the characters, and then they would invent some storylines, and then they would take the storylines to um, a group of writers or dialogue writers, and those dialogue writers would write a bunch of pages. I think they were paid by the page, um, and they were not allowed. You know, they didn't usually claim. The writers did not get to be listed as authors anywhere because they were simply dialogue writers. And Anne Hummert then became the person who became publicly credited um, with being the author of these programs, even though they had these huge writing staffs actually doing the writing. Now, this um, production process enabled them to run multiple shows simultaneously um, because they had teams of writers, you know, churning out all these scripts while they sort of oversaw the big picture. Um, and this carries over into television soap opera production um, when uh, Procter & Gamble or, um, gosh, who sponsored Guiding Light? I just blanked on who sponsored Guiding Light, which was on the air until, until 2007. Well, um, I, guess, I know it was an Philip property, but I can't remember the sponsors. But yeah, yes, I, right. just, I just blanked. But the point is that they carried that over when they went into when they expanded into one hour a day um, episodes. Uh, they were able to do that because they had that same hierarchical structure 
of the executive producer and then the manager and then a team of writers who were churning out the specific, um, you know, dialogue, lines of dialogue without being responsible for figuring out the plot or the narrative. Um, so um, Frank and Ann Hummert, um, as I mentioned before, became really influential. Um, and because they were so economical in that they double, triple cast every actor. So every actor was never just one character on one show. They would show up and they were on, they were usually in four different shows, you know, those 15 minute slots back to back. And then they played multiple characters on each show. And then they would just be paid, uh, you know, for an hour's worth of work or whatever, um, because they didn't really like rehearsal. <laughs> the Hummerts didn't want to pay for it. Um, so, um, because they double booked everything, um, the actors got really mad because they felt like they were being underpaid. And a lot of people like to say that AFTRA, which was the, um, oh, AFTRA, that was the guild for radio actors, was uh, created in part um, to uh, counter the, the Hummert's influence on the pay scales um, in the radio industry. They were famous for their low pay scales. And their defense of their low pay scales was, yes, but we employ a lot of people. Like, in other words, we're running, you know, 20 shows at once, and therefore you don't just, an actor doesn't get just one gig, you know, they get several from us, um, even though they didn't pay for things like rehearsal and stuff. So there were um, large uh, communities of radio actors who got their start in Hummer serials and other Hummer programs, um, and who, you know, um, who uh, developed, you know, their radio acting um, skills through, you know, having a lot of work with the Hummerts um, and having those opportunities. So, um, but I'd like to, you know, think about how their sort of effort to make it more efficient and more machine-like uh, was also something that bothered a lot of people. And so when there were criticisms of soap operas, the Hummerts were the main target of those criticisms. And one of the big criticisms that people um, leveled at them was that their, their programs were humorless. They were too serious. They were very portentous. Um, and part of what I look at is how the Hummerts did that on purpose because they were they were they came out of an advertising background. They believed that making fun of the product or using humor to sell was ineffective, and they thought it was wrong. Um, and so they, they went out of their way to avoid any kind of humor because they thought that that would undermine the advertising message, that people would laugh at the product um, and not buy it if they used humor. So they didn't use humor in their commercial announcements, and they didn't use humor in the programs either because they... they they thought of it, they wanted it to be dignified and serious, and they wanted it to be, you know, reason why advertising. So the program text was just like a reason why ad in that the, the, the plots were usually about a problem that then had to be solved, just as the ads that they used to write were about a problem, like you can't sleep, you know, then, then drink, um, you know, Sanka or whatever it was. Um, so... So the problem then in the in the soaps was about, you know, you know, Ma Perkins's children, you know, had a problem and then Ma Perkins would try to help solve it. And then the product, so like if it were Oxidol, your problem was 
dingy laundry, well, Oxidol would then solve that problem. And they really thought humor would prevent that message from getting through. So when people went after soap operas as being bad or as being bad for housewives, one of the, the big things they went after was specifically that Hummert style. And I think what they were really complaining about was the Hummert's belief in their advertising strategy. Did that hurt them in terms of attracting a listening audience? No, they had they had very loyal audiences. Um, I mean, part of the criticism of their soap operas was also um, sexist condescension, right? Um, uh, genres that women like to consume, um, like serialized dramas, uh, was looked down on by male critics um, and the upholders of you know high culture, um, and. Part of what I think is interesting about it, too, was that um, their hard sell advertising, which was um, lots and lots of product information, uh, which, you know, they had to spell everything out because they believed that um, housewives were busy sweeping the floor and washing dishes and were slightly distracted. And so you had to keep repeating everything and spell it out. And so a lot of the critics hated the Hummert programs because they repeated everything and spelled it out. And they thought it was very um, patronizing. But the Hummerts were doing it because they believed their audiences were busy. Um, and so they weren't doing it to be patronizing. They were doing it because they they figured, you know, Mrs. Smith was washing her dishes and might have missed the message. Um, so, so part of what interests me about um, the 1940s sort of backlash against uh, the soap operas is how much of it was um, – uh, sexism, you know, which was to criticize women for listening to these programs. Um, how much of it was actually also a reaction to hard sell advertising strategies? And also, how much of it was this kind of misunderstanding of what the Hummerts were really trying to do, um, which is that they really saw what they were doing as educating women, um, educating audiences, you know, about how to be a better housewife and how to be a better person, and they were really invested in that notion of themselves as helping educating, as helping to educate uh, women. Now, that repetitive nature that you're talking about in their advertising also appeared in the shows that they wrote. Yes, I like right. to, I like to pick on Mr. Keene because it's like, Mr. Keene, um, yes, how are you, Mr. Keene? Yes, I'm Mr. Keene. This is my, yeah. my and this uh, is all because uh, yeah. yeah. They're assuming that the audience is doing something else. They're assuming the audience is multitasking. They were writing for housewives, and they assumed the housewife was sweeping the floor or folding the laundry. And so not only did you have the narrator um, who does recaps, right, regularly, and the narrator comes in and recaps, you know, constantly, um, yes. but you also – they never allowed any dialogue to overlap. And this, again, was intentional. Um and they also repeated everything because they assumed that this distracted audience was going to walk out of the kitchen for a minute and then come back. And they wanted to make sure that that housewife could still follow what was happening. And so, again, they were also assuming that audiences had a hard time uh, concentrating. Um, and that, that, in part, was uh, patronizing in the sense that they assumed that audiences weren't very bright. Um, there had been this study in World War One in which they assumed that um, normal people had an average intelligence of a 12-year-old or something weird like that. 
And so a lot of these agencies assume that, um, that, that they had to sort of repeat everything and spell it out um, because they couldn't assume that their audiences would follow it. And so today when people listen, it's so slow, it's so repetitive, and they think it's really weird and kind of stupid. But what I keep trying to point out is that they were doing it on purpose. They, they, they knew it was slow. They knew it was repetitive. But they were trying to uh, make sure that the message got through. In terms of creative writing, and I guess there, there wasn't a heck of a lot of creativity for the writers because they laid out the, the plot. Um, in terms of creative writing, it shortened how much time each person had to put in on a script because so much of it was repetitive. Yeah, definitely. And I think um, that was part of their system as well. Um, mm -hmm. So in terms of, um, of time, radio time wasn't the same thing as real time, right? So you mm -hmm. could have Helen Trent stay 36 for years and years and years, right? <laughs> because all of her adventures weren't taking place in real time. Um, yep. You know, so one plot, you know, story arc would take weeks and weeks and months to play out. Um, and again, this is really true in linear uh, radio and linear television, which is that they were trying to fill the time and they wanted to stretch it out. And the way to do it economically was to stretch it out as much as possible. Because if you had to keep coming up with lots and lots of different plot lines, that was a lot more work. And therefore you had to hire more writers and hire more people to come up with more plot lines. So, mm -hmm. you know, the fewer plot lines you had, the fewer characters you had, um, the faster it was to turn this stuff around. Um, so the other, the other, the Hummerts had lots of rules, and another rule they had was, you know, they never had, um, I think, more than three people in a scene or something. You know, they didn't want to confuse the audience about who was speaking. Um, so that also, you know, um, kept their um, actor costs down. Um, they. Um, uh, wanted to make sure that um, there, was no, um, there wasn't anything that would ever confuse the audience. Um, so, um, you know, that's why there was no such thing as overlapping dialogue. And so now that sounds very um, unnatural to our ears today because we're now very accustomed to overlapping dialogue in television and movies. Um, but back then they just assumed that um, audiences would be alienated uh, by things like that. Um, yeah. so, so, so anyway, it was all done on purpose, is, is my main point. And the, the purpose came from the goal of trying to advertise the product. So they, they created the programs the same way they created the ads, and they were all designed to be as explicit and clear as possible. Mm -hmm. It's interesting, uh, with the Hummerts, <coughs> excuse me, um, with the Hummerts writing, it was so distinctive that you don't even need to know who wrote the show as soon as you're in there for maybe two or three minutes. You know who the writers were, or you know who. Well, you know it's a you Hummer. You know it was a Hummer production. Yeah, so you don't know who the writers are because they had large staffs of them. I mean, they started right. out with um, a couple of staff writers. Um, Charles Andrew, oh gosh, I just blanked on his name. He was one of their writers. Uh, Robert Charles Andrew, Robert Andrew Charles, uh, um, and he actually wrote a novel about Anne Hummer, uh, which I found, mm. um, in which he he um, 
uh, writes a novel about Frank and Anne Hummert as these people who are running this ad agency and producing these radio shows. And he clearly got really mad at Anne Hummert uh, because she's the bad guy of the novel. Mm. Uh, and uh, it's really entertaining to read as kind of like an insider's view of, uh, because he was uh, marginalized once they moved over to this assembly line system, then somebody like him was less important to the process. Um, and they didn't need him as much because they got these larger staffs mm -hmm. of dialogue writers. And, um, but it was, it was a really good solution to the problem that radio had, which is that everybody had to pr produce shows constantly. So all the vaudeville comedians were used to doing the same joke for months at a time. You know, they would travel the vaudeville circuit and they could do the same joke in every city, right? And then they go on national radio and they can only do that joke once, right? And then they have to come up with another joke for next week, right? This is one reason why Fred Allen, you know, probably died from overwork. Um, so it was extremely stressful. And because also the programming was live, um, and that's in part because the networks um, enforced a kind of live transmission rule in order to maintain control over their affiliates, um, in order to also get people to tune in. They were afraid that if programs were pre-recorded, then, um, then nobody would necessarily tune in, and also that local stations wouldn't need networks anymore. They could just go out and buy a bunch of transcriptions, you know, which were the, you know, the records, mm -hmm. um, and play them on the air rather than um, transmit the network feed. So, so this emphasis on liveness also meant that the program producers, that is the ad agencies, we're under this tremendous amount of pressure to keep producing material constantly. So if you ever read Carol Carroll's biography, this a lot, um, the kind of overwork that they were all going through, this kind of, you know, these 80-hour works, uh, weeks, work weeks, where, you know, they wow. were trying to um, churn this stuff out as fast as possible. And for some of these network shows, like they were changing the script, you know, minutes before the show. And, and my research into March of Time, which was produced by BBDO, um, the people at BBDO would brag about how they were cha literally changing the show five minutes before airtime. Um, so, for example, very famously, um, when the Hindenburg, um, the big Zeppelin, burst into flames in New Jersey at 5 p.m. one night, uh, March of Time went on the air live at 10 p.m. that night and did a reenactment of the explosion and the fire, five hours later, they wrote the script, rehearsed it, and performed it within five hours. That's how quickly uh, they were trying to work. That's how much pressure they were under to just produce stuff so fast. That's amazing. Just amazing. Uh, how I know that Hummerts earned a lot of money using their particular system. Two questions. Were the writers satisfied with the compensation, and number two, were there any other advertising agencies who emulated the, the styles that the Hummers had come up with? Well, um, no, writers were never happy. I think the the writer the Radio Writers Guild probably also organized in response to the Hummers pay scale. Um, uh, they they were paid a piece rate. I'm pretty sure they were paid like by the page, uh, for the most part. Um, and the, the writers could be hired, were hired and fired constantly. So um, just because you were writing for the Hummers didn't mean that you then 
were under contract, you know, for, for long term. You know, they would they'd have you write some scripts, and then if they, you know you could be out of there. So yeah, um, it was that, for hire. Um, I think the the Hummerts um, specialized in this economic efficiency and producing multiple programs simultaneously. Um, and daytime programming had to be cheaper than primetime programming. And that's because and so uh, companies like Procter & Gamble and American Home Products um, intentionally wanted cheap programming in the daytime, and the network sold it, sold it at half price compared to primetime. So the production process had to be cheaper. So yes, I imagine that other... Um, program producers started to adapt this kind of um, hierarchical uh, script production um, process because today it have this thing called the writer's room. There's an mm -hmm. executive producer and you have certain people who oversee the, the basic plot lines and then you have a group of people who are responsible for generating dialogue. And just like with the Hummerts, uh, multiple writers would contribute. And so... Um, even today, when you buy a TV script, there might be one or two names on it, but actually multiple writers um, contributed to it, and yeah. uh, there's a whole system as to who gets their name on it. But mm -hmm. um, so, so they, to me, I believe they really influenced the way um, script production, um, you know, evolved in in radio and television for the next yeah. you know decades. Can um, I, I was. So, I, I was I was thinking about Bob Hope because I remember reading one of his books. In the forties, he had up to fifteen writers on staff, and yeah, so, you know, so he was sort of modeling yeah, the hub. Yeah, so primetime comedians um, had huge writing staffs. So Jack Benny, um, Bob Hope. Now Fred Allen was kind of weird because, uh, from what I understand, I think he wrote most of his own scripts. Right. Um, that's reason why he was under he was he felt so crazed all the time um but um the prime time shows were big budget um so the airtime costs more and then the average more on talent um and spent more on product costs so um you know jay walter thompson you know had a huge staff of writers um and usually um you know, one a writer worked for one show constantly. So Carol Carroll was churning out, you know, scripts every week for Craft Music Hall. But then sometimes he was doubled up and he was writing scripts for two programs, three programs, and then he would go completely crazy. Um, so it kind of depended on what the programs were that the ad agency was producing. Um, BBDO um, hired a bunch of people to write scripts, like for Cavalcade of America... Um, in which, you know, they, they wanted to hire um, people like Eric Barnow, uh, who later on wrote a whole bunch of broadcast history books, which everybody should read if they haven't read yet. Um, uh, but then they also, like, had historians come in and, you know, some of the scripts um, in order to give it this kind of patina of historical accuracy. Um, you know, they were basically reenacting historical moments in American history, um, just as they were reenacting news events in March of Time. Um, so it depended. I mean, the the BBDO um, writing staff um, 
can. I think it was usually often collaborative, um, that it was a group of writers. Um, and then they got utilized as, as they needed to be utilized, depending on the program. I love your term, economic efficiency. Mm -hmm. I have, uh, forgive me, I have always called them cheap. Um, well, they, yeah, well, they also use public domain music. They did not have, and it was pre-recorded, didn't yes. have anything live in the studio. So they, they really had an economic system going for yes. them, which must have made them fairly well off. Like well, you know, again, again, they they didn't they didn't own the shows, so mm -hmm. so so yeah, so they used organs instead of orchestras, right? Um, so they because it was daytime and they were trying to keep the costs low. That was what they were delivering. They're great. Because they deliver low cost, so yes, obviously they charged for their services. Um, and Frank and Ann Hummer famously lived in this big house out in Connecticut, um, where you know they just sent you know instructions you know by messenger to their team offices in Manhattan. Um, you know, and they kept themselves sort of separate from you know. Uh, the, the hurly burly, I guess you could say. Um, so he was, they were seen as being very wealthy, and I'm sure they did earn a lot of money and they earned more money when they left um, the agency and said they actually own some of their shows. But yes, they were just like Walt Disney. They were intent on finding properties or stories that already existed, that were pre-sold, that is, that audiences already liked and therefore um, had already um, And that was just very efficient. And so their genius really was in coming up with a way of producing a lot of programming um, for the lowest cost possible. I think another thing that... The... Go ahead, Patricia. I'm oh. sorry. <laughs> I was going to ask who was next in line. They were extraordinarily prolific with what they put out. Who was next in line? I don't know. Um, There's nobody you know, competing I, it, with them. Well, I guess, you know, um, Erna Phillips for daytime um, is really their main competitor in terms of number of programs and prolificness. Um, and she resisted that assembly line system for a long time. But I think she, I, don't quote me on this, but I think she might eventually have moved to it herself. Mm -hmm. But she started off writing all of her own scripts. And, um, uh, yeah, so for daytime, I would say Erna Phillips um, was probably their main competitor. You know, for primetime, you know, part of what's hard to measure is um, quantity versus um, quality in the sense that, um, like, BBDO didn't do as many programs, say, as uh, the Hummerts, but they had these shows that were, you know, famous, like March of Time and Cavalcade of America, um, and that were very prestigious for their clients. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, part of what I look at is how each agency um, 
promoting themselves a little bit differently uh, to what they did and how they did it. So Benton and Bowles promoted themselves as breaking all the rules. So one of the rules they broke was um, uh, on Showboat, Maxwell House Coffee, um, the variety show Showboat, they would have one performer sing the songs and, and another performer act the dialogue as the same character. Um, ah. Because that way, so, so they did the opposite of the Hummer. So instead of having one person play five characters, they had two people play the same character um, because one was a better actress and one was a better singer, right? And since the home office, the home audience couldn't see, they had no idea, right? So they they talked a lot about how they were not locked into these old notions of theater, that they were inventing these new forms, you know, mm-hmm. for radio. Um, Young and Rubicam promoted itself as a soft sell agency, which meant that they used a lot of humor to kind of soften up the audience for the ad. And they also used a lot of um, more user-oriented advertising, which is that the ads were about how the user would feel about the product rather than mm-hmm. about the product. Um, and so when they were overseeing, like Jack Benny, then they did a lot of kind of what we call branded entertainment. Now they'd make jokes about Jell-O during the show, and Jack Benny, of course, said Jell-O again. It's Jack Benny. Um, and these were all sort of ways of getting the audience to be aware of the brand name, but doing it in such a humorous way that the audience wouldn't be annoyed by it. So, mm-hmm. so in other words, each agency kind of was um, had its own approach um, to how to integrate, you know, the entertaining entertainment and the advertising, but also their own approach in how they dealt with their clients, how they dealt with the entertainers, um, how they managed all these different issues between the advertisers and the entertainers and the program. Um, Excuse me. So some agencies like J. Walter Thompson, you know, like insisted on total control. You know, they they did everything, um, you know, uh, and that's one reason why Bing Crosby left, actually. Um, Bing Crosby left Kraft Music Hall for a lot of different reasons. But, you know, J. Walter Thompson ran that show and Bing Crosby, uh, you know, kind of wanted to do his own thing, you know, sometimes. Yeah. So, um so each agency sort of managed these things a little bit differently. Interesting. Now, the Hummerts sold their production company. I believe it was to CBS. Is that correct? Yes, they did. I think like in 1960 or something. Yeah. Some, somewhere in the 1950s. Why did they not move to television, which was oh. at least as lucrative as the area that they've been no, working no, in? No, no, no. Television was very unlucrative in the 50s. So it, w- it wasn't lucrative for anybody in mm-hmm. the early 1950s. Um, first of all, the Hummerts were radio specialists, and all of their economic efficiencies were based on radio, right? You have three actors playing six parts, and you can't do that on television. Um, you just couldn't do any – all of their strategies, except maybe script production – um, could not carry over into television. So they just tried to keep their radio shows alive as long as they could. And in fact, they, um, you know, when they would lose sponsors, they kept trying to, they kept producing their shows and tried, you know, to syndicate them and stuff instead of giving up entirely. Um, mm-hmm. So um, t- television was a huge money loser for the networks, for the sponsors, and for the agencies. 
And that's one reason it's something people forget um, because it's really hard for us to look back and because television becomes so profitable for everybody later. Um, but it was this huge jump in budgets. So when you look at the budgets for the radio shows and you look at the budgets for the television shows, there's this um, exponential difference. So a lot of sponsors didn't want to make the leap. Um, and then when they did make the leap, they usually wanted to simulcast, uh, which just made everything harder for everybody, you know. Um, you know, so the show was on radio and on television at the same yeah. time, which basically just meant that you were broadcasting a radio show on a TV screen. Um, but broadcasting on television, I mean, don't forget you had to have costumes and sets and cameras and lights, all of which were um, expensive. Um, and then when you're doing live broadcasts, it all had to be incredibly rehearsed and choreographed. I mean, every camera angle had to be choreographed. And this was yeah. really, really difficult. The Hummerts knew nothing about this. Um, and so the big debate in early television was who was actually going to oversee television production. And it became quickly obvious that the film studios were best equipped to do that. Mm -hmm. um, and so... The film studios, which were suffering from the Paramount decisions of 1948, in which they lost their theaters and therefore the guaranteed uh, retail outlet for their movies, um, found television production to be actually a lot more profitable. Um, and so, you know, television production shifts to film and it shifts to Los Angeles uh, by the end of the 1950s. And the networks finally gave up on insisting on live broadcasts because live broadcasts were so hard on television. I mean, remember on radio when somebody would flub something up, it, it, it wasn't as disastrous because you couldn't see it, you know, uh, yeah. the way it was just so much more obvious on television. And then on television as well, um, um, advertisers, you know, were trying to figure out um, how to use it. And the cost per thousand was too high on television. In other words, radio, you could reach like, you know, it was like, uh, don't quote me on any numbers, but, you know, it'd be like $4 per thousand listeners or something. You could reach a thousand listeners for $4 or something or a dollar. Uh, but on television, it's like $20 to reach a yeah. thousand listeners. And so it doesn't make any sense for a lot of advertisers. And so Part of what happens in the 50s, and which is what I'm working on today, these days, is um, there's this whole negotiation that goes on between the broadcasters, the advertisers, and the agencies, and then the production companies, because the production companies then become separate from the ad agencies, about who's going to control the programming, who's going to make it, who's going to pay for it. Um, and so the networks and the sponsors are going through these all these elaborate negotiations in the 50s um, about who's going to pay for what, because the networks want program control, but they don't want to pay for it. Um, and then they, they want the advertisers to pay for it, but the advertisers don't want to pay for it if they can't control the program, because that's what they've done on radio. Yeah. So throughout the 50s and into the 60s, the advertisers are like, wait a minute, but what I'm paying for is program control. And the networks are saying, no, 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 what you're paying for is audiences. We'll make the programs produce the audiences and you just pay for access to the audiences but this takes a while to work out um lots of advertisers couldn't really wrap their brains around it for quite a while and their agencies sort of have to push them into it because the agencies are losing money hand over fist whenever they get into television program production they can't they can't make enough money they 
they used to they charged commissions um you know like 15 percent for the airtime 15 percent for this 15 percent for that and they just it was just uh, television production was just too expensive for them it was a loss instead of a profit um area let me throw on a hypothesis out you i think you just turn on the light for a lot of us since you here a minute ago if television were profitable in the 50s would that in a way have saved radio drama because you know face it, a lot of people radio buff figures tv killed radio because the money shifted from radio to tv so if tv were profitable sooner what in a way could have that have saved radio drama in america no i don't think so because um First of all, the only way television could become profitable is if advertisers invested in it. Mm-hmm. And um, advertisers, a lot of advertisers didn't want to leave radio because it was tried and true. Um, they kind of had to be sometimes dragged kicking and screaming into television. So it was this, so there were several forces going on at the same time. Audiences um, started being, you know, wanting to see things on television. Networks were trying to build it up into an ad. Um, into to an ad medium, um, uh, advertisers wanted to follow the audiences, um, but advertisers also were really worried about the cost, and they were really worried about the effectiveness. Um, uh, television wasn't really national until like the mid-50s. In other words, uh, most broadcasts didn't reach the entire country, so it, um, it didn't it wasn't an effective national advertising medium for quite a while. And so the advertisers who were in television were the adventurous ones, um, were the ones who, um, you know, wanted to try the the new technology or who um, a lot of them were corporate image advertisers like General Electric and DuPont and U.S. Steel who just simply wanted to burnish their corporate image rather than sell products. And they were willing to spend a million dollars to do that. Um, whereas companies like Procter & Gamble and American Home Products, you know, they wanted to sell packaged goods and the cost per thousand was still too high and it was, it was a problem for them. Like the transition takes a while. So ra- they were, the money was going to leave radio drama no matter what, but the thing about radio drama is that um, it's still so much cheaper than television drama that um, it still exists. It's and it's continued to exist, just in a much smaller form. And it stopped being national, and it stopped being you know something that millions of people listen to live. Um, but uh, radio stations then, once they all started losing that network affiliation and stopped getting those live transmissions of those dramas. Um, shifted to recorded music because it was so much cheaper. I mean, the pr- playing records was so much cheaper than having anything live, right? So you have this this huge shift that happens because the money, um, how advertisers are going to find audiences um, has to change. And then local radio then becomes a really important and powerful um, advertising platform, but it it's no longer following that single sponsorship system, um, and advertisers have given up that notion of um, trying to have the program content align perfectly with their product ideas. So, I'm afraid that 
national live radio drama was going to have to end um, because the 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 advertising support was going to have to move. And this happened with general interest magazines as well, like Life Magazine and Saturday Evening Post um, really went into decline once television came along. And it's not because, you know, people stopped listen, you know, listening to radio drama or reading magazines. It's, it's more that the advertising expenditures shifted to television um, because they could get a larger simultaneous audience once national television actually you know, connected up all of their um, their long lines so that you could have these national um, broadcasts. Um, and once they shifted to film where you could control the program more easily because you could edit it, um, that's when television really becomes profitable. So in the 1960s, you have this perfect oligopoly of three networks um, and this system of, you know, an oligopoly of movie studios producing those programs um, and then you have, you know, a group of large packaged good um, advertisers like Procter and Gamble, who then dominate television advertising. And these three huge entities or industries um, just make these huge profits from having um, access to audiences who only have three networks to choose from and who tune in to whatever is on and are being exposed to, to advertising that they can't really avoid. Um, and it's this great system that works until, you know, about the 1980s. Well, that's why I think cable TV's in trouble. Network TV, I think once our cart programming become the way, because I, I think we all see that, especially with TV, I think that's going to really break up the cable business, basically. You yeah, know. Yes, you know, and, you know, it's again, it's similar in that it was based on a monopoly system where you could only buy a cable bundle from one provider, which was your local, you know, cable franchise, which had a local monopoly. Um, and then once, you know, we have streaming television, you know, people aren't locked into that local monopoly anymore. Um, yeah, I think linear television is going to really, really change because um, people are losing the habit of sitting through interrupting commercials. And, um, you know, and once you've moved moved entirely to on-demand, it feels silly to sit around and wait till 8 o'clock to watch your favorite show if you want to watch it at 6 o'clock, right? Um, so advertisers had, you know, benefited from the fact that audiences couldn't avoid their ads, really, for decades. I mean, they could. People left the room all the time. People turned off the sound all the time. Um, but advertisers didn't have to be aware of it because they didn't know about it because there was really no way to measure that. Um, not accurately, and today they're very aware of it. Um, they can see it in people's DVRs, and um, with digital cable, they could actually uh, see what people are watching all the time. Um, so they're beginning to realize that that, that whole model uh, of being adjacent to content um, isn't going to work anymore. So that's why more and more advertisers are turning to creating their own programming and creating their own content um, and so that's why I think to understand how it worked in the 30s and 40s is really helpful because you can see why advertisers are doing that. And the main reason they're doing it is because they're trying to get audience attention and they're trying to get it in a way that will please audiences rather than annoy them. 
we're talking to a good friend, Cynthia Meyer, Patricia, and, and I. One thing I noticed. Oh, good. <laughs> and one thing I noticed too, uh, but, but I want to mention about the Frank and Ann Hummett, is they and I interviewed a lot of radio actors over the years. A lot of them did not know the Hummet personally. The only one I sort of knew that knew the Hummet personally was Carl Swinton, who was, of course, Lorenzo mm-hmm. Jones. But most of the other radio actors had no idea. They had no relationship with Frank and Ann Hummet. And that probably was the advantage for the Hummet to control the shows, probably. Yeah, well, you know, I think they stayed in their house in Connecticut most of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and they hired, actually, you know, run the show in the you know radio studio um and they you know they they um did all the oversight of the scripts and then once they approved a script they'd you know send it in and people would you know read it on the air i mean um i know frank hummer was famous for being very shy or you know not wanting to talk to people at all and ann hummer was kind of the public facing person and she was the more public person. In fact, you, you know, sometimes in some of the shows they'll say this was a this was you know written by Anne Hummer. They'd actually mention her, um, and she. Um, I think the reason they kind of highlighted her role in it was because she was a woman, and they were trying to reach female audiences. And the idea was, well, she knows how to appeal to women, um, and so. If we say that this is by Ann Hummer, you know, that's going to sound more appealing to the audiences they were trying to reach than if they'd said that Frank had something to do with it. Hmm. Well, that makes a whole lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Gee whiz. Um, now, this is my last question, I said, because we have certainly overstayed our <laughs> welcome here. Cynthia, you're so great for staying with us for so long. On the hard sell and the soft sell, which of the two was more successful well it depends on how you define success but the hard sell was more dominant in the 30s and 40s mm-hmm. um, and the hard sell I define it as being about the product it's like product information so when you whenever you do hear um, any of the ads and any of the Hummer programs they'll go on for one or two minutes about the product so they'll tell you what it does how it gets your clothes clean you know how your hands don't turn as red and so on and so forth so it's all about the product, and that's again because of their belief that advertising should be um, should educate consumers about the product. They really believe that's what advertising's role was was to educate consumers about what a product does. Um, the soft sell isn't really about the product at all. Um, the soft sell is about making people aware of a product, um, you know, by either entertaining them through humor or by um, talking about emotions and how people feel so one of the most famous soft sell ads uh, was a J. Walter Thompson ad about a soap and instead of about the soap getting anything clean the tagline was the skin you love to touch so um, it was about you could see a picture of a woman and her husband's looking at her lovingly it was about the emotional appeal of needing to be loved um, and the, you know use this soap and your husband's going to love you but they don't say that straight out because nobody would believe it. Instead, they just imply it, um, and that's a classic soft sell. So both strategies have always been in use, um, and they've often been combined. Uh, the Hummerts were 
very hard cell oriented. They avoided all soft cell strategies. They didn't believe in any of them. Um, but a lot of other agencies like J. Walter Thompson and BVDO sort of used a combination of hard cell and soft cell. Um, the soft cell is what becomes most successful historically. So by the 1960s, the ad industry almost completely drops hard cell altogether. And basically, if you look at any advertising since the 1960s, it's almost all soft sell. That is, it's almost all about emotions or humor or, you know, the consumer uh, having fun, excitement, uh, bonding, friendship, family, um, or they're funny. Um, so um, when you look at a hard sell ad today, it looks really old fashioned. It looks really weird. Um, people kind of laugh at it. It makes them uncomfortable. And I think the reason people are uncomfortable with it is because they don't believe the product information. It sounds very awkward to them. And so a lot of the criticisms of commercial radio back in the 30s and 40s was, I believe, really a criticism of hard sell advertising, which was this kind of direct address, this direct sort of like, buy this product, it works really well. Um, and that whole sort of direct approach doesn't work. Today, consumers think that they're savvy and that they're not going to be told what to buy. And so advertisers use the soft sell to make them feel a certain way. So just think of any ad, you know, any ad on the Super Bowl almost always use some sort of soft sell appeal, you know, mm -hmm. whether it was, you know, family members having fun and, oh, they happen to be driving that car or they happen to be eating that fast food. Um, or it's humor. Um, they, they do a lot of self-reflexive, ironic humor today because they're very aware that, that consumers don't want to watch an ad and consumers don't want to feel talked down to. So if they use irony, that's sort of like, oh, we know it's an ad, you know it's an ad, wink, wink, haha, it's just an ad. Uh, I think Tide did some very ironic ads this year. Oh, this is a Tide commercial. That's just a strategy for disarming the consumer so that they'll pay attention to the ad because they'll say, oh, we're in this together. Um, so then when you put a Hummer ad next to, you know, today's Tide ad, which is very wink, wink, soft sell, um, it, it doesn't, it, you know, audiences today would just go, well, this is weird, you know. Of course, I'm not going to buy Oxidol because you're telling me for two minutes that it gets my clothes clean. I don't, I don't believe you, right? So I think the soft sell is and was more successful. It was, I think it was probably more successful even then, but it wasn't the standard strategy. It wasn't the um, main strategy. Um, and when people like the Hummerts were doing hard sell strategies instead, um, at that time, historically, that, that was what seemed to be working. You know, Oxidol was selling, you know, Jell-O was selling. They were selling lots of Jell-O or they were selling lots of Oxidol. Like that whole strategy seemed to work. But I think, you know, part of what was working was that it was a national medium reaching millions of people simultaneously. And so they could see these huge bumps in sales just from having this massive exposure. Um, but but what exactly uh, was influencing people is a little bit harder to say for certain. Cynthia, I am out of questions. I just I cannot <laughs> believe all that you have in your head and you're able to share with us. And uh, I appreciate so much that you spent time with us. Next time you come back, could we talk about premiums? Premiums. Well, that was just the strategy to get you know. It's just it's a it's a merchandising strategy. But yeah, sure. 
Okay, that would be great. Well, one question. Do you have any other questions? Yeah, one question I want to get Cynthia's thoughts on, and we'll turn it loose. We'll promote the website, the book again. Do you think the 15-second TV commercial or anything under 30 seconds are all that effective, Cynthia, in today's market? Yeah, oh yeah, definitely. And I think they're moving towards um, the five and six second. Wow. Uh, yeah, but you see, that's because there's a really good reason for it. I mean, you know, here's when when advertisers bought an hour and then they were forced into 60 seconds, they were really mad because they're like, no, we're used to buying 60 minutes, not 60 seconds. And so they felt like 60 seconds wasn't long enough. Then they got forced into 30 seconds, or not forced, but then the standard became 30 seconds, and Procter & Gamble actually um, uh, pioneered in that because then they could buy 60 seconds and split it in half and have two different brands. Mm -hmm. um, so they started act Procter & Gamble just like they did with the Hummerts and having one hour of time and splitting it into four different brands. They were doing that with the 60-second commercials. And then um, the 30-second um, standard sticks around for decades because the TV industry – uh, stabilizes around it for a few decades but um, now um, not only is there you know fast forwarding through commercials like on DVRs but when people are watching uh, like pre-roll ads like on YouTube um, what they're discovering is that you know five seconds is plenty of time to do the brand exposure right um, and uh, Vine, which was one of those platforms, which were six-second videos, mm -hmm. there was a lot of branded content um, on on that platform that a lot of people thought was really, really um, effective. Um, so, what happens with linear TV? I'm not sure. I'm not sure if they'll switch to five-second ads, but I'm sure the 15-second ad will probably become the dominant um, format. But with online video, I think the five and six second ad will become the dominant format. Wow. I agree. We've yeah. been talking with Cynthia Myers, Associate Professor of Communications at the College of Mount St. Vincent in New York City. And she has her doctorate in radio, television, and film from the University of Texas at Austin. And I think you could probably tell that. <laughs> <laughs> throughout our entire evening tonight you have your book a word from our sponsor available in several places amazon.com yes. yes um oxford university press is oup.com am i correct on that one you know what they no longer have it they don't how dare yep. them i know it has to do with the distribution deal so that deal changed uh but okay. Fordham university press um, has it and it's okay. on and it, you can get used copies on Amazon I've, I've seen them there quite a bit so excellent excellent um, what I have another address here a word from our sponsor dot wordpress dot com is that still valid yes so on that website I have like a few images and some audio clips that mm -hmm. sort of illustrate different elements of the book um, it's just like a little add-on, so um, I have some illustrations in the book, but I put some other ones also on the website. Great, great. Well, Cynthia, I can't thank you enough for spending so much time with us, and I apologize that we kept you here for so long. We could, That's okay. we could keep you. We could keep you for another two hours and and never run out of anything to ask you. 
Thank you so much, Cynthia. I'm looking forward to when you'll be able to come back again. Well, sure. It's been a pleasure. It's always fun to talk to you. Terrific. Thank you so much. Good night, Cynthia. Good night, Cynthia. Good night. All right. Okay, everybody. That was our wonderful friend, Cynthia Myers. And uh, Patricia, shall I go ahead and let you go and get ready for the next day? I will do that. Okay. All right. We'll do that. Terrific. And thanks the, again for having me. All right, Cynthia. Take care. All right, you too. Bye-bye. Bye. And there's your Cynthia. And I'll okay. let Patricia go. And next week. All right. We'll let we call. will be back next week together. All right, yes. Patricia. Yes. Yes. Yeah. We will be. <laughs> we will be. All right, my dear. I'll talk to you ne- okay. I'll talk to you next Saturday. Good night, everybody. Good night, Walden. Good night, Patricia. And there she is. All right. And it is 9.24 here on the West Coast. Thanks for Jim for calling in. And thanks for all you for listening. So what we're going to feature next is a Ray Bream interview. But let's uh, say a prayer first. Dear Lord, thank you for the opportunity of being here. Bless this wonderful country. Bless the men and women of the armed forces that serve it. Bless our first responders, our our police officers, our fire, our medical people. Help all our friends who are in hospitals tonight, Lord. Help those who have been going through surgeries over the last few weeks and help those who face surgeries fairly soon, Lord. We ask this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, let's get ready with Ray Breen. That's here on Yesterday USA. Jaws Professional Saturday Items View 1 Ray Bream 920104 with Tom Lewis, author of Empire of the Air. Unloading Jaw Cat OK Enter Saturday 210. See you in Monday. So long, everybody. At the tone, midnight. Hello, Americans. I'm Paul Harvey. You know what the news is. In a minute, you're going to hear the rest of the story. We Americans have plenty to be thankful for. Things people in many parts of the world might never experience, like our freedom to enjoy life the way we want. Keeping this freedom's a full-time job, and the United States Navy is on the job 24 hours a day. For information about Navy opportunities, see your local Navy recruiter or call 1-800-327-NAVY. A public service message from the U.S. Navy. True Value is your neighborhood hardware store, but with national buying power. And each month you have learned that I will quote for you the hardware value of the month. And you have learned to expect something very special. Well, it is for January. A Crosley Heat Force Heater. A Crosley Heat Force Heater delivers up to 1,500 watts. It has two heat settings and a fan only and an automatic overheat shutoff. Now in January, while it's the hardware value of the month, it's less than $25 at true value. You bet that is true value. Now, the rest of the story.
Once upon a time in the dark ages of medicine in a world without anticoagulants and antihistamines and antibiotics and antiseptics, there was one antidote for just about any ailment, a solitary treatment for myriad disorders, and the ancient prescription was laughter. Laughter. No, more than just a positive mental attitude, specifically merriment, laughter. Henri de Mondeville was a professor of surgery who taught and practiced around the turn of the 14th century, and his prescription for recuperation was mirth. A surgeon could be assured of his patient's complete recovery, de Mondeville declared, by allowing his relatives and special friends to cheer him, and by having someone tell him jokes. Conversely, he said, the surgeon must forbid anger, hatred, and sadness in the patient. This was a common position of medieval physicians. Surgeons and doctors disagreed only regarding the form in which humor was to be administered. 300 years past de Mondeville's time, Richard Mulcaster and Robert Burton wrote individually and extensively on the therapeutic nature of laughter. During the reign of King George III, there was an English physician, Dr. William Batty, who is now recognized as a pioneer in the field of mental illness. Not only did he regularly prescribe laughter in the treatment of his mental patients, but it's recalled that Dr. Batty once had a sane young patient with a virtually inaccessible abscess in his throat, and that the abscess had enlarged to the point that it threatened the young man with suffocation, and that finally after Dr. Batty had exhausted his repertoire of medications and his young patient was about to strangle, the desperate physician resorted to humor now listen to this, he set his wig crooked and made silly faces until he had evoked the eruptive laughter which burst the abscess and saved the patient's life. 1928, an American physician, Dr. James J. Walsh, published an impressive book-sized treatise entitled Laughter and Health. In it, Dr. Walsh attempts to unravel the mystery of why Laughter increases one's resistance to disease. We're now only beginning to understand. Editor Norman Cousins wrote in 1976 that he had laughed his way to recovery from a degenerative spinal condition. And this led many researchers to re-examine the subtleties of adrenaline metabolism and the occurrence of beta endorphins in the blood and even the electrophysiology of the brain. Almost 700 years after de Mondeville forbade his patients to be angry or hateful or sad, stress is now almost universally acknowledged as a potential root cause of some illnesses. And yet Henri de Mondeville was hardly the first to make such a suggestion. For it is in the search for new answers that the old answers are often justified. For example, may I quote, a cheerful heart is good medicine, but a crushed spirit dries up the bones. I said a cheerful heart is good medicine. King Solomon wrote those words in the book of Proverbs more than 3,000 years ago. And now you know the rest of the story. You're listening to 790 Talk Radio. It's 12.05 a.m. and good morning, everyone. It's a Saturday morning now and it's already the fourth day of January 1992. 
This morning, we're going to be talking about my favorite subject, one that uh, I have been in for a few years, and that's radio. In fact, the book is called Empire of the Air, The Men Who Made Radio. And with us is Tom Lewis, who, uh, of course, wrote the book. He's a professor of English at Skidmore College. Where is Skidmore College? It's in Saratoga Springs, New York. That's a town about 30 miles north of Albany, which is famous for its racetrack and its bathing spas. Sounds delightful. Why did you write a book about radio, and uh, why Empire of the Air? Well, you know, I think all, all knowledge really starts in ignorance, and my knowledge about radio really began in ignorance, too. You, you, you uh, of course, felt that uh, Marconi invented radio, only Marconi. I certainly did, and uh, my wife handed me an article, a newspaper article, one day in 1977. She said, this will interest you. And it, uh, it certainly did. It was about Armstrong, uh, Edwin Howard Armstrong, who uh, really created the basic circuits that make radio function today. Every listener right now has touched a tuner to get this station. That tuner was uh, invented by uh, Armstrong. This My voice is going out over the air right now on a circuit which is called the regeneration circuit. And it's Armstrong who invented that. Well... Uh, of course, Lee DeForest didn't agree with that. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's absolutely, absolutely, and that's, that's a another. Good, that's, that's a good another, part of your book. That's another part of the story, of course, too. You're absolutely right. But anyway, my wife gave me this article, and I went right to the library that morning and started reading and thinking about Edwin Howard Armstrong, and then in 1985. I was uh, asked to write an article for American Heritage of Invention and Technology on uh, somebody of my choice. And I said, well, I think I'll do Edwin Howard Armstrong. And it just shot, came to me out of the blue. And the editor, a wonderful man named uh, Byron uh, Dobell, said, who the hell is Edwin Howard Armstrong? And I said, well, you never touch a radio or tune a television or listen to a voice from space without being touched by one of Armstrong's inventions. And he said, write it. As I was writing that, I said, there's more than just a story of Armstrong. This is really a story of the creation of radio. It's a story of not only Howard Armstrong, but uh, his nemesis, the one whom he fought against so often, who was... Uh, Lee DeForest. Lee DeForest had invented the, what is really the radio tube. For the those, he called it the Audion. Yes, and the Audion or the radio tube is really the grandfather of the transistor. Uh, the in I other words, we had a heater, sure. and we had a grid, and we had a plate. Absolutely. And uh, the heater heated the, the uh, tube, and it was giving off these emissions, and then you fed uh, whatever information you wanted into the grid, and the plate would extract it, and you just just put more tubes in, and you, you got yourself an amplified circuit. Absolutely. And what it was was the first way of manipulating electrons. And that's what DeForest invented, and it became the basis for the multi-billion dollar electronics industry that we know today. But there's 
such wonderful little things about the story. DeForest didn't really understand what he had invented. Um, and he always went about invention to become rich and to become famous. Yes, he wanted to improve the lot of humanity, but it was really to become rich and to become famous. And uh, he died with about $1,250 in the bank. He had been battling Armstrong much of his life. Absolutely. He, he had uh, uh, battled Armstrong over the invention of the regeneration circuit, which was Armstrong's first circuit, which uh, was a circuit which made two things possible. First, for people to receive uh, wireless messages or radio messages through the air uh, as they had never received them before. And then also Armstrong found that he could uh, transmit with the same circuit. The circuit essentially fed the, uh, the electrons that were coming out of that radio tube that you so well described back through the tube again, again and again and again. That's and the this, amplification. And that was feedback or regeneration. Mm -hmm. And he found that if he... Uh, fed them back over a critical le level. This is Armstrong. He mm -hmm. found that if he fed those signals back over a critical level that they actually began to oscillate themselves and became a transmitter. So his same circuit was both a receiver and a transmitter. Mm -hmm. It's that transmitter that's enabling me to talk with you right now. That's very true. Now, let's not uh, overlook Marconi. Marconi certainly... Uh, has to get some credit, but uh, uh, I think undue credit is given to Marconi. You ask anybody about uh, radio, uh, nine out of ten people will tell you it was Marconi who invented radio. Yes, that's absolutely right. And what Marconi did was he made a very significant invention. He took uh, a discovery of a man named Heinrich uh, hertz. Uh, the discovery was that there were such a thing as electronic, electromagnetic waves. Mm -hmm. And what Marconi did was manipulate those waves in such a way as to send out on them telegraph messages. So the dots and dashes of telegraph messages now were imprinted on a radio wave. Now what this did was it made it possible for ships at sea, which, which were in distress, to send telegraph messages. But he was never, Marconi was never interested in voice until... Uh, Radio had been created. As they say in the trade, telephony. Yes, yeah. that's right. But it was really Lee DeForest who was much more interested that's in right. telephony. In fact, his second uh, company of a number of companies that he created was called the American uh, DeForest Wireless Telegraph <laughs> and Telephone Company. But it was wireless telephony that he was most interested in. Now, another key player, a man named David Sarnoff. Well, he's the third character in my uh, triumvirate of creators of the radio, and he's a wonderful, uh, wonderfully interesting man. Certainly no person, or certainly few people, came to the United States with as little money and as a, such a low 
uh, plane of life as David Sarnoff did in 1900. When he stepped off the boat in New York City, he had absolutely nothing. And within 30 years, he was the president of the Radio Corporation of America, the most powerful electronics corporation in the world at the time. And he had done this having dropped out of school in the eighth grade. Now, this was first-rate brain and first-rate drive and energy. Uh, and also, I would have to say, a considerable amount of ruthlessness to mm. boot. Mm. Uh, he uh, walked uh, very uh, heavily over uh, uh, patents and uh, claimed them as RCA's own, right? Absolutely. What... Um, you've put that very well, as a matter of fact. Uh, what... Uh, Sarnoff believed in was the importance of the large corporation, that the world was changing, and this is also a, a, another part of my story, is that the world was changing, that the time of the lone inventor was passing very, very swiftly. When we think back of the great inventors of the America's past, we don't think of the people who invented the television, or the radio, for that matter. We, we think about a rebel, an Edison, uh, perhaps the Wright brothers. But what we're, and, and we, our romanticism is attached to those figures. But it is a figure like Mark, uh, like um, Sarnoff, who really thought that the large corporation could do it. It was the large corporation that was going to create the great inventions of the century. And what he did was he gathered under the umbrella of RCA uh, as many of the patents as he possibly could. And so RCA became a giant which really uh, trampled uh, any lone inventor in its path. And time and time again, uh, you will find disgruntled uh, people out there who are lone inventors who invented something, and they will claim, at least to me, that RCA took their circuit. Now, Sarnoff, of course, is legendary because of uh, his hearing intercepting the messages from the sinking Titanic. But uh, we are told so many times that it was only Sarnoff that heard these messages. Well, of course, that's, that's what is, is said, and it's uh, simply not true. There were many, many people who heard the, the sounds of the Titanic, that the Titanic was sinking. By the way, they did not come from the Titanic. They came from another boat. The Titanic's uh, uh, wireless was uh, not uh, capable of transmitting to uh, the coast of the United States. So, so there was, was a relay then? Oh, there certainly was. So that's the, that's the first thing. But the second thing is that the Titanic sank at about, hit, a, hit its iceberg around 10 o'clock on a Sunday evening. Now, on Sunday evening, uh, David Sarnoff was not at a telegraph key because his station was in the Wanamaker building. It was a demonstration station and a very small one. Uh, 
It was capable of sending messages to about as far away as Philadelphia, 90 miles from New York City, but not much further. Uh, and uh, 10 o'clock on a Sunday evening is not prime time selling for a, a department store. But what Sarnoff did was he got to that station the next day and he listened to all the messages coming in uh, and he fed some of them to uh, a newspaper, not the New York Times, but the New York Journal. Uh, and he saw his name in print for the first time. Later, as the story of the Titanic sinking receded in memory, uh, that is to say the story of the relay of the signals, which was vitally important in those crucial days following the sinking, uh, as that story receded in memory, Sarnoff reminded people again and again that he had heard the sounds of the Titanic and then as time went on it was he alone who had heard them <laughs> and this bespeaks a, a very real insecurity of Sarnoff which is too bad because he didn't need to do this uh, he was a great man he didn't need to manufacture facts what Norman Mailer would call a factoid about himself. There is, are enough rich facts about this man that we simply don't need them. All right, let's go back to uh, Edwin Armstrong and, of course, uh, Lita Force. They were battling each other for decades over patent rights and infringements as to who uh, invented the regenerative... Uh, 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 regenerating uh, or superheterodyne I like better well no they're two different circuits the yeah. regeneration circuit is a is a circuit for transmission right uh, the superhet was, was for, a, listening. For, for listening yeah. yes but anyway uh, they, they battled each other for decades but Edward Armstrong also battled RCA yes he did um, Armstrong spent most of his um, time uh, when he wasn't in the laboratory in the courtroom or in his lawyer's office. And they both died. Lita Forrest and Armstrong died as poor people, right? Um, yes, Armstrong was broke. Now let me, go, let me take both of these cases mm -hmm. because they're, they're entirely separate and try to explain them in a, in a way which will not, I promise, send your audience to sleep tonight. <laughs> um, David... Um, well, let's start with the Armstrong. Howard Armstrong's invention of the regeneration circuit was the first circuit to put Lee DeForest's invention of the radio tube to work. And it stunned Lee DeForest. He was annoyed, he was angered that this young upstart, uh, about 14 years younger than he, had come up with such an extraordinary invention. And he tried to duplicate it. And he couldn't, and he couldn't, and he couldn't. And then he went back through his laboratory notebooks, and he found something that was quite similar to it. Uh, and he said, aha, that's it. And he uh, decided to uh, start a patent infringement suit against uh, Armstrong, and eventually on a legal technicality, and after 20 years, he lost. Uh, Armstrong lost the suit. He lost it in the Supreme Court, not once, but twice. The first time in 1927 and the second time in 1934. And Lita Forrest and Armstrong, the enmity between them. It was, it was e 
hatred uh, that made each of them blind uh, and would send each of them into a rage. Armstrong kept extensive files on DeForest's personal life. In fact, uh, even uh, if I recall, I had uh, uh, one of the two got into... uh the the or, uh, the other's organization doing spy work. Yes, that's right. Armstrong hired a, a private detective uh, to uh, go and get a job with arms with DeForest's old company and uh, search around in the back rooms and in the warehouse for equipment. That was one thing. Um, at various points, various courts would assign, uh, say that one or the other had won the, ha- had really the the right to claim the patent as his. Armstrong, at one point, had a banner uh, created with the patent number on it, which he flew from a radio antenna and behind his house in Yonkers, New York, knowing full well that Lee DeForest on a clear day could see it from his house uh, on a bluff in the Bronx. Uh, this was hatred of, of proportions that I've never seen before. And it made each of them blind. Uh, and, and in startling ways and in very discouraging ways. One of the things that I find that interests me as a biographer is that it, what you do is you hold a mirror up not only to these three people, but to yourself and to those around you and to life itself. And you start to see characteristics of each one of us. You start to see the darker angels and the brighter angels of our, of our character, which motivate us. And sometimes we yield to the darker angels, and we're not very happy about those times if we have a conscience. But we, we yield nonetheless. And so it's, it becomes almost a frightening process, because what you're doing is holding up a mirror to these people's lives, but you're also from time to time, seeing your own reflection and reflections of those whom you love around you in that that mirror. And that gets uh, both instructive and a little frightening at the same time. Now, Edward Armstrong, the genius, was, was of course, working on this regeneration circuit for AM radio. That's amplitude modulation, which we are engaged in right now. But let us not forget that he is also the father of frequency modulation, which we know as FM. Absolutely. And this brings him to the second um, legal battles that he had, set of legal battles that he had, not with Lee DeForest, but with uh, a friend of his, who was David Sarnoff. They had been very good friends, um, close friends at times. Uh, in their lives. And, uh, and so what you get to watch in that case is the devolution of a friendship into, once again, uh, awful 
frightening instances of hatred. But let and, me go to... And battling RCA, the giant, and of course Edwin Armstrong lost. Absolutely. And uh, before I get into that, though, let's, let me just talk about the nature of the invention, which uh, is, is uh, such an extraordinary one. Um, Sarnoff had always expressed an interest that somebody would come up with a uh, little black box which would clarify uh, the uh, air uh, and make uh, radio reception clear. AM radio reception uh, in the 20s was not what we know of it today. Um, it was a very scratchy and unpleasant affair compared to what, what it is today. What uh, Armstrong came up with was not a box, but a room uh, with a, an entire transmission and receiving system in it. And this was frequency modulation. On Christmas Eve, 1933, Howard Armstrong picked David Sarnoff up at his offices in Rockefeller Center, where RCA was then located, and drove him up to uh, Columbia University, where uh, Armstrong maintained his laboratory. And he demonstrated for him FM. Sarnoff said, this isn't a, this isn't an invention. This is a revolution. That's what we're dealing with, a revolution. And it's that uh, frightening as well. And the reason why it was frightening was because, because in, by 1933, the country was in the grips of the worst depression it had ever known. And RCA, a manufacturing company, also owned NBC, a broadcasting company. The only thing that was making money uh, in radio was radio broadcasting. Re manufacturers were going belly up. They were going bankrupt. Mm -hmm. But NBC was making the money that was keeping uh, RCA going. And Sarnoff depended on the revenues of broadcasting, not only to keep his company going, but to uh, also provide m revenue to fund what he wanted to be the next great invention in the radio art, which was television. And speaking of television, when you uh, ask who invented television, they'll look it up in an encyclopedia, and it's Zjorkin, that uh, very uh, unusual name. But there was another man involved, a fellow Utah. His name was Philo Farnsworth. And there would have been no television if it hadn't been for Philo. But Zjorkin and RCA, they wanted to claim this as their own and keep this guy out, and he single-handedly fought RCA and won. Yes, he did. And it was the one time that an individual, a lone inventor, beat um, RCA. And when it happened, uh, it, the case went to the Circuit Court of Appeals. And RCA's lawyers and RCA's patent attorney, um, a man named Otto Scherer, were very upset. In fact, you say in the book right here, Farnsworth and his lawyers met with Otto Scherer, head of RCA's patent department, to sign the royalty agreement. 
Cher made a brief speech about the momentous nature of what he was about to do. They had never done this before. Many who listened noted that when the document was passed to Cher for his signature, his eyes had filled with tears. <laughs> yes, that's, absol that's absolutely right. That, that's exactly right. And uh, that story was corroborated for me by uh, two uh, people who were uh, witnesses to it, and it's a legendary, it's actually a legendary story. Um, but Scherer said to Sarnoff, you've got to capitulate on this. And what they offered uh, Farnsworth was a lump sum of money, mm -hmm. and he wouldn't take it. He said, no, I'll sell you the rights to this invention on a per-unit production a basis. A license agreement. And that was, and that is what, um, what he did. And it was the only time that uh, anybody beat RCA at that game. But, and here's the important thing, um, RCA still took all the credit for the for the uh, for the invention of television and I think rightly so in many ways um, the driving force behind electronic television was actually Zaworkin Zaworkin had wanted he invented this. the image orthicon right right and um, it was uh, that and it was that and other inventions which he and other engineers pioneered which made electronic television possible you have to understand listeners are going to have to think about this for a moment in the uh in the 20s people were talking about television but they were cumbersome things they were about the size of a small mid-sized buick <laughs> uh they were huge uh huge contraptions and they were mechanical contraptions so uh and they were based on a revolving uh wheel which was called a nip cow disc and uh they were huge contraptions and they simply would not work well it reminds me of the the fight between CBS and NBC. Absolutely. And the flying wheel. And that's, that's right, which was, that was for color television right. in the f late 40s and early 50s. And again, you see the difference between Sarnoff as the leader of mm -hmm. RCA and others. Sarnoff was backing the electron in both instances. He backed electronic television and electronic mm -hmm. color TV when the smart money... The, the conventional wisdom was that it wouldn't work in each instance and that it was uh, mechanical contrivances that would work. Now, I think that's uh, so important to understand that Sarnoff had that perspicacity, that vision to see things beyond what others were seeing. If you want to talk about the men who made radio, now is your chance. The book is called Empire of the Air, The Men Who Made Radio with author Tom Lewis. And we'll go to the phones as soon as we come back. And we have open forum right now. We have open boards. So now is your chance to get in. 1-800-222-KABC. This is 790 KABC Talk Radio. I'm Ray Brain. You lay your bets and then you pay the price. 
excitement, drama, laughter, and love. We'll have all of that on the Edwards Desperation Dating Service of the Air. I am Steve Edwards. Join me as people seeking people get together. That's Monday from 3 to 5 in the afternoon here on KABC. Then on Sports Talk, 5 to 7, we'll talk about the NFL playoffs. We'll have guests, the world-famous 620 trivia question, and, of course, your calls. So, the Edwards Desperation Dating Service from 3 to 5. Sports Talk from 5 to 7, Monday, right here on 790 KABC Talk Radio. In 1972, scientific researchers placed two items in a large secret vault. One was a crisp $100 bill stuffed inside an old mattress. The other, a U.S. savings bond of equal value. The question, is saving with savings bonds for education actually superior to simply saving money? For 18 years, this top-secret experiment continued in the basement of a man known only as Al. This morning, Al entered the vault, removed both specimens, and proceeded to his local bank. For the savings bond, Al received over $260. For the C-note, Al got uh, four twenties, one ten, and uh, two fives. Apparently, buying bonds for education is better than simply saving money. Experts conjecture that the competitive rates bonds pay played some part in the findings, as well as their tax-free nature when used by certain individuals for education. Nevertheless, the experiment will be reconducted using a new extra-firm mattress. In the meantime, call 1-800-US-BONDS for information. You want it better, you want it fresher, you want it all so nice. Start the new year out with savings from a low price leader. Come to Lucky, get it at Lucky, get it at a low, low price. Start your next meal out with USDA Select 7 Bone or Blade Beef Chuck Roast for just $1.17 a pound. USDA Select T-Bone or Porterhouse Steaks, Beef Loin in the Family Pack are only $2.97 a pound. And frying chicken leg quarters frozen in the five-pound bag are just 49 cents a pound. All prices are good through January 8th with no quantity limits. And you'll find a full-service pharmacy in over 90 lucky stores throughout Southern California, which means that while our pharmacist fills your prescription, you can fill your shopping cart with savings. For the location nearest you, call one 800 83 Lucky. 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 Still the low price leader and more. For the new year, Canyon Hills Club, Anaheim Hills' prestigious retirement community, has decided to extend their special one-cent holiday rent offer until the end of January. That's right. As a New Year's incentive, Canyon Hills Club is offering an entire month's rent for only one cent. It's a great opportunity to stretch a penny further than you might have ever expected and also to see a beautiful place. I love it. So don't wait any longer. A single penny entitles you to see why Canyon Hills Club is the retirement community of choice of Southern California. For only one cent, you'll experience all the luxury and convenience that makes living there so special. Features like spacious apartments, delicious meals, laundry and housekeeping services, licensed on-site assisted living center, a caring staff, and much more. But the really pleasant surprise is how affordable it is to live at Canyon Hills Club. So be penny wise and visit soon. Remember, you only have till the end of January to move in and take advantage of Canyon Hills Club's extended one cent holiday rent offer. For additional information, call 1-800-622-3233. <laughs> ABC Talk Radio time is now 12.36. Sing it, kiddies.
My guest is Tom Lewis, author of Empire of the Air, The Men Who Made Radio. I guess we ought to call you uh, Professor Lewis. <laughs> uh, I never go by the word professor. and I, Doctor? Uh, no, I only use doctor when I'm dealing with a telephone company. I find it gets me a lot of better service if I do. But uh, otherwise, just, just call me Tom. That's, uh, that's uh, fine. Uh, Ansel in Redondo Beach, you're on with Tom Lewis. Go ahead. Good morning, Ray and Tom. Good morning. Hi. I uh, seem to remember that Lee DeForest was a laboratory technician for uh, Thomas Edison when he made his first discovery. Uh, which uh, involved putting a, a metal plate inside of a light bulb. And now, I think you're thinking of uh, Fleming. Uh, I was going to ask you about Fleming, who was a Britisher. Yes, it was Fleming who was the uh, technician for uh, Edison. Um, DeForest never worked uh, for uh, Fleming. Excuse me, for Edison. Oh, okay. I, I yeah. was able to find the information on Fleming. I know that the British to this day call the vacuum tubes uh, Fleming valves. Yeah, that's absolutely right, and with some uh, and with some good reason too. Um, what DeForest did was he took the Fleming valve, which was two elements, and it had a uh, it it had a filament and it had a plate in it. And what he did was he put a third element, which was a grid, between the two elements. And what this did was it enabled him to regulate the flow of the electrons from the filament to the plate. And then came a lot of grids. Screen grids, suppressor grids, mm -hmm. and it went on and on. Still, Some of those tubes had several grids. The was fairly useful as a rectifier uh, in place of the germanium crystals in the crystal set. Absolutely. Yes, and Fleming uh, really deserves more credit uh, than he is, has been given. I do give him considerable credit in my book, and uh, if I were writing a British edition of this book, <laughs> I would add a, I would probably add a chapter on Fleming. I think he's very important. Now, I also recall that uh, Marconi uh, Electronics is one of the larger, or was one of the larger uh, uh, firms in England. Yes, it is. Then go to England instead of uh, staying in Newfoundland, or what became of him? <laughs> I, I'm sorry, who? Uh, Marconi. Oh, uh, Marconi. Marconi uh, was principally based in England, and his uh, company was based there. The American Marconi Company was simply a branch of the uh, original Marconi Company from England, but it's always flourished in England. It's still there in Chatsworth, and as, a, uh, and as a matter of fact, I've uh, done research there. Very good. Ray, you shouldn't neglect uh, to mention that, the, that your people, the amateur radio operators, were also uh, very instrumental in developing radio all through the years, uh, especially in the 30s. They weren't uh, big corporations, but they certainly did uh, come up with all of the... Uh, the amenities. <laughs> Ansel, I, I would never do that, ever. <laughs> I want to, can I add just a little something to that, uh, Ansel? Because I think you're, you're absolutely right. And I don't want to underestimate or give any impression that I'm not uh, lauding the importance of amateur radio people. Th these people are extraordinary. Now, let's just give you an example. At one point, they were given uh, the shortest waves in the spectrum. And it, and it was really sort of the table scraps of the spectrum after the broadcasters had dis 
divided up everything else. And they then created shortwave out of this. And they did it with remarkable efficiency. And I should say, by the way, that Armstrong was part of that. And uh, really, they stunned the world. With I remember the comment at the time was, give them these frequencies, and they will not be able to get out of their own backyard. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it won't bother anyone. Uh, two of the hams that I uh, know of were named Itel and McCullough, and uh, young kids <clears throat> thought that uh, power amplifier tubes were too expensive, so they began to make their own, mm. and became <laughs> one of the most uh, influential electronic companies in California. Well, <laughs> well of course, the hams also invented single <clears throat> sideband. Absolutely correct. And uh, single sideband has not come to a commercial broadcasting. It has, to a certain extent, on international shortwave, but it's uh, a very important tool on communications equipment. Absolutely. Not just hams, but I mean uh, the, the military. Absolutely. As a matter of fact, it was uh, very, very important at the end of the Second World War. Yeah, and Tom, I'd like to tell you that I have used a super regenerative receiver. Oh, you're one of the few. I haven't spoken of that tonight. And I even have the, the old thing yet with, a, with one of the audion tubes burned out in it. But it is the most sensitive receiver ever invented. Yes, it is. And this was, uh, let me just, uh, for the rest of the audience, uh, expand upon what you've just said, Ansel. Uh, the super regenerative receiver was one which took um, <clears throat> a incoming radio signal and uh, magnified it, uh, if you will, by about 200,000 times. Right. Uh, and this had never been heard of before. Um, it accomplished this with, uh, what, you'll forgive me, I think it's only one tube. Yes, uh, indeed. And, and uh, it was a wonderful receiver, but the problem was it was also something of a transmitter, too. Well, so it would uh, wreck your neighbor's uh, reception. Uh, but uh, Armstrong invented this, and I know of one engineer uh, in New Jersey uh, who worked with Armstrong and believes that this circuit still has to be exploited, that there are many uses for it that still can be uh, exploited. And he, by the way, is uh, working to exploit them. I should also uh, finally uh, say that it is part of the IFF of Identify Friend or Foe that is used uh, to identify uh, planes. About that. <laughs> well, excuse me? You're not supposed to talk about that. Uh, well, that's as far as I've talked. <laughs> okay. Tom, uh, keep up the good work. I love technical history, and there should be more of it. Thank uh, you. It's fascinating reading, Ansel, I'll tell you. Uh, I know what I, I'm going to be doing when I get out the air this morning. Uh, Tom Lewis, uh, it's, a, it's a book that has no match as far as I know. Has anybody else done anything like this? No, that's one of the reasons why I wanted to do it. Uh, right. I combed the... Um, I combed libraries, and I couldn't find anything that did this. And uh, I, as a matter of fact, one of the recurring no nightmares I've had in the last year, just before the book was published, was that somebody would say, oh, but have you seen this book? And it was always <laughs> a friend of mine coming in and showing me a book, and the book was my book, and it had been published 20 years before, but it isn't. This is, this is it, and it's, uh, it was a great labor and, and great enjoyment to do it. We'll be right back with Tom Lewis. The book is called Empire of the Air. Not umpire, Empire. <laughs> <laughs> and it's all about the men 
Who Made Radio. This is 790 KBC Talk Radio. I'm Ray Brain. MRI, Magnetic Resonance Imaging. It's the newest and safest way to see inside the human body without surgery. Now, MRI is ideal for aiding in the diagnosis of headaches, back pain, and pain due to sports injuries or accidents. Medical Imaging Center of Southern California is a full-service radiologic facility that specializes in MRI. And it's the only outpatient imaging center in Santa Monica that offers three different MRI choices. For sensitive patients such as the elderly, claustrophobic, and the overweight, Medical Imaging offers the open access MRI. The open access MRI has a unique open air design, providing a quiet and most comfortable atmosphere for patients. Professional care and customized service for sensitive patients, that's what medical imaging is all about. Referral by your physician is necessary, though you may call for information and a free brochure. Call in area code 213-829-9788. Medical Imaging Center of Southern California, 829-9788. The gigantic collectible sale is this weekend at the Pasadena Convention Center. Collectibles of all kinds, from the rarest dolls and teddy bears to the latest artist designs and toys of all kind from antique to the present. Plus, movie and TV memorabilia, books and paper ephemera, advertising items. They have animation cells, postcards in Disneyana, 50,000 square feet of wall-to-wall collectibles exhibited by 300 selected dealers from all over the U.S. and Europe. There are over a million fun things on sale at this gigantic show. Admission is only $5 for all attendees. Admission includes two shows for the price of one, the Great Doll and Bear Show and Sale and the Nostalgia and Collectible Show and Sale. That's this Saturday, 11 a.m. to 6 p.m., Sunday, 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. at the Pasadena Convention Center downstairs, five blocks south of the 210 Freeway and one block east of the Pasadena Freeway at the corner of Green Street and Moringa Avenue in downtown Pasadena. This show and sale is another Doe Wright production. KABC. KABC Talk Radio Time is now 1247. My guest, Tom Lewis, the book Empire of the Air, The Men Who Made Radio. Let's say hello to Hal in Agora. Good morning, Hal. Good morning, Ray and Tom. Good morning. Happy New Year to both of you. Thank you. I was practically asleep when I turned my radio on and you touched the passion of mine the history and uh, the contributors to technology and the events that they brought on. And I seem to recall in my readings, Tom, that uh, when we talk about Armstrong and his FM uh, invention, I recall reading the incident where he was attending a radio or a um, engineering convention in New York or a meeting, a technical mm-hmm. meeting, and a famous mathematician whose name escapes me, because one of the one of the ele- John Renshaw Carson. He he uh, delivered a paper that proved. Am I? Uh, yes, you're right. Correct that, me if I'm wrong in this. He delivered a paper that proved that that FM, FM wouldn't work. FM was impossible. It wouldn't work. <laughs> And as I recall the reading of it, Armstrong didn't understand what he was presenting. That's right. But Armstrong had a 
a feel or a, pragma, a pragmatic side to his nature, and he felt it could be done. And that was what I seem to right. recall. That was an inspiration that got him into uh, developing FM. Is well, that, yes. Let me. Well, let me just tell you what happened was. Uh, Armstrong came up with a an FM system which really didn't work very well, um, and Carson blasted it and said at that time, "Static like the poor will always be with us." <laughs> Those were fighting words for Armstrong. He went back into his laboratory and worked and worked and worked and came up with the revolutionary, and it really changed not only broadcasting to make FM broadcasting, yeah. but made it possible for cellular phones and walkie-talkies in the Second World War and yeah. tank communications in the Second World War and uh, uh, any number of other inventions plus revolutionized communications theory. That's what wideband FM does. Yeah. And, it's, um, and it really turned all of what Carson said on its head. I see. So that, that so you're right in your memory. Okay. And did Carson ever um, uh, recorrect himself or anything like that? No. What he said was that if if you uh, he did write a letter in which he said if uh, I I stand by what I said because I was talking about narrow band FM as opposed to wideband FM. And that was Armstrong, and that's a little too technical to get into here, but that was Armstrong's great advance, was to create wideband FM instead of narrowband FM. Now, in, in AM broadcasting, the thought is to narrow the band. Uh, that is to say, the, the width of uh, the uh, band which means that there will be less to be attacked by the interference in the atmosphere. FM broadcasting, wideband FM broadcasting, widened the band much, much wider than ever before, uh, ever thought possible. And what it did was, yes, a great deal of, of static is there, but it doesn't matter because the band is so wide that the information gets through anyway. Thank you, Hal. You know, it's interesting that we're talking about uh, static-free transmission through FM, but both AM and FM are now being challenged by another form of broadcasting that the FCC is now trying to work out the ground rules for. But by the end of this decade, the turn of the century, there will be digital... Audio broadcasting. Absolutely. Sending out zeros and ones. Mm -hmm. compu computer type language. And uh, there will be absolutely no deterioration of the signal. FM has its, its problems when it comes to buildings in the way, mountains, at cliffs, whatever. And so uh, that signal deteriorates. But uh, with digital audio broadcasting, you can have satellites uh, broadcasting and receiving it on your receiver. You can have uh, ground stations and it'll be uh, either there or not there. That's right. Absolutely. So we're going through another radio yep. revolution, are Absolutely. we not? Absolutely. Yes. We'll be back with Tom Lewis and his book, Empire of the Air, The Men Who Made Radio, in a moment. This is 790 KBC Talk Radio. I'm Ray Brain. <laughs> 
fruit and the air you breathe. This is the rainforest. Every second, another acre is destroyed forever. The World Wildlife Fund needs your help. For information on the Rainforest Rescue Campaign, phone 1-800-CALL-WWF, World Wildlife Fund. Smart folks know that now's the time for planting bare root roses and that Home Club's the place to get them. We have premium quality bare root roses for only $1.98 each. And while you're at it, check out our bare root grapes, berries, and fruit trees too. Plus, pick up your free planting guide that will tell you everything you need to know to get the job done right. At Home Club, you'll save on long-handled garden tools from Union Fork and Hoe like shovels, rakes, and hoes for just $3.19 each. Fertilized steer manure, great for fertilizing your garden, is only 62 cents per cubic foot. And treat your roses right with orthosystemic rose food. Five pounds is just $6.67. Right now is the best time to plant premium quality bare root roses. So remember... The Iraqi war is over, yet conflict continues in the Middle East and elsewhere in the world, including the Soviet disunion. Now, if you need to stay informed despite the declining media coverage, then turn to shortwave radio. Your source for information radio equipment is Affordable Portables. Prices start as low as $39. Now, this week, Affordable Portables has a special offer, the Grundig Traveler 2. Now, I own a Grundig myself, and I know of their superior performance. It covers 19 meters and can be plugged in with an optional AC adapter. It has a time zone indicator which identifies the time and the city being monitored. It also includes a telescopic antenna, headphones, clock alarm, and carrying case. Now you tell them Ray Bream sent you and get this great shortwave radio at $97. Also available, police scanners and a full line of other shortwave radios and antennas. Drop in for a free demo. See their Friday and Sunday LA Times ad. They're open seven days and serving you in Torrance, Westwood, Sherman Oaks, Costa Mesa, Woodland Hills, and Pasadena at 4 South Rosemead Boulevard. Informative and entertaining. 790 KABC Talk Radio. KABC Talk Radio time is now 12.55. My guest, Tom Lewis. The book, Empire of the Air, The Men Who Made Radio. By the way, this is going to be a... Uh, a documentary seen on PBS, right? That's right. Uh, on January 29 at 9 o'clock, uh, oh, I guess on KCET is mm -hmm. at the uh, mm -hmm. educational station here, yes. it will be on. And I should tell you that it's made by Ken Burns, who's an old friend of mine. He's the one who did the Civil War documentary. Right, right. And Ken and I um, worked on this one together. I was the producer of it with Ken and another wonderful fellow named Morgan Wesson. And then Jeff Ward, uh, one of uh, Ken's writers, the one who wrote the mm. Civil War, uh, took my book and made it into a film script. And it's a remarkable documentary film. Great. All right, I'll be watching January 29th. Tom Lewis is my guest, and Peter, you're on with Tom Lewis. Go ahead. Hi, Mr. Lewis. Hi. How are you? I 
enjoyed your book. It took me a long time to get through it because so many of the places you touch on, like Pupin Hall at Columbia University, yes. is a place that I attended, and Pupin Hall was in the basement at the time, but now it's just a, a, a plaque which right. is where it was uh, invented. Uh, I, I wanted to, I know you, you remember everything, but in the two Supreme Court decisions by Cardoza. Yes. Uh, well, one, the second one was by Cardoza. Cardoza, the point was by the Supreme Court, uh, he did not fully uh, interpret correctly what the patent infringement case was about. And not until much, much later, when uh, the... Uh, the Judge Palmieri in New York uh, reinterpreted and studied it. Did the case finally go in favor of Armstrong and his wife uh, became a very wealthy woman? Well, I'm afraid um, I'm afraid you're conflating two different cases there. The first one with Cardozo was the Supreme Court decision of 1934, which gave. Uh, decided that uh, Lee DeForest was the inventor of the regeneration circuit. Yes. The, the second case that you referred to with Judge Palmieri, which is a very, very important one, was <coughs> uh, decided in 1957, and it was uh, Armstrong, or the estate of Armstrong, the uh, Emerson radio and judge palmieri who was a district court judge in new york city uh decided the case and did a superb job i mean it's a yeah. one it's a i mean in terms of legal scholarship it's an excellent decision and the test of that decision is that it was reaffirmed unanimously by the circuit court of appeals uh and at that point uh, the Emerson Corporation decided to capitulate and not contest it to the Supreme Court. Yes, and the last one they held out was Motorola, but they finally uh, conceded. As well. well, they didn't really. They didn't concede until they got a nudge from the Supreme Court of the United States That's in 1967, in October 1967, uh, 13 years after uh, uh, Armstrong's uh, death. Uh, Motorola finally was forced uh, to uh, say that Armstrong was the rightful inventor of FM. There are two things the, uh, that I'd just like to mention. First of all, the remarkable effect that this communicative point, when the United States government decided that all litigation had to stop in favor of World War I. Uh, and, and, th and that's what they did. Absolutely. Uh, uh, Peter, we're out of time. I have okay. to leave you. Thank you very much, and good luck. All right, thank, thank you, Peter. We'll be back with Tom Lewis. And, of course, the book is called Empire of the Air, The Men Who Made Radio. We'll break for the news, and we'll be right back. 790 Talk Radio, KABC, Los Angeles. From ABC News, I'm Marty McNeely. South Korea is the next stop on President Bush's trade mission to Pacific Rim nations. A small band of mainly middle-aged demonstrators marched in central Seoul to the U.S. Embassy Saturday to protest the visit. 
but they were met by hundreds of riot police, regular police, and plain clothes police guarding the approaches to the embassy before Mr. Bush's visit begins on Sunday. There were no student demonstrators, perhaps because Seoul universities are closed for the winter holidays. President Bush struck a deal with officials in Singapore Friday. ABC's John Bascom is covering the trip and has the latest details. Singapore's Prime Minister Goh says his nation has agreed in principle to allow more U.S. military troops to be based here, troops which have to be relocated from the Philippines. We welcome the presence of America uh, in terms of security in this area. President Bush said the U.S. would stay as long as it's welcome, but indicated the forces should not intimidate anyone in the region. We are not in a, in a war frame of mind. We're in a peace frame of mind. Details on the move of the logistics unit still have to be negotiated. John Bascom, ABC News, with the president in Singapore. More news after this. Imagine if drug abusers said exactly what was on their minds. Hi, Jim. Uh, you got a minute? Only if it's a quick minute, Steve. Well, it's the Anderson file. We should talk about it. Don't no, listen, I'd love to, uh, but I was just about to snort some coke. What'd you say? Snort coke? That's right. Cocaine. You know, blow, nose candy. I do it all day. Not your typical office conversation, but consider this. One in seven working Americans uses illegal drugs. But what about the Anderson file? Tell you what, let me duck into the men's room, do a couple of lines, and I'll be right with you. Of course, drug abusers aren't this candid about their problem. But sooner or later, their problem speaks for itself. Okay, got my head cleared. Now, about that Peterson file. Anderson file, Jim. What can you do for someone who needs help? Give them this number, 1-800-662-HELP. That's 1-800-662-HELP. It's the number of the National Drug Abuse Helpline. It's free, it's confidential, and it just may be the help they need. This message brought to you by the Partnership for a Drug-Free America. On Wall Street, stocks closed higher Friday with the Dow Jones Industrials ending above the 3,200 mark for the first time. Some analysts say the stock market may be due for a correction soon. Last month's retail sales were slower than the year before, except for one area. We asked ABC's Richard Davies to tell us about it. Parents may have skimped on presents for themselves, but not for their kids. Toys did surprisingly well in many outlets. The biggest children's retailer, Toys R Us, reported strong December sales. Several big discount outlets, such as Target and Walmart, said they did exceptionally well with toys. Bail has been set at $100,000 for actor Adam Rich. He was jailed after allegedly throwing himself down a flight of stairs at a drug rehab center near Los Angeles in an attempt to get pain-killing drugs. Rich, who as a child actor was a regular on the TV sitcom Eight is Enough, also faces charges that he took a drug-filled syringe from a hospital, broke into a pharmacy, and violated probation on a drunken driving conviction. The anti-abortion group Operation Rescue says it'll target Buffalo, New York for its next campaign starting in April. Randall Terry is the group's leader. The goal of this spring's event is to rid the Buffalo area of two baby killers. This event is being started so that by the time it's over, there will be two less baby killers in this area. If it takes a week, a month, or six months, it doesn't matter. Operation Rescue staged a six-week protest in Wichita last summer, during which more than 2,700 demonstrators were arrested in connection with blocking the entrance to three abortion clinics. The future of the Mideast peace talks may hang in the balance due to Israeli plans to deport a dozen Palestinians who are accused of killing Israeli soldiers and fellow Palestinians. The PLO meeting in Tunis says it would be a violation of the Geneva Convention. 
A 300-mile police chase ended Friday about 20 miles south of Los Angeles when a stolen car driven by a man suspected of killing a good Samaritan ran out of gas on a freeway. Police officers shot and killed the suspect when he pointed a sawed-off shotgun toward them as they approached his car. This is ABC News. Lou Gehrig was known as the Iron Man of Baseball, and his fans thought he was indestructible. Until a fatal neuromuscular disease, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, prematurely ended his career and his life. Help win the one Lou couldn't, called the ALS Association. Phone 1-800-782-4747. For the ABC Information Network, I'm Marty McNeely. You're listening to 790. Talk Radio. Again, Ray Bream with you until 5 a.m. this morning. KBC Talk Radio time is now 105. Tom Lewis is my guest. The book is called Empire of the Air, The Men Who Made Radio. And um, I think we ought to go back to the phones, but the, the, the men who made radio, you, you talked about the three prominent ones, but there are others that had something to do. We, we mentioned Fleming. Uh, give me what, what Hertz did. I mean, we went from megacycles to megahertz. And, uh, <laughs> I never got over that. I mean, it's nice to remember Hertz, but I, to me, they're still megacycles or kilocycles. Well, um, what, Hertz, <clears throat> what Hertz did was he uh, took some uh, rather abstract but very, very important uh, mathematical equations uh, created by a man named Clark Maxwell, a Scotsman, uh, which uh, really told us that there was an electromagnetic spectrum out there uh, and that everything on it from light to radio waves was part of this uh, spectrum. And Hertz created an apparatus which actually proved Clark Maxwell's equations to be correct. And what that was, was a very crude uh, transmitter on one side of a room and a very crude uh, aerial, which was simply a loop aerial that came very close together, about the, maybe the width of a finger apart. And as he uh, set a, an electrical impulse off at one side of the room, you could see a spark jump across the two points of that aerial on the other side of the room. That was what Marconi exploited to create wireless telegraphy. Now there's a mother, another man that uh, we, we uh, know little about, most people. We always think of uh, Thomas Alva Edison. But this man certainly made radio as we know today possible. His name is Tesla. Yes. Um, <clears throat> well, Nikola Tesla was really a person who was much more interested in power 
than anything else. Uh, what Tesla did create was and invent was alternating current. And without alternating current, we wouldn't have radio as we know it today. Yes, and I because, think Because uh, there would be no such thing as a transformer. Right, and he certainly speculated, by the way, about radio transmission. Now, there's a rock group named Tesla, which prints prominently on its album that Tesla invented the radio. Mm and cites a Supreme Court decision of whatever it is, 1942, uh, to that effect, uh, that, that Tesla and not Marconi is the inventor of the radio. What I am suggesting in my book is something a little different. All right, let's go so. back to the phones. Mike in Pico Rivera, you're on with Tom Lewis. Good morning. Oh, Mr. Lewis. Uh, good morning. Hi, Good morning. Mike. Uh, you know, I'm 73 years old, and I remember that in the late uh, 20s, maybe 27, uh, my dad had bought a Atwater Kent radio, the the upright uh, console type, I guess you would call it now. And uh, uh, I used to listen to the, the radio and the stories and, and uh, Sherlock Holmes and all that on that radio. Mm -hmm. Mr. Atwater Kent, what did he have, uh, what did he put into the, the, the radio he himself? Well, Atwater Kent was a really an interesting guy. Um, Arthur Atwater Kent was actually his name, and he cre he uh, took uh, circuits which were in the public domain and put them into uh, radios. He did not, by the way, use Armstrong's regeneration circuit because he didn't want to pay for the patent license okay. for it. He started in Philadelphia in 19, about 1921. His company before that had been a company which manufactured uh, little flag holders to put on your car uh, to show your patriotism during the First World War, and they used to have he used to sell automobile accessories. It was a he had a little factory on Stenton Avenue in in Philadelphia, and uh, he got into the radio craze as so many people did, and he created radios which were. Beautiful, absolutely spectacularly beautiful a, radios. A green light on it that disappeared and and yes, a cat's eye. Uh huh. Yes, that cat's eye tuner that was called. Born in eighteen, so uh, I remember all this. Now, yes. Another uh, question, uh, Mr. Hertz, was he from Chicago? No. Oh. No, Heinrich Hertz was from Germany. Oh, I see. Yes. Now another question that sure. I have. There was a Mexican electrical engineer that was uh, told to me many, many years ago that he had actually made invented the picture tube. How true is this? This Cardoso, who is he and where was he from? I'm sorry, I just, I, I can't tell you. Uh, I, I've not heard that story. Um, uh, he could well have had something to do with the development of the picture tube, but I, I couldn't answer you. I'm sorry, to You've exhausted my knowledge. <laughs> All right, Mike, <laughs> thank you. Thank you. In the epilogue of your book, you talk about the empire in decline and the death of RCA. Yes. Sad, isn't it? <clears throat> Sad. Oh, I think it's awful. I think it's, I think it's dreadful. I think it's, it's, it's part of what's wrong with the country today. Now, Sarnoff, as you say, was a visionary. Absolutely. And time and again, Sarnoff... And I'm quoting from your book, had done all these things in lieu of uh, 
of what uh, the shareholders did not want. They wanted instant profits, and he told them, uh, you got to wait. Uh, Sarnoff alone had faced down contentious shareholders who complained that their dividends lagged behind those of other large corporations. Always, David Sarnoff had stressed the future of the industry, funneling money into research and development that would assure them greater profits later on. Yes, well, uh, Sarnoff thought of the electron and the electronics industry as really uh, a factory by a big well. Think of that for a moment. And the well was filled with electrons. And what Sarnoff thought was that when you created one invention, then you went back to the well for another invention. And the first invention he thought of was radio. The second invention he thought of was television. The third invention was color television. Uh, and you just went back and got another invention out of, the, out of this great, enormous well. But what happened after Sarnoff left um, RCA in 1966, and he finally retired, um, the company went into the hands of his son. And it became a conglomerate, which was, of course, the big word in the 1950s. It means um, things heaped together. Uh, and it, it was pretty soon RCA was making rugs. They had a carpet company. They uh, had a, they owned uh, banquet foods. They were making chicken pot pies. They had, they had the largest chicken farms in America. And yet none of their technocrats could pluck a chicken. Uh, they had um, a realty company in New York City. They owned Hertz, um, Hertz automobiles. Well, pretty soon, you know, and while the profits rose in these things, that was fine. But when the businesses turned sour, pretty soon RCA wasn't doing anything very well. And they were not reinvesting in the thing that made RCA great. That's electronic research. Absolutely. Absolutely. And finally, uh, the company passed from Sarnoff's son, Robert Sarnoff, into the hands of a man named Andy Conrad. Well, he hadn't paid his income tax for three years. And uh, when that fact was found out. It took about 11 months. He was dismissed. And then it passed to the, to the uh, hands of a man named Bottom Line Ed Griffiths. And he said, judge me quarter by quarter. They used to call him Bottom Line Ed because he wanted to be judged by the bottom line. What that meant was we've got to have profits rising every quarter. Often with Sarnoff, the profits would be flat because he was taking money and reinvesting it back into his inventions. So by 1986, the once proud, gigantic radio corporation of America, it was dead. Absolutely. The, thir the next person who took it over after Griffiths was fired, uh, when the, he was judged by the bottom line quarter to quarter, and the bottom lines were flat, and so they fired him. Uh, then um, the next person who took it over was a man named Thornton Bradshaw. 
and he had been a, a member of the board of directors of RCA, and he moved immediately to get rid of the carpet company and the banquet foods and the Hertz rental and all of these things went. But then what he did was he sold the company to General Electric, and it was a sweetheart deal for General Electric. And what happened was it fell into the hands of General Electric and its president, who is named Jack Welch. Now, it's no secret that people call Jack Welch Neutron Jack, that when he gets finished with something, only all the people are gone and the buildings are standing. And I live in Schenectady, New York, I uh, live close to Schenectady, New York, and I can tell you that's exactly what's happened. Almost all of the great GE works is closed down, and only the buildings are standing. And as a matter of fact, they're tearing them down, too. Of course, uh, when we think of Rockefeller Center, we always thought of the jewel in Rockefeller Center. That was the RCA building, the Absolutely. home of NBC, and Studio 6H, and the NBC Symphony Orchestra, and all that went with it. What's it called now? It's called the GE Building. Oh, boy. And it has, uh, it, it used to have a, a huge glowing R, C, and A. Now it has... In yellow letters? No, no, in red letters. Were they red? It red. Now it has ugly orange letters <laughs> uh, saying GE. However, uh, you should take heart, at least I do, uh, because so many other tall buildings have grown up around it, nobody can see the GE anyway, <laughs> so it doesn't matter. It's a sad story, and even uh, they they spun off uh, RCA Victor, which was uh, part of the company. Yes, it's it's a German firm that owns RCA Victor now. Yes, Bertelsmann uh, or whatever. And uh, Thompson uh, took over a lot of the consumer electronics. Everything it was just carry on uh, to be picked over by whatever uh, whatever uh, birds were vultures were flying by and the vultures really did a number on it so RCA is really a memory now and this is a very sad thing because it's sad not for nostalgia reasons forget nostalgia it's sad because it says a lot about our country and where it is failing it's failing because people are looking at the bottom lines and quarters to quarters. Would, and the question has to be, would it be better to have a flat, a flat bottom line for one quarter or two quarters or four or five or eight quarters and still keep hundreds of thousands of people employed doing something that is better than way we are employing them today, which is uh, dishing out hamburgers and making beds. Uh, we are the great service economy now. We, we let, literally let, Japan become the electronics leader in the world. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's just no, there's no question about it. And um, uh, we used to deride the Japanese and say theirs was a parasitic technology that they had simply taken our technology. But it's, but now Japan is the leader. I was in Japan in 1950, and I remember the first commercial radio station that went on the air, J-O-K-R. took a tour of it, and I looked at the equipment, and it was a, a replica, a direct copy of RCA equipment. RCA 44BX microphones with a little red signature and the sweeping RCA on it. Only, and I had to get up close to, to make sure that it 
it wasn't RCA, it said in, instead NEC. But it was an exact replica of RCA equipment, microphones, control boards, turntables, everything. It looked like RCA. The Japanese revered David Sarnoff, which is also very interesting. You talk about uh, Mashusta who came over. Yes, and uh, Mashusta said uh, that when, when David Sarnoff re retired, he said, you are the bravest man of our generation. And he meant that, and he meant it from the point of view of what David Sarnoff was willing to do. David Sarnoff was willing to, to bet the entire company, bet the entire company on color television or bet the entire company on television. Plowing profits year in, year, year out, back into television research. And it took a great deal of time and energy and effort to do that, but Cu he did it. A couple of years ago, I took a tour of a, a fantastic facility, uh, the Armed Forces Radio and Television Service over in Sun Valley now. And uh, I, w I was amazed when I went through this, this great installation. This is an arm of the federal government, of the military. And most of the equipment was Sony. Does that tell you something? Yeah. We'll be right back it's with depressing. Tom Lewis. It is depressing. Tom Lewis, the book is called Empire of the Air, The Men Who Made Radio. This is 790 KBC Talk Radio. I'm Ray Brain. This is Merrill Schindler. Congratulations, you've made it to 1992. And if you're like me, you can no longer fit into the pants you wore in 1991. What are we going to do? Well, this weekend, I'll share the best and worst of the diets with you, from the sublimely sensible to the ridiculously improbable. Losing weight is my number one New Year's resolution, and I bet it's yours as well. Coming up this afternoon from 4 to 7 on Dining Out with Merrill Schindler, right here on 790 KBC Talk Radio. If I'm not high, man, I'm not living. I have the feeling my body is just sort of falling apart. So I do a little coke, maybe some reds. I'm revving. Every little ache and pain takes it out of me. Crash, no way. Look, there's always stuff on the street to keep you going. So I take my blood pressure pills and my arthritis medicine. And, of course, I always take my tranquilizers. I get upset so easily these days. The drugs make my day. The drugs get me through the day. Drug abuse isn't just found on the streets. Drug abuse and misuse occur among nearly 75% of California's seniors, too. Make sure the older people you love understand and follow instructions when taking any prescription or non-prescription medication. And be sure to have all prescriptions filled from the same pharmacy. A pharmacist who knows all the medication you're taking can help prevent inadvertent drug misuse. This message is brought to you in the hope of saving lives by the California Pharmacists Association. Attention golf fans. If you love golf, especially international golf, here's an upcoming event tailor-made just for you. Destination Australia. It's the Gimme Australia Golf Tour, April 25th through May 8th. Brought to you by Destination South Pacific, Northwest Airlines, and Hyatt Hotels. This two-week golf tour will allow you to play on six different championship courses in Australia while enjoying Australia 
at its finest. All courses appeal to both high and low handicappers. You'll play Sydney's New South Wales Club, Sanctuary Cove, Alice Springs Country Club for Outback Fun, the Royal Melbourne Golf Club, home of the Australian Open. It's the Gimme Australia Golf Tour, sure to become one of golf's finest events. To reserve your place on this world-class tour, call the professionals at Destination South Pacific at 1-800-477-0377. That's 1-800-477-0377 for the Gimme Australia Golf Tour, April 25th through May 8th. The gigantic collectible sale is this weekend at the Pasadena Convention Center. Collectibles of all kinds, from the rarest dolls and teddy bears to the latest artist designs and toys of all kind from antique to the present. Plus, movie and TV memorabilia, books and paper ephemera, advertising items. They have animation cells, postcards in Disneyana, 50,000 square feet of wall-to-wall -wall collectibles exhibited by 300 selected dealers from all over the U.S. and Europe. There are over a million fun things on sale at this gigantic show. Admission is only $5 for all attendees. Admission includes two shows for the price of one, the Great Doll and Bear Show and Sale and the Nostalgia and Collectible Show and Sale. That's this Saturday, 11 a.m. to 6 p.m., Sunday, 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. at the Pasadena Convention Center downstairs, five blocks south of the 210 Freeway and one block east of the Pasadena Freeway at the corner of Green Street and Moringa Avenue in downtown town, Pasadena. This show and sale is another Doe Wright production. KBC Talk Radio time is now 125. is Tom Lewis, the book Empire of the Air, The Men Who Made Radio. Let's say hello to Sarah in the Harbor District. Good morning, Sarah. Good morning, and uh, I'm very interested in your program. Good morning. Good morning. And I think I'll buy Empire of the Air. I've heard some of the stories about the men who did uh, create radio, but I often wondered what my father or my grandfather did in England. They had the radio relay broadcast uh, thing. The franchises, I guarantee, uh, I expect. When I was a small girl, we had great big receivers to get the BBC broadcast and then ran it by direct line to everybody's houses. Hmm. And my uncle Robinson, he had the same uh, franchise in uh, South Wales. He extended his all over the world, I believe, and then hmm. he was received again. But um, it was very interesting to me to find out what my parents did and grandparents did. <laughs> <laughs> I'm fascinated by that. I know of nothing like that in the United States. Well, I often wondered whether music was anything like that. Well, uh, music actually actually is a development of F in its early stages was a development of FM. Um, we had this in 1936, I believe. Um, well, I don't think it could be the same uh, because Muzak was see Muzak was actually uh, was actually a receiver which picked up what's called a sub carrier of an FM signal, uh, which is that an FM signal can carry not only um, the, the main station but can uh, main bit of information but can carry an entirely different broadcast on the same signal uh -huh. and uh, that's called a subcarrier and uh, Muzak was using that 
maybe we did that. We received the BBC, and then we could have the home program as well. We received mm. two two um, channels to the where we had these receivers, and then you subscribed to the service. So the the people ran a direct line to your house because the houses didn't have electricity at that time. Mm-hmm. The council houses. Oh, well, you just wow, I'm fascinated by that. I, I, there, I must tell you that there, uh, because you said you were interested in buying my book, and I'm flattered by that. But I must tell you, I'd, I'd be victim of, I'd be, you would be a victim of false advertising if oh. I didn't make a disclaimer. I don't have anything about that in it. All right, sir. Thank you. Thank you. you uh, George in Glendale. Good morning, George. You're on with Tom Lewis. Hi, Ray. I haven't talked to you for a long time. I'm your cellist friend from the NBC Symphony. Oh, yes. I wanted to ask your friend and guest, Tom, is it you were mentioning all about Sonoff getting credit for what other people had done in patents? He is given the sole credit for creating the NBC Symphony and bringing Toscanini. Is that an accurate assessment? I think it's pretty... <clears throat> excuse me, George. I think it's pretty accurate. Um, Sarnoff was very interested in... Uh, recovering something which had gone out of commercial radio in the 30s. And that is that commercial radio in the 30s had become really just a medium for for conveying advertising. Uh, The golden age of radio uh, was really a, a method of conveying advertisements. A lot of those quote, golden age of radio shows were really shows which were created by uh, advertising agencies. Um, so Sarnoff wanted to recover some of the luster of what he thought broadcasting should be as a public service. And so in, in Christmas uh, night, 1937... Uh, My father was in the orchestra that night. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, well, then you, you, you can take over the story probably better than I can. No, I just wanted to know if, if he really deserves full credit. Well, I think he does. And then he also had the... Uh, uh, the person who was essentially the agent, uh, but that's a misnomer. Uh, and I've forgotten the fellow's name, who worked very hard and assiduously to get the orchestra Shot together. Enough. Yeah, that's right, yes. He was a critic of the New York Post. Right. And as I have said to you, George, uh, the maestro and uh, the, uh, yeah. the the great man that he was, what a temper he had. Yeah, I know, but it was fun. I enjoyed every minute of it. And and it was Studio 8H. 8H, not 6H. And I have one more question. How did Mr. Sarnoff get the title of general? Well, um, he earned it. And uh, very often it said that he didn't earn it, but but he really did. And let me tell you how. He, uh, He became a colonel in the United States Reserves uh, in 1926. He was very proud of becoming uh, associated with the military. Anti-Semitism had kept him out of the Navy. It prevented him from getting a commission in the United States Navy in World War I when he fully deserved one. Um, and uh, he, he put his talents to the war... Uh, the war uh, um, effort is still working for Marconi Corporation. But anyway, um, Sarnoff really 
deserved uh, this. He set up the communications for D-Day, that is to say, the reporting of the uh, landing operations and the military operations of uh, the uh, Allied forces on D-Day. And this was an enormous logistical task. It required somebody of iron will and even a little ruthlessness to get that job done in record time. And he did it. And uh, that was why he, Eisenhower, General Eisenhower, recommended him for a promotion to general. Now, what was different was there were many other people who were, in a sense, breveted out of the army with that rank. Uh, but... Sarnoff insisted upon keeping the rank, and then later, in the 50s, as his, self, as his thirst for aggrandizement grew, uh, Sarnoff uh, wanted to have his rank elevated once again. To, if he was a general, why not become a major general? And so that was when he, he got uh, carried away. And some people would say, and legitimately, that perhaps that he was carried away by insisting that he be called uh, general. But he had every right to that title, just as another man, Edwin Howard Armstrong, had the right to be called Major Armstrong because he was breveted out of the United States Army after the First World War with that title. Very good. Thank you, George. Thank you. Uh, you say in the book that uh, DeForest had his laboratory on North Highland Avenue, right here in Los Angeles. Yes, that's right. Um, <clears throat> he did, one of his laboratories. Uh, he, had, he had more than one. He had so many laboratories <laughs> and companies, it's hard for me to keep them uh, straight, but I believe that one was during about the time of the Second World War, or perhaps a little after, or perhaps a little before. He had a laboratory which was on North Highland Avenue. It was actually uh, um, in the same building as a warehouse, and it was simply uh, simply a couple of rooms. He, his, um, this was a man whose brain and future lay behind him. Uh, he really had, really was of no consequence. He was really a relic from the past by this time. It was a very sad thing, the end of uh, DeForest's life. Uh, I'm, I really do feel bad about it. And yes, he was a rogue. Yes, he was a roué. Yes, you can say he was a charlatan. Uh, yes, to all of those things, but he was also the person uh, responsible for creating the, the, single, the single most important invention in the history of electronics. Uh, the Audion tube. Absolutely. Stan, good morning. You're on with Tom Lewis. Good morning, Tom and Ray. Good morning. Good morning. I'm wondering how uh, John Hayes Hammond Jr. fits into this book. John Hayes Hammond, Jr. Uh, John Hayes Hammond, Jr. does not fit into the book. Uh, what I, and he was a person who was associated with, um, at least I have run across his name on more than one occasion uh, for his association with um, Howard Armstrong and also uh, for his association with uh, Hazeltine. But uh, he does not fit in the book uh, 
because I think the best answer is because I was really focusing on these three people. All right, Stan, thank you. Uh, Joe in Huntington Beach, good morning. You're on with Tom Lewis. Good morning, Ray. And good morning. Good morning. I, I want to buy your book. Uh, I'm one of the women who made radio. Oh, wonderful. <laughs> I'm very, uh, there's, an, there's one whom I interviewed extensively for my book, a woman named Gertrude Tyne, uh, who was an engineer, and uh, whom uh, you'll, I hope you'll get a chance to see on television because she's in the film, which will be shown on the 29th of January. of that. Excuse me? I've been in since 1948 when I started putting radios together. Uh-huh. And uh, I went, uh, when I went to Japan, the one thing I wanted to do was go to the Sony plant. Uh-huh. And it was so far superior because by that time I was working on color TV. And it just seems a shame that the uh, United States can't keep her places. Uh, well, we don't have the uh, people like the Sarnoffs anymore. That's the that's uh, the real problem. Oh, is that what the problem is? Well, I think it's a uh, it's partly the problem. I think it's a um, a failure of will perhaps. That that could also be said as well. But um, I'm I'm I think my book makes it clear my my opinions on this this matter too. All right, thank you, Joe, and let's thank take, you very much. Take another call. We have Charles on the line. Charles in Long Beach. Good morning, Charles. Good morning. You're on with Tom Lewis here on KABC. Good morning, Tom and Ray. I got interested uh, in my early youth building crystal sets, and from there went to ham radio and up the ladder. But what I'm wondering about uh, who invented the early the first crystal set. I don't know. Well, uh, there were a number of people. <clears throat> there was a man named Colonel Dunwoody, uh, who uh, was one of the first ones to use uh, a crystal uh, and develop the crystal. Uh, there were. It was a, essentially a technology which evolved, um, and there weren't any dramatic leaps in it. Of course, you can say this, but then you can say, well, the crystal was really the first solid-state receiver, too. Yeah, it was the first. Uh, and, and it was. It, and um, it was, of, of course, has been exploited a lot more since. But, uh, it was a diode without a, without a grid. That's, that's absolutely right. And uh, so the, uh, the crystal was a reliable method. And it was actually at the beginning, I should say it was, and, and Dunwoody should get a lot of the credit for the first crystal mm -hmm. development. Um, was, at it the later, was it later combined with, with a, a simple tube? Um, not to my knowledge, no. No. I have I, vague I, me memories of seeing uh, people junk all those early crystal sets and always look back and say, my God, well, I'd love to have some of those early antiques. Yes. Of course, they've disappeared, totally disappeared. Well, what it was, it, what they were scrapped, a lot of them were scrapped for one tube regeneration sets that owed their development to... They, they uh, never did produce one that would actually uh, uh, drive a speaker, did they? No. Yeah. No, they didn't. Uh, the closest they came was to put the earphones 
into a bowl, and then you could listen uh, maybe a foot away. I see. I see. <laughs> and it would echo, you know, the sounds would echo around the bowl. And I, and I guess part of the efficiency of the set was really how long is the antenna. Right, exactly. A lot to do with it. Absolutely. Well, it was a lot of fun. Right? Well, thank you. Great start. I, I'm, I'm going to get your book. Thanks a lot. Thank uh, you, Tom. I appreciate it. Thank you, Charles. Thank Our phone number is 1-800-222-KBC. Laurie in Los Angeles. Good morning. You're on with Tom Lewis. Good morning, Ray and Good Tom. Morning. Good morning, Laurie. Good to you both. A question. In how far was Lee DeForest involved in the development of television? I, I'm sorry. Uh, how far was he involved in uh, the development of the television? Anything appreciable? He, well, I'll tell you what he wanted to do. And, and it's a curious thing because here's the person who created the the the, the invention that really kickstarted the electronic age. That is the uh, vacuum tube. Mm -hmm. But he turned to mechanical television. He backed a mechanical television system, uh, which of course uh, was not to. Be. Um, so, uh, and later he became uh, involved in at least gathering some money from a company called the American Television Company in uh, Chicago. Uh -huh. And they produced a set called the DeForest 44. But as the company went bankrupt, uh, DeForest not only got any money from the thing, but he also got all of the complaints that the DeForest 44s weren't working. So I'll tell you my reason for asking. In fact, you came up with the letters involved, ATL, American Television Lab. That's I right. For them. That's absolutely right. Ago. Yes, so you were thinking of that. Uh -huh. So that's, that's your answer right there. Okay. The reason uh, there, there's something help. about that in my book, as a matter of fact. Uh -huh. I do talk a little bit about it. But again, it was a mechanical system, and it was also one that was greatly underfinanced. Well, that answers. I've been sort of puzzled all these years uh, as to just how much he was involved, because at that time, around the building there, they I was not actually involved in any way in the development of it. I They also had a school there for the technicians and so on, and I used to run their programs for them. But uh, they used to call him Dr. Lee DeForest, the father of television. Yes. And I wondered how far... Uh, that, was the, uh, that was the school that he ran, or he was associated with in Chicago. Mm -hmm. And they used to... Well, he always wanted to be called the grandfather of television <laughs> and the father of radio. Uh-huh. Um, and he called himself father of radio, too. Uh -huh. Well, at least it is, it's one phrase that has stuck with me yes. all these years, and I finally got a chance to really find out from someone. <laughs> I well, thank you very much. It's very good much. talking with you. Thank you. Thank Bye -bye. you. For your so the real fathers of television primarily were Jorkin and, uh, to a lesser extent, Philo Farnsworth. Well, I think, uh, yes. I'm not sure I want to put a degree on 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 so, Philo Farnsworth, but certainly Zwarkin and Farnsworth are the two all right. key. But uh, so many times when you when you do look up uh, the father of television or how television began, Philo Farnsworth is not mentioned. It's Zwarkin. <coughs> That's right. That's right. And there are others who who uh, want to claim as well. Uh, certainly uh, Baird in England mm -hmm. is one. Uh, but again, it, you're your point is really that the corporation takes over. And, uh, and Jorkin was hired 
by RCA. That's absolutely right, 1929. All right, we'll be right back with Tom Lewis. And the book is called Empire of the Air, The Men Who Made Radio. This is 790 KBC Talk Radio. I'm Ray Brain. The Iraqi war is over, yet conflict continues in the world. There's Yugoslavia, the Middle East, and let's not forget the Soviet disunion. Now, if you need to stay informed, despite the declining media coverage, then turn to shortwave radio as I do. Your source for information radio equipment is Affordable Portables. Prices start as low as $39. This week, Affordable Portables has a special offer, the Grundig Traveler 2. Now, I own a Grundig myself, and I know of their superior performance. It covers 19 meters and can be plugged in with an optional AC adapter. It has a time zone indicator which identifies the city and the time being monitored. It also includes a telescopic antenna, headphones, clock alarm, and carrying case. Now you tell them Ray Brain sent you and get this great shortwave radio at $97. Also available, police scanners and a full line of other shortwave radios and antennas. So drop in for a free demo. See their Friday and Sunday L.A. Times ad. They're open seven days and serving you in Torrance, Westwood, Sherman Oaks, Costa Mesa, and Pasadena at 6439 Canoga Boulevard in Woodland Hills. Affordable portables, what tuned into the world really is. Here's news about a revolutionary product proven to help build your energy, vitality, and physical endurance naturally. It's called Ginsana. Now, if you like energy... If you're tired, if you feel you've lost your competitive edge, then you should know about Ginsana. It's the first standardized herbal ginseng product. It provides the highest quality ginseng extract in a soft gel capsule. Now, Ginsana was developed in Switzerland and clinically tested for 25 years. Double-blind research studies have proven Ginsana helps build physical endurance. It improves cardiovascular performance, and that certainly helps me. It also helps the body utilize oxygen more efficiently. Now, who benefits from Ginsana? Middle-aged men and women, senior citizens, college students, professional and amateur athletes. It's often imitated, but there's only one Ginsana. Ginsana concentrated herbal extract. You got to try it. At Thrifties, GNC, Payless, Clark Drugs, Mrs. Gucci's, and fine drug and health food stores everywhere. For a free research brochure, call 800-GINSANA. That's 800-G-I-N-S-A-N-A. For the new year, Canyon Hills Club, Anaheim Hills' prestigious retirement community, has decided to extend their special one-cent holiday rent offer until the end of January. That's right. As a New Year's incentive, Canyon Hills Club is offering an entire month's rent for only one cent. It's a great opportunity to stretch a penny further than you might have ever expected and also to see a beautiful place. I love it. So don't wait any longer. A single penny entitles you to see why Canyon Hills Club is the retirement community of choice of Southern California. For only one cent, you'll experience all the luxury and convenience that makes living there so special. Features like spacious apartments, delicious meals, laundry and housekeeping services, licensed on-site assisted living center, a caring staff, and much more. But the really pleasant surprise is how affordable it is to live at Canyon Hills Club. So be penny-wise and visit soon. Remember, you only have till the end of January to move in and take advantage of Canyon Hills Club's extended one-cent holiday rent offer. For additional information, call 1-800-622-3233.
1-800-222-KBC. KBC Talk Radio Time is now 1.47. Tom, how long did it take you to put this book together? Well, I really made the commitment to write it, uh, spiritually at least, in 1985 when I was writing that article which I had mentioned on Howard Armstrong. Uh, but I didn't get my desk clear until April 14, 1987. I mean, the dates are just burned in my memory. And uh, on that date, I decided that I would do it, and uh, I set to work. And I really didn't stop working until about August 20th, uh, August 22nd exactly, 1991. And that's when the last bit of proof went to bed and the book was on its way. Now, getting the information, where did you have to go? How did you retrieve this from, from the files, uh, from the courts? Where? Well, the first, place I, first places I went were to Columbia University, which had Armstrong's files. Mm -hmm. And uh, what I found were 540 boxes of material, <laughs> uh, which were virtually uncatalogued. Uh, that was an exhaustive and, I should add, an expensive process, because staying in New York is just horrendous. Um, and then the Princeton, at the Sarnoff Research Center in Princeton, has Sarnoff's files. Uh, Lee DeForest's files are, or were at the time, at the Foothill uh, Library in Los Altos, California, at Foothill Community College. Uh, they fell into litigation, and they are now in a warehouse, I understand. Now, as uh, far as the litigation is concerned, you must have gone to law libraries. Um, well, for the litigation, uh, I certainly went to law libraries, and I went to the Smithsonian Institution for a lot of material, I should also add, parenthetically. But I also had the benefit of seeking legal advice, really, from one of the top patent lawyers in the country. And who used, I don't think I'll mention his name because he probably doesn't want to know that he, he'd known that he gave me all this free advice, but I would often just come back from a day in New York City having been drilled uh, and grilled by this lawyer who was teaching me patent law, which is a very arcane subject, and I was laboring to make it intelligible and understandable to a lay audience. Um, and I, I hope I did that, just that. But uh, he, was, he was just, he was just su super. And it, you know, what it really depended upon was a lot of good, uh, goodwill on people. Toward the end, I got into uh, the law files of two law firms that were uh, Armstrong's. And that was yet, uh, and it was almost dispiriting in some ways, because I found uh, probably another million pieces of paper, which, by the way, I was able to get out of the law firm and ha have that material transferred to Columbia. So that Columbia has now got this huge file. It has the most complete file of any of them. One area in the book that I liked very much was, uh, and I had not realized, this was the catalyst that put uh, the network together as we know it today, the radio network. 
And <clears throat> that was Lindbergh's flight and return to the United States. Yes, that really, <clears throat> I think that's a, a very important uh, moment in the history of radio in June of 1927. Now, there was a network at that point. Uh, the N NBC network had been created, the National Broadcasting mm -hmm. Company. And uh, it was a large network, too. It had uh, a red network and a blue network, mm -hmm. as they were called. They were they were beginning to to seg segregate out, uh, so that it was it was a pretty big network. Mm -hmm. There were 50 stations in it, but S Sarnoff put them together and saw this as a single important event that could bring the country together, and so. There were 30 million, there were, excuse me, uh, 6 million radios in the United States at that time. And they figure that each of those radios was listened to by five people. So that there were 30 million people listening in, which, by the way, is probably correct. Um, radio was enough of a new thing so that you had your friends in for it. And this was such a stunning achievement of Lindbergh's flying across the country, uh, excuse me, across the ocean, that it, it, it electrified the country as few events have. And it electrified the country in another way because nobody knew very much about Lindbergh. We tend to know a lot more about Lindbergh today than people did then. He was virtually unknown. He was a very shy, retiring uh, Minnesotan uh, whom nobody knew much about. And so what this did was it brought the country together. It united the person in Portland, Oregon with the person in Portland, Maine listening to the same station and listening to J Graham McNamee say, there he is. Were you going to read something there? Uh, yeah, well, go ahead. go ahead. There he is. He's coming down the gangplank, stoop-shouldered, and he's a darn nice boy. And that really reassured the country. And as you say, Phillips Carlin was perched atop the Washington Monument and the one and only Milton J. Cross in the dome of the Capitol. That's right. That's right. And Milton J. Cross, who, of course, uh, was the voice of the Metropolitan Opera for so many years. Do you know that when I first came to this station, that's an ABC-owned and operated station, Milton Cross was doing network newscasts. He was on staff at ABC. Wow. wow. He, was, he was a legendary figure in Absolutely. early radio. Absolutely. All right, let's take another call. We've got John on the line in Torrance. Good morning, John. Good morning, Ray. I've got a question distantly related to this for you first. I wonder if you have uh, yet selected the date for your annual shortwave feature. Not yet. But it, it will be this month sometime, won't it? Uh, I'm, not, I'm, I'm not sure if it's going to be this month. It might be. Uh, it will certainly be next month or, or in March. You know, we, we do it about this time every year. Okay, and to, to you, Tom Lewis, I've read... Just a bit more than half of your book, and I want to thank you for the enjoyment that I've gotten out of it. It's just a, a wonderful organization of the tensions of some giants of the radio industry, which I've been interested in in all my life. And I think you've uh, really done a very dedicated work for those of us who, uh, who are interested in this. Well, thank you very much. I wonder if you are familiar with a book called Synthony, or From Synthony to Spark. Oh, yes, Hugh Aiken's book. Yeah, yes. and yours is roughly, 
a parallel treatment. He uh, used different people in his, of course. Yes. But uh, I noted the similarity, and I enjoyed that book, too. Uh, uh, one of the reasons I call, I, I happen to be a special fan of Reginald Fessenden. And he did not go unmentioned in your book, but uh, not a criticism, but a suggestion that if you ever revise the book, that you might include a little bit more about him, because when you, uh, the sub subtitle of your book uh, being uh, The Men Who Made Radio, I, I really think he qualifies mm -hmm. under that, and a bit more about his, his activities, I think, uh, would be very interesting, even though he did not participate uh, politically with all the goings-on that involved the, the three uh, men whom you selected. Well, John, let me, <clears throat> let me uh, tell you a, lot about, a little bit about that. I think your first thing, Fessenden is a wonderful person, and, and for the larger audience to, to know a little bit more about him, uh, Fessenden was uh, an inventor who was the first person to put a radio <clears throat> a voice over radio waves. On Christmas Eve 1906, he sent out a Christmas message to ships at sea, uh, and he played the violin, and he sang, uh, I think he played Oh Holy Night, he read some poetry, and of course the ship operators were absolutely stunned. Uh, this was an achievement of great importance. It's one which I do talk of in the book. Uh, Fessenden himself uh, was uh, a, a an important person. Now, by way of a little bit of defense of myself, I guess, John, but I, I do think you're right in many ways. All right, John. Thank uh, you. I think that you ought to... The, the, the important thing is that it's... What I was trying to do was have a, the story of Armstrong, DeForest, and Sarnoff get through and the others play supporting roles in that story. But uh, Fessenden, so far as I'm concerned, deserves his own book. All right. Thank you, John. Uh, Randy in Hollywood. Good morning. You're on with Tom Lewis. Uh, good evening, Tom and uh, Ray. I'd like to, uh, three quick questions. I, I'd like uh, to ask you about how that RCA Red and Blue Network, uh, why it was uh, separate in the first place, and then why... It later became what I think was uh, in the ABC network. I'd also like to, uh, to address the question of how the law came about, that uh, how and why the law came about that uh, no foreign owners or uh, foreign entities could own any American radio or TV station, and is that still going to be in, in effect? And also, when I was in high school, I'd heard that, I don't know if you addressed this because I tuned in a little late, that um, Mr. Armstrong fought RCA for years and finally committed suicide and the case, the case was decided in court five or six years after and the money went to his widow. widow yes. is, um, I'd heard that uh, you know years and years ago and not much about it. All right, uh, let's uh, quickly go let, over yeah, let me, let the, me red, answer the Red them. and Blue Networks. Okay, the Red and Blue Networks really uh, began uh, at the time that the NBC uh, was uh, begun. Uh, NBC really took over uh, the... Um, they got into antitrust, right? Yeah. Well, they got into the station. They they took over the stations from 
uh, AT&T, American Telephone and Telegraph, and they became, I've forgotten, the, the red or the blue network. Uh, they were later uh, got into antitrust, RCA got into antitrust trouble and was told that they had to sell off, split the network and sell one of them off. Uh, as for the foreign ownership of U.S. stations, you uh, are correct, and the FCC has always been very... Uh, concerned about this technology and our airwaves which are free being used by foreigners and actually we have one of the least restrictive uses of the airwaves of any um, of any country in the world so it's, we had, it's we had not a that situation bad. we had a situation right here in uh, in Southern California a few years back about uh, Jack Kent Cook and his brother uh, who were Canadians that's right. And uh, control of, of a radio station. Uh, may I say a final word about yeah. Ar Armstrong? You, uh, Randy, you're absolutely right. Armstrong did sue RCA, and we never really got to that story this evening or this morning. But he sued RCA because RCA had taken his FM patents and was, among other things, using them in television sets, which are uh, have FM circuitry for the sound reproduction. He sued. He was went broke, and on the last day of January, uh, 1954, he committed suicide. Tom Lewis, you've written a great book, and uh, anybody who's ever had a love affair with radio or who uh, enjoys listening to radio ought to read the book, that's for sure. Thank you very much for being with us. Thank you so much. Take care. Tom Lewis, the book Empire of the Air, The Men Who Made Radio. 790 Talk Radio. KABC Los Angeles. From ABC News, I'm Marty McNeely. President Bush has gotten Singapore's okay to move some U.S. forces to the island nation from bases that are closing in the Philippines. Jaws Professional 1. 1 Ray Bream 920. Saturday 2, 2 Ray Bream 82XX unloading jump can't okay enter Saturday 2 1 Z. Ray, I feel that if we had had television in those days, uh, Dick Cantina would have been as big as Elvis Presley. He'd have been, yes, I really think so. We're going to take a break and then we'll be right back. And we have uh, a lot of uh, people you are going to be hearing from. Uh, they're going to be checking in tonight. But uh, our guest is Horace Height, and we'll tell you how you can call in very shortly. This is Talk Radio. I'm Ray Brain. KABC Los Angeles. Talk Radio. Talk Radio. I'm Ray Bream, and my guest is Horace Height, and Horace Height Jr., and Johnny Stanley. Now, I purposely left out Johnny Stanley because we're going to spend a whole segment here with Johnny. But before we do anything else, I know that you have a lot of listeners across the country that want to say hello to you. So if you want to uh, spend a second with... Uh, with Horace Hyde or Johnny Stanley or Horace Hyde Jr., whatever, you want to reminisce a little bit, here are the phone numbers where you can reach us. Okay, now is your chance to get involved. Remember, T-A-L-K is part of all of our numbers. All you have to remember is the prefix. In Los Angeles, 520-TALK, San Fernando Valley, 990-TALK, San Gabriel Valley, 448-TALK, Burbank, Glendale, and Pasadena, give us a call at 244-TALK, 244-TALK in Glendale, Burbank, and Pasadena. The call is from the 714 area, Orange County, at 750-TALK. 
From Cops in Lakewood, Paramount, San Pedro, and Long Beach, 639-T-A-L-K. 639-TALK. All right. Uh, you discovered all of the aforementioned talent and so much more. When did you get hold of a guy named Johnny Stanley, and where did you find him? Well, we found Johnny Stanley in uh, Oklahoma City. He did a show there for us. He came in from a little small city someplace up there in Oklahoma. I forget the name of it. And this fella, he came to the stage door, and Johnny Stanley looked just like Chick Sales. You couldn't tell the difference. He had the long <laughs> coat on, and he had his top hat on. And he said, I'd like to perform. And I said, well, great. Why don't you go out on the stage and do it? So he went out and he did that great number. You it's know. in the book. It's in the book. And it just swept the country. I'll tell you, we, the crowd used to be around the block for him. Because <laughs> he's a dear old Johnny. And he's sitting right alongside here, smiling and happy and All right. crying. We're going to do a little bit out of the record that sold how many copies, Johnny? Three and a half million. Three and a half million. My engineer brought this pristine copy in. I said, what are you doing? He said, I had a few copies. <laughs> yeah, we first put it out on a 78, and Horace put it out on his own label, Magnolia. <laughs> and uh, in just a few weeks, just a matter of days almost, I, we had back orders that we couldn't handle. Right? And Horace could better tell you how he, <laughs> there was, let's see, we had Capital, Decca, Liberty, and that was about it, RCA and Victor then. Everybody was after that record. We're going to take a break here in a second, and uh, I want you, Johnny, to, uh, we'll, we'll play a little bit of the record, and I want you to come in and finish it here in the studio, okay? All right. So we'll do it. Uh, if you want to call the program, you've got the numbers. We're going to start taking some calls here shortly. And I understand that we have a special guest that's just checking in. We'll get to him here in a minute, too. My guest is Horace Height. We have Johnny Stanley with us, who is a fixture of the Horace Height Show, and Horace Height Jr. So stand by. We'll be right back. This is Talk Radio. I'm Ray Breen. This is Talk Radio. I'm Ray Breen. My guest is Horace Height, Horace Height Jr., and Johnny Stanley. And who knows who's going to be checking in on the phone because we have some people that... Uh, well, I just think want to pay you a little tribute. I think that we'll be hearing from some, some people that you started off so many, many years ago. Good. All right. We were talking about Johnny Stanley. Now, Johnny, you had a big, big record. It's one of the biggest records ever made for a single record. Uh, it's called It's in the Book. Johnny, where did you ever pick up this piece of material? Well, it started on my dad's tent show. And we uh, toured through the Middle West. And we used to see those um, revival meetings. And I saw one or two uh, very, very uh, impressive uh, preachers. And I started imitating them when I was quite young. But I, I would use the nursery rhymes, Old Mother Hubbard and uh -huh. Bo Peep. Uh -huh. And it's just a thing that gradually developed over the years. And then Horace really perfected it and cut it down. Because I used to do it for 30 minutes just to get warmed up. <laughs> <laughs> to get it down to a three-minute record. <laughs> yeah. <it> sounds like... <laughs> All right. Stand by. We're going to go to the record. And then uh, we'll just take a, a bit of that. And then we'll come back to you live. And we'll all envision how it sounded. So this is the way Johnny Stanley did, did it in front of a live, a live audience. And, of course, on record. Johnny Stanley, and it's in the book. 
little bow peep who was a little girl has lost her shoe and doesn't know where to find it. Now that's reasonable, isn't it? Reasonable to assume if little Bo Peep had lost her shoe, it's only natural that she wouldn't know where to find <laughs> that that basically is reasonable, but uh, leave them alert. Uh, now that overwhelms me. <laughs> The man said she lost the sheep. Turns right around and boldly says, she doesn't know where to find them. <laughs> and then has the stupid audacity to say, leave them alone. Now, now think for a moment, think. If the sheep were lost, and you couldn't find them. You'd have to leave them alone, wouldn't you? You you can't do much harm to a sheep when you don't know where they are. So leave them alone. Leave them alone. It's in the book. Leave them alone. And they, they will come home. I they will come home. Leave them alone. But how could you harm a sheep, pray tell me, when you don't know where they are? You can't do much harm to a sheep when you don't know where they are. So leave them alone, and they will come home. A wagon, their tail. Pray tell me what else could they wag? <laughs> they will come home a wagon, their tail. Behind them. Behind them. Did we think they'd wag them in front? <laughs> of course they they might have come home in reverse. They they could have done that. I I really don't know. <laughs> and now, if you will kindly pick up your book and turn to page two hundred twenty-two, we'll ask you all to sit. And at that point, everybody started to sing. It's, it came from a tent show. Yeah. That's amazing. Really amazing. All right. Well, let's go to the phones. We have somebody very special who wants to say hello. And uh, this is a, a man that I once did a show with when I was in Armed Forces Radio Service from the Cafe Rouge of the Statler Hotel way back when. I think his name is Frankie Carl. Frankie, is this you? That's me. Frankie? Yep. How's everything? Fine. Well, you're on with Horace Height, and I appreciate your calling. Well, Bray, I have never stayed up this late to hear a radio show since <laughs> D-Day. <laughs> well, you know, the Frankie Carl story is a great one. I tried to get Frankie to join uh, at least two or three years. And uh, Frankie had... Uh, Frankie, you were playing up... Uh, where were you playing? New Haven, the Milford, Seven Gables. Yeah, the Seven Gables. And right. I run up there and... Try to get him to join my organization and point very nice pictures. He said, well, Horace, to tell you the truth, I've got difficulty with my right hand. <laughs> and I said, well, then I talked to his uh, lawyer who was booking him at that time. 
And I said, I have a deal. If I send Frankie to Mayo's Clinic and they cure that right hand of his, will you let will Frankie join me? Horace and Frankie, the music's playing. You know what that means. Hold yeah. on, we'll be right here. Okay. This is Talk Radio. I'm Ray Brain. Los Angeles. Talk Radio, AM 79. This is Talk Radio. I'm Ray Bream, and we've got Horace Height and uh, a lot of friends here in the studio, including Horace Jr., and uh, we've got Johnny Stanley, and on the phone, Frankie Carl. Where were we? Frankie? Yes. Yeah, we were just talking about how you got all better and came back in, into the band and uh, stayed with me for uh, how many? Four or five years, wasn't five it? Five years. Five years, and then you started your own band. That's right. And the rest is history. The Golden Touch, Frankie Carl. I'm going on tour in January, Horace, and I'm using the Golden Touch. (laughs) (laughs) What are you doing up at this late hour? Well, that's it, Frankie. I just stay in good shape. I swim every day, which I hope you do. I don't swim, but I walk. You walk, well, that's just as good. (laughs) And I practice piano. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it's good to talk to you, Horace. Really. Good to talk to you, Frankie. Uh, the first chance to get up, I'm going to take you out and beat you at golf. Well, okay, that'll be swell. <laughs> Thanks for the call, Frankie. Thanks, Ray. All right, bye. Good night, Horace. Good night. Just never know who's uh, going to be calling us. Um, let's take another call just from one of our listeners. Well, this is Ray Bringer on Talk Radio with Horace Height. Hello? Hello? Hello. Oh, this is Gordon McRae. I can tell by the voice. My goodness. Gordon, where are you? I'm in Lincoln, Nebraska. Just think of that. You call all the way in from Lincoln. Yeah, it's, going, it's about uh, 20 to 3 here. I've been out and waiting for you for a half an hour. Oh, my gosh, Gordon. Well, I'm certainly honored. Well, Wonderful right, for you to you? do it. Well, I'm great, Gordon. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. Well, uh... Weren't you ill just a few months ago? Yeah, I was. Well, I, I'm still recuperating from that. I had a, a, a very severe virus, and I had a puncture, a, a collapsed lung. Well, I thought something had happened, but I'm glad to hear you're getting better. Well, I'm coming along fine. Thank you very much, Horace. You know, uh, we used to play golf every morning. Sure did. And <laughs> uh, who used to win those golf matches, uh, Gordon? Ah, you did. (laughs) For many years. No, no, I didn't. I think you got to where you'd take me like Grant took Richmond. Oh, I did. It took me about four years to do it, or two years to do it. Well, it was a lot of fun. Gordon, this is Ray Bream. I've got to ask you, how did you... Hi, Ray. How's everything? Fine, thank you. So, uh, how did you uh, get with uh, the height band? What happened? How did he discover you? Well, actually, one of Horace's uh, uh, wonderful henchmen, one of the <laughs> Don Juan's, discovered me. <laughs> we discovered each other in the men's room at NBC in New York. That's right. <laughs> on the third floor. Well, what happened in the men's room? Well, I was just... My Maybe dad, we better not talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> my dad always told me that when I felt like singing, sing. So I was doing what comes naturally in the men's room. I guess you'd call it a coffee break today. Singing a little break, and I was I was going to the John and uh, singing to myself. <laughs> and the fellow was t- sitting and uh, standing in there, and he and he said, "Hey, do you sing?" <laughs> I said, "Yeah." I said, "What?" And he said, "Can you read music?" And I said, "Yes, I can." Why do you ask? He said, "Well, my name is George Jackson." 
And I'm from uh, Boston, Massachusetts, and I'm with Donna and her Don Juans. We're a singing group with Horace Height. And I said, I know the group because uh, being a page boy, I watched Horace broadcast on Tuesdays and, and Thursdays, you know. So I was quite familiar with the group. He said, we're leaving. One of our members is leaving, so we need a, we need a baritone. Can you come over to the Biltmore Hotel tonight and, and audition? I said, sure. So I did. They gave me a piece of music. I forgot which one it was. It might have been a Hutch Touch song. <laughs> and uh, I read it pretty good, and uh, Horace hired me. That was in 1941. Just think of that, 1941. Long time ago. A long time ago. Yeah, that's right. And you made an instant hit. Instant hit. So, Gordon, what's uh, what's happening in your life other than the past illness? Are you doing any Broadway? Are you doing anything? What What's happening? Well, I haven't worked much this year since I've been kind of sick, but I've been doing, uh, you know, uh, summer uh, theater. Mm-hmm. And uh, I did a Bob Hope show last year, last uh, September. You know what I miss? Besides your records, and I always thought you were great on records, and uh, I mean that because I've got a lot of them, including one of the very last I think you ever did on Capitol, If Ever I Would Leave You. If ever I would leave you, That's right. I wouldn't be with Mother. <laughs> <laughs> but... Uh, I'm glad you mentioned that. As a matter of fact, we're going to be in Hackensack, New Jersey. If anybody's going to listen, if anybody's listening from Hackensack, we'll be there. Of course they're listening in Hackensack. Hackensack. That's right. They're going to do a tribute to Capitol Record artists. Uh, they're, going to, they're going to call it the 40s and the 80s. Ah. But I remember some of the early things you did so far and all those great things. My goodness. Yeah, they were great. Really, Gordon. And, of course, the, uh, the musicals. You know, that's one of the great things I like to to, uh, to watch is uh, the cable service I am on, they present some of these great musicals of, of the past. And to me, that was really art, and it's something that you don't see today. I mean, when, when did you see a, a musical last in the theaters? Huh? That's right. You Gordon, uh, good anymore. Yeah, right. what pictures did you do for Warner Brothers? Yeah, but, uh, you know, the musicals. Didn't you do, uh, tell, me, tell me a couple yeah, of Another 20 minutes? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's going to cost you, this must cost you plenty from Lincoln. Well, it's the 1-800 line. Well, oh, it is. Yeah. Well, then I won't offer to pay for the bill. <laughs> no, you better not. <laughs> <laughs> well, I made about uh, 20 pictures at Warner Brothers, most of which were with Doris Day. And, uh, oh, we did a couple with June Haver. And, uh... Yeah, that's uh, great. Jane Powell. Catherine Grayson. But they were great movies. Yes, they were. Well, they were pretty good in, in, in their day, you know? Well, sure they were. I can remember when uh, you were right in the middle of a picture, and then you used to come over to Lakeside and play golf for three holes, then run back and finish the picture. That's right, they'd have to call me off the court. Yeah. <laughs> they got you in trouble, didn't they? And I used to get so mad. <laughs> Gordon, I think it's great that you would uh, stay awake and stay on the line and uh, talk with Horace. Well, it was easy to stay awake tonight in Nebraska. We had tornado, my, my first tornado experience. Uh-oh. Any storm tellers around? Well, uh, well, yeah, we were down in our basement. And, you know, they really warn you. They have what they call a tornado watch. And then when the, when the sirens go on, it's a warning. That means one is touching down. Uh-oh. So one touchdown or two touchdowns was about four or five blocks from our house. Wow. Kind of scary with my wife and my daughter. Yeah, I'll bet. 
Well, listen. It was good to hear Frank and Carl's voice. It was good for you to check in. We appreciate it. Well, it's a pleasure for my old pal Horace Hyde who rediscovered me, you know. Well, that's great. Thank, thanks for the call and get well. How is Horace Jr.? I'm fine, Gordon. Thank you for asking. How you been? I've been just great, and I want to thank you uh, once again for uh, doing that uh, pilot with us for the original Youth Opportunity Program. You were just magnificent. Well, that wasn't much of a favor to do. Well, I sure appreciate it. Sure, I know, Dad. I like you. Well, you ever see you. your sister? I all the time. She's uh, at home right now, probably listening to the show. Okay, well, Hildegard, this is your Uncle Gordon. <laughs> thank you, Gordon. Thank you, fellas. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Good luck. God bless. Bye. Gordon McRae. So, uh, stick around. We'll take some phone calls from you listeners. This is Talk Radio. I'm Ray Brings. Talk Radio, AM 79, KABC, Los Angeles. Hi, KABC. This is Talk Radio. I'm Ray Bream. My guest is Horace Height. We've got Horace Height Jr. in the studio, as well as, of course, Johnny Stanley. Uh, Gordon McRae. That was nice of him. Very nice. Very nice. Gordon McRae wanted to know if uh, anybody in Hackensack, New Jersey, is listening. We have no calls from Hackensack, so maybe they're not. I don't know, but let's uh, give out the phone numbers. If you want to call, and if you are from Hackensack, you better check in just to make Gordon happy. This is uh, the number to call, or these are the numbers. Thoughts, feelings, ideas. Share them now with countless numbers of other talk radio listeners. In Los Angeles, dial 520 and the word talk, T-A-L-K. The valley numbers also end in talk. San Fernando Valley, 990 and San Gabriel 448. Burbank, Glendale, Pasadena, 244. The South Bay Area, dial 679 and talk. All right, let's go back to the phones. Hello there, this is Ray Brain. You're on Talk Radio with Horace Hyde. Hello. Hello there. Hello. Yes, hello. Hello, Ray. Yes. This is uh, Charlie calling. Yes, Charlie. Ray, it's awfully nice. Uh, first time I've ever called you, but it's awfully nice to have to listen to somebody like Horace. And a lot of times I've heard you talk about Ice and Jones and, and some of the older bands. I've been uh, in the music business so since in the 20s. And uh, I'd like to say hello to Horace. I remember when he started at the Golden Gate Theater. I think he came from Oakland, to be exact. Well, that's right. And it's certainly good that you find someone that remembers back that far. Horace? Yes. Yes, you sound the same, by golly. I do. I was uh, I was at the St. Francis Hotel with Ted Fiorito. Oh, you were? Yes, yes. Well, you aren't the man that threw the grapefruit at me at the Golden Gate, are you? No. <laughs> I got to no. find out about that. No. That's where I got that no. one down no. there. No, Horace, I would. But uh, I, uh, I remember you had the Californians, I think. Right. Yes, in Oakland, I well, Oakland, uh, we started in Oakland, and then we uh, wound up at the uh, Golden Gate. That's right. I remember when Bernie Madison auditioned for you. Right. He was the on, on drums. Played the drumsticks up and down the aisles. And right. Got a big hand, and you hired him, and he went with you until he <laughs> quit. Then he went with Paramount Studios right. during the contract. you got a good memory. Well, I, I was in the same business. I played percussion. Oh. Yes. Jerry Bowen, and, and in fact, when uh, 
when uh, uh, Alvino and the King Sisters formed their group here at KHJ, I went with them. You did? Yes, I was with Al. I've known Alvino since he was with Meredith Wilson up there. Before yes. he joined you. Well, then I heard him on the air one night. Uh-huh. And I could imagine that the singing guitar being part of my orchestra, filling in the holes, you know, that he did. <laughs> yes, yes. And it really, uh, he was sensational throughout Alan. America. just caught on Alan, tremendously. Louise and little Bonnie and all of them, they... All sweet, wonderful girls. I don't see them very... Alvino used to live right around the corner from me here. I live in Studio City. And uh, Alvino used to live around the corner from me. I think your son lived about three or four doors from me. I didn't know him. I never met him. Well, he's a handsome boy. Well, he lived on Ben here. He, he's really just something to look at. Uh, That's well, Jerry, I did. Well, Jerry. Oh, Jerry I lived on. What, what, what are you doing now, Horace? Are you acting? Well, I'm uh, trying to stay healthy. Uh, yes, I'm active. You are. Yeah, I have an apartment house, and I try to keep 180 people happy. Oh, yes, I know. And so that uh, keeps me busy. Well, that's, <laughs> that's good to keep kept busy. That Thank way. you very much, Charlie. All right. Well, All right. nice to say hello to you. All right. All right. Thank you. Okay. Hello there. This is Ray Breen. You're on Talk Radio with Horace Hyde. Hi. And Johnny Stanley and Horace Jr. Yes. Yeah, uh, this is Joe. Yes, Joe. And I'm calling from uh, Vallejo, California. Mm-hmm. Horace, I was, I was on your show, too. Really? When I was a kid, and I don't, I'm not a musician, I don't think you'd remember me, but back towards the end of World War II, I guess that would be around 44 or 45. Yes. I can remember when I was a kid, my parents took me to downtown Newark, New Jersey, Really? And I think there was a place called the Essex House. That's right. And you did an on-location broadcast uh, to a dinner crowd about 7 o'clock in the evening or 7.30 on a Sunday yeah. for a while there. And I remember I was just about 12 years old then. And you called me up and let me be on the radio, and that was one of the big thrills of my uh Boyhood. Well, that's great. Do you remember that, I Yes, I can remember back well, that far. What was that? Was that WOR or WJC? Yeah, I think it was, I forget what station it was, but uh, it was a New York station. That was Horace Heights in his musical night. Right. Yeah, well, it's nice to hear from you. Well, I'm thank a, you for calling. I'm, I'm about uh, going to turn 50 this year, so I figure you must be in about your seventh decade. Wow. And it sounds like you're really going strong. <laughs> yeah, I am going strong. Good for you. Indeed yeah. he is. He's amazing. Nice. Thank you very much, Joe. Nice to talk to you. Right, bye. Bye-bye. We'll get back in a moment. My guest is Horace Hyde. If you want to call us, be sure and uh, do it now before the lines get busy. We do have a couple of open lines, and we'll be back in a moment. This is Talk Radio. I'm Ray Brain. Talk Radio, AM 79. This is Talk Radio. I'm Ray Bream, and my guest is the one and only Horace Height, along with Johnny Stanley and Horace Jr. Uh, I want to mention Horace Jr. here in a minute in the 50th anniversary reunion that took place not long ago. But I want to ask you about triple-tonguing, because you're the man who started that whole thing. And I hear it every once in a while. It's not as popular today because you don't even hear trumpets today. It's very hard to get a trumpet player that can triple-tongue. How did you uh, start triple tonguing? What 
What is it? What is Triple Tunyon? Well, Horace Jr. can tell you that. All right, Horace Jr. Oh, Dad, I knew you were going to <laughs> have me do that. Well, uh, actually, Dad, uh, I, I have heard from him and read that uh, he used to uh, admire Herbert Clark, one of the great cornetists of all time. Mm -hmm. And uh, he would uh, hold concerts and symposiums on on tonguing and so forth. And, and Dad went to one of these and heard him triple tonguing on a cornet, and he thought it would be a fantastic idea to do this in three-part harmony. Mm -hmm. Basically, what it is is a trick. Uh, uh, instead of of tonguing each note in the triplet, mm -hmm. you tongue the first two and then fake it with your throat for the third. So it's two two cuff. I'm sorry out there in the nation. <laughs> I don't mean But it sounds like you got three. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like you got three. It's a trick. You're doing two and kind of faking it and uh it it is an art. So instead of sleight of hand, it's sleight of mouth. It's sleight of mouth. <laughs> and, you know, it's like when you get three people doing it together, it's very exciting. How about that? I agree. And we'll talk about that here in a minute. We have another call coming in. Hello, this is Ray Bringer on Talk Radio with Horace Hyde. Horace! Yes! Jerry Van Dyke. Oh, my goodness. Hello, Jerry. Not Jerry. <laughs> yes, Jerry. My favorite television personality. Better to build boys than to mend men. I tried my best with you, Jerry. Yes, and it didn't work out. Well, I don't, I don't know what happened. You're responsible for me being in show business. Well, who and I'm going to get you. Yeah, well, I, I'm sure you will. Uh, uh, tell me, who knocked you off uh, the program? The what? When you were on my show, who was the winner? How did you happen to have to go home? Well, I think Dick and Tito won for his... 50,000th time or something. <laughs> but you did get me out of Danzo. I won first prize, which was a trip to Peoria. <laughs> the problem was, I got to Peoria and there wasn't any contest where first prize was a trip back to Danzo where I came from. I couldn't get home. My goodness. You left me hanging. <laughs> <laughs> well, look at the... I'm so sorry about that, but I, I do want to tell you, Jerry, you really are my favorite. You and Merv Griffin are or something. You're so relaxed. You know what to say all the time, what to do. Well, let, me, let me test him. We only have 20 seconds left, so Jerry, what to, do I say? About what? About, about you. Oh, and, and Horace. I, I have to get on here in 15 seconds. Oh. Now, what, now what do I do? I don't know in 15 seconds. You always knew what a, to say. I, now it's 10 seconds and I don't have a good story. Just God bless you, Horace. Okay, pal. Just keep going. Thank you very Thank much. You too. Thank you, Jerry. Fair enough. All right. Uh, that does it for this hour. My guest, Horace Height, along with Johnny Stanley and Horace Jr. This is Talk Radio. I'm Ray Bream, and if you haven't heard my guest is Horace Height, along with sidekick Johnny Stanley and uh, Horace Jr., and we're talking about memories and how uh, Horace has been around doing his thing in the music business since 1923. Horace, when did you uh, put up your baton? 1955. That was it. You said, I thought that was the time for me to uh, know my children better. I've been on the road all my life. Uh, we were in New York for most of our, you know, most of that time at the Biltmore Hotel. So I just decided that, excuse me, that that would be a good time just to settle down and do something else. So 
I left the band. Did it bother you to... Oh, yes. Because it was your life. Yeah, it still does. I had Artie Shaw on the other night. Yeah. And Artie, in 1954, also gave up the music business. But he doesn't even play at home. He says hmm. he's got a, a lamp with a stock of a clarinet. Hmm. His clarinet. He just... That was it. That was it. I don't know how you can do that. I don't see how you can either. So, <clears throat> when you appear before large audiences and you ha hear that applause and you're welcome to all these cities around America that you tour in, and I think we toured about every one there was that had a capacity of a thousand people. How many How many towns do you think that you were in? Oh, Just my goodness. I, we have, uh, seven cities a week. Seven, seven cities a week. week traveled by automobile. Well, now, uh, it went on for just years. What would uh, determine which city was going to be on the show on radio? We'd always go to a point of destination. Like we'd wind up in Omaha, and then they would have their facilities and take us national, mm -hmm. or Tucson, or any of those mm -hmm. cities, uh, Chicago, Cleveland, Detroit. They all would carry it right from there, just remote. That's great. Uh, how, this must have taken a lot of work to get this thing on the road. You know, road shows or something else. Yeah, tremendous. Who who would do the work? Well, we had a we had a very good organization, and uh, you must have had a great many people with you. Yeah, we had forty people with us. Well, thanks for And it represented uh, <laughs> nine unions. <laughs> And I guess I had the greatest trouble in the union. We had a, a chap by the name of Bob Paxton in our band that drove the truck. And the union was really after Bob. <laughs> chased him all over the country. <laughs> I was reading a biography of you and it said that if it hadn't been for a serious back injury that was uh, sustained by you in a football game, you might never have been a, a, a band leader and probably would have been a career athlete. Is that right? Yeah, I think so. What happened? Well, I played football for the University of California. And those are the days of Brick Muller and Charlie Erb and Stan Barnes and Dan McMillan and Brody Stevens, and I just got hurt in my back, and I just had to give it up, and that was it. So it just stopped me right there cold. And uh, then, then what uh, happened? How come you decided well, to Well, then I went it? into the real estate business. So you see, you're back in the same old business. <laughs> yeah, the real estate business, and that taught me, if I did nothing else, mm -hmm. that real estate is a good thing to get into. So when I did make a little money, and I only made it when I was uh, 40 years old, 45 years old, it was very rough at first in a band, but then I would send it to a real estate firm here in Los Angeles, and they'd buy a little piece of property for me someplace. You own half of the San Fernando Valley. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> no, not at all. But uh, that was very fortunate. That, uh, you know, I'm a great believer in, in uh, Emerson's Law of Compensation. And that is that everything happens. One of, the, one of the things is that everything happens for the best. And uh, the next thing is that if you are a failure, uh, Emerson says that not until you are sorely stunned does the real person come out. So uh, when we were a flop and uh, 
with my California band, the first band I had, then I realized that something else had come along, like records. So I had to really uh, change the whole band around. And that's when the Kings and joined me with Albino Grave. We got a very fine musical band. So you would play uh, hotels with that band, right? Well, we played hotels with the band, with a good dance band and a fine show. So the man that bought us got two for one. <laughs> so that was the purpose. All right, let's take a call. Hello there, this is Ray Bringer on Talk Radio with Horace Height. Hello. Hello. Yes, your first name. Uh, Vera. V-E-R-A. Okay, Vera. And uh, I listen, Ray, I listen to your show every night, and I think it's marvelous. Thank you. I'm uh, Horace. Yes. Uh, you remember Vera well, from yeah. Berkeley? Yes, from Berkeley. Yeah, and... Uh, I, I hear you on the range, uh, Ray Breen program. Yes. You uh, you uh, used to take me to beta dances at the University of California. I did. A long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> when, <laughs> when you played football for California. Right. <laughs> with all... Well, you sound great, Horace. Well, I feel great. Well, good. So do I. I see your sisters once in a while. Well, that's Ruth. Yeah. Well, that's wonderful. Uh-huh. Yeah, and Helen. And Helen. That's right. Well, it's certainly nice of you to call. Go well, back. Let's see, that was 1924. That's right, it was. That was 50 years ago. Oh, Horace. Right, 60 don't, years ago. Don't mention that, dear. <laughs> oh, I guess not. Well, it, it's nice hearing hearing your voice, and uh, it, it's really, I think of the good times we had so many years ago. Well, thank you. All right, goodbye, Horace. Thank okay, you, Vera. Goodbye. Bye. Goodbye. Hello there, this is Ray Bremer on Talk Radio with Horace Hyde. Yes, Ray, this is Bill. Yes, Bill. Yeah, I wanted to ask Horace a question. Mr. Hyde, uh, I've been a fan of yours because my father uh, played trumpet with you back in the early days in San Francisco. He did? Yes. Uh, what was his name? Frank Barton. Oh, yes, I remember. And I wanted to know, with all the big band groups in San Francisco, like Tom Copley, Anson Weeks, and Carl Ravaza. And Art Hickman, don't forget uh, that, and Ted Fiorita. There's a lot of great bands out of San Francisco. Right, and, and Kay Kaiser. Right. Uh, why didn't the bands that were in the San Francisco, and a lot of them being over uh, another network, per se, or whatever, why didn't they become nationwide famous as some of the bigger bands? And well... Yours did make it, but some of the other bands on the West Coast didn't. Well, I think that's because, uh, well, it's pretty hard for me to say, but I think we had more determination and we just stuck with it. The same thing happened on the East Coast. Uh, a very famous big band on the East Coast is Bob Chester, but he was not known on the West Coast. That's right. Yeah. But we had, uh, we just made up our mind, my, my orchestra, the whole band, we were really at one time a corporation. And I tried to get them to save money, you know, it's almost impossible. Yeah. But uh, we just made our minds up that we were going to get there, and we were going to New York and uh, be successful, and we just hung on until we got there. Yeah. Do you remember Hugh Barrett Dobbs in San Francisco? No, I don't. But he's the one that really put us over up there. No, I... Uh, he had a show uh, in the morning at, uh, at 6 o'clock, and we got up every morning and went over on that show. Bill, thanks for the call. Thank you, Ray. Bye-bye.
All right, we'll be back in a moment. This is Talk Radio. I'm Ray Brain. KABC Los Angeles. Talk Radio, AM 79. This is Talk Radio. I'm Ray Bream, and we have a call coming in from Pennsylvania. Baxter, are you there? Yes, I'm here. All right, where are you calling from? Well, I, I live in Pennsylvania, and I'm traveling through uh, Jersey, and uh, I stopped at an outside phone booth to give a call. I uh, wanted to share with uh, Forrest the fact that I was about nine years old, and my parents took me to uh, the Jaffa Mosque in central Pennsylvania. I don't know if he knows the town or not. That would have been Altoona. Oh, sure. Yeah. Sure I do. And uh, I think it was the only thing that ever came to Altoona back in those days. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was a great city. Yeah. Well, well, the trains always came. <laughs> well, the, trains, the trains still go through there. They work on them there. And uh, that was their claim to fame. But uh, uh, then it was called the Horace Height Show when you brought it there. And uh, we would, uh, it held about 4,000 people and from all over the countryside of Bayport in to see a show. And afterwards, I believe he went to a local drugstore where they had uh, a dinette bike and uh, Setniks, I believe it was called. Oh, yeah, Setnik. Yeah. I remember uh, so well. We're still there, same ownership. It is. That's right. And uh, it's still its claim to fame was that Horace Height always stopped by there. <laughs> well, they were very, very nice. But, uh, it was uh, it was quite an impressive thing uh, at the age of about nine that I was then. Uh, it was uh, very impressive, and and uh, many many people in that community uh, felt very fond of you because uh, you were the one that brought the city to us. Oh, thank you very very much. I just wanted to stop and. Uh, I'm glad you did, Baxter. Thanks for the call. To, I'm glad to have, see that Ray had you on tonight and to hear uh, what you've uh, been doing. And I was impressed with all the people that. Uh, you had started out in uh, entertaining us. I, I was not aware of that, and uh, I was glad to hear that. That's really great. Well, that's I good. It's amazing how many vocalists uh, started with the band. Yeah, I mean, the King Sisters and Frank Duvall. Believe it or not, Art Carney. Yeah, that's what I said. I, just, <laughs> I, I was really amazed to hear that. because I want to find out that story here in a minute. Yeah. Well, thank you. I don't want to take up your time. I'd rather listen to what you have to say. Thank All right, thank you. Thank you thank very much. Thank you for everything. Speaking of vocalists, tomorrow night I've got Helen Forrest with us. Oh, do you? Yeah. Wonderful. This is Music Week. And uh, Thursday, oh. Thursday, Billy May. Oh, he was the greatest. Oh, yeah. Let's uh, let's talk about um, the, the the various palaces that you played in. Uh, the Trianon Ballroom in Chicago, right? No, we didn't. No, or out here. Uh, out, out here. It was out here. Well, all right. Now, wh where, where did you play? Well, I played out here. I wanted to keep my band together. So I, uh, and nobody would hire me. So I had to buy the ballroom. You had to buy the ballroom. I had to buy <laughs> the ballroom. So we went down there and played. And uh, we had four weeks. And then uh, Larry Barnett of Music Corporation of America came up to me and said, Horace, we can book in Lionel Hampton down here. And he came in and, and did, and I never saw the Trianon again. They wouldn't have me back because he did such a tremendous business. They wanted those four beats, you know, and we were a two-beat band. But that was uh, where the Trianon came in. What about the music business? And I'm going to ask uh, uh, Horace Jr. about this, too, because he's following in the footsteps of his dad. And as we were walking out the hall here a minute ago, I said to you, Horace, you realize what you're trying to hold on to or 
to give birth to or rebirth to the band business, it's, according to some people, dead as a dodo. But yet, there seems to be a, a spark, a glimmer, that uh, even young people are, are, are getting with that big sound again. Do you agree with that or, or, or not? Well, uh, there's no question that entertainment's, you know, a rough struggle. And it's, it's rough for everybody. Even those that make it very quickly, it's very rough. Because once they get up there, they don't know how they got there. And it's very hard to maintain. And, but I think that's always been true. And in a positive vein, I feel that, uh, you know, um, it's worth the struggle. Do you want to lead a band and do all those things your dad did, or what, what do you want to well, do? Well, you know, in honesty, um, dad is, in, in, in a way, an institution. Mm -hmm. And uh, he not only led a band, but he was an MC, he was on radio and television. Uh, he did shows all over the world. You would be satisfied with just your own little band, huh? Um, no, I wouldn't say that. I, um, uh, I love the band. It's something I enjoy doing. But I, I uh, really want to continue on the tradition uh, that Horace Height had. You would, you would like to uh, have a talent a search type thing and do I, I would love that? to do that. I would love to I do mean, that. you really think that you could convince a television executive somewhere <laughs> that instead of putting on a sitcom that, that you can put on a, a talent show from Peoria or wherever every week? Well, what I really do believe, Ray, is that, no, it might be difficult right now to get a network to do a show like that, but I don't think it's impossible at all to get a cable company to start something like that. And the cable industry is a growing and very vital industry right uh -huh. now. And I'd love to get involved in that and grow with it. Uh, but it's a struggle in, in, in this business, but uh, for those that really want to make it, if they stick in with it, uh, I think they will. The one thing... Uh, I've learned from Horace Height, the master, is that he, once he has an idea, he never gave up. Uh, once he had an idea, he, he was just really tenacious. stuck to it. Tenacity. Never right. give up. We'll be back in a moment with Horace Height, Horace Jr., and Johnny Stanley, and a lot of friends who are checking in. This is Talk, this is talk Radio. I'm Ray Breen, and my guest is Horace Height. Johnny Stanley's here, too, and uh, along with Horace Jr. Um, Horace, give me back my book. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know you were scribbling in it there. Okay. <laughs> I, I kind of balled it. No, you didn't. Balled it up right. a little bit. Um, uh, I want to quote from this. That's why I wanted it. Uh, Leo Walker, in his book, and I've had him on before, called The Big Band Almanac. Yeah. This is what he says about you and your show, the Youth Opportunity Show. And uh, you'd go, for those who don't remember, you'd go uh, all throughout the whole country looking for talent, showcasing them, and it would be coast to coast on the air. Right. And uh, this is what uh, he wrote, speaking of your show. It toured the nation, playing to packed houses wherever it went, and utilized amateur talent in a manner which made Major Bowes look like a small-town promoter. My goodness. Which is, I think, very true. Yeah, well, it's a very fine compliment. Indeed it is, and um, you deserve it. Now let's take another call. Hello there, this is Ray Breen. You're on Talk Radio with Horace Hyde. Hello. Yes. Um, I would like to speak of Mr. Hyde, please. 
You're yeah. on. What's your first You're name, on. please? Uh, Martha. Yes, Martha. About 35 years ago, we lived in Quincy, Illinois. Your band came there, and you had a very fine singer with you named Ralph Sigwell. Right. And I wondered what happened to him. I just loved to hear him sing, and I never heard of him again. Well, Ralph Sigwell is still with me. Oh, he is? Uh, at the present time, uh, he is uh, ill. Uh, not feeling too well. You know, he weighed 485 pounds. I know, but he had a glorious life. But he got down to around 200, which was really fine. Oh. And then he had complete the charge of uh, my apartment house over in the valley. Oh. And, uh, but he has a house that he's living in uh, right next door to uh, the apartment house. And uh, I see him. He walks does over he, and says hello. Does he still think? No, he doesn't sing. Oh. But I don't think anybody ever sang the Lord's Prayer as well as Ralph Sigler. And he sang because and that lucky old son. Yes, that's and right. And it was just marvelous. Wasn't he marvelous? Oh, just a natural voice. Oh, he was just marvelous. Well, I'm so glad that he's well and happy and that you are too. Thank you. He, uh, we used to call him the Caruso of the South, remember? Oh, it, yeah. I just, I, we never were able to forget him. It was about 35 years ago. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. Thank you for the call. Well, thank you. All right, bye. Bye-bye. You know, uh, a few weeks ago in Los Angeles, there was a 50-year reunion held at the opening of a uh, nightclub in town. And uh, all I can say is it was really well staged. And Horace, you're or his high junior led the band and it's, well I gotta tell you Horace it was like you'd been doing it all your life well I've been in show business since I was three believe it or not and I did you go on the stage with your dad uh, at three there's a picture somewhere in one of these books here oh of course nobody can see it but uh, yeah I, I zoom was, in on that would yeah, you please? zoom in on that we'll take a close up <laughs> on camera three but uh, you know I've, I've, I I really uh, enjoyed I enjoyed being on stage mm-hmm. and uh, it's almost like being home at, the, at this stage alright we're going to take a break and we'll be right back and uh, stay with us This is Talk Radio. I'm Ray Bream, and uh, Horace is here, and Horace Jr. is here. If you don't know the Horace we're talking about, I'm saying Horace Height. Horace Height, the one and only Horace Height is with us, along with Horace Jr. and uh, the one and only Johnny. It's in the book. Stanley. (laughs) (laughs) I love the way you do that. You put so much. It's in the book. (laughs) <laughs> you know, when you did that commercial years ago, not so long ago, when you used to do it live, mm-hmm. I, I always thought it in the book the way you delivered that commercial. I've forgotten which one it was now. Uh, but... 7 Eleven. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I would say, it's in the book. <laughs> so right. <laughs> yeah, look for it because I think, I think it would, the tag was. Uh, Look for it because it's in the book or the yellow book or whatever. Yeah, and I, I would do a little that. Remember, yeah, it's because it's in the book. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's take another call. But before we do, if you want to call this program, here are the phone numbers: thoughts, feelings, ideas. Share them now with countless numbers of other talk radio listeners in Los Angeles. Dial five two zero and the word talk T A L K. The Valley numbers also end in talk. San Fernando Valley, 
and San Gabriel 448. Burbank, Glendale, Pasadena 244. The South Bay Area, dial 679 and talk. This is Talk Radio. I'm Ray Brayman. You're on with Horace Hyde. Hello, Ray. This is Murray. Yes, Murray. Uh, hello, Horace. I'm delighted to hear your voice, and it's a belated thank you for the start of uh, my career in Los Angeles 34 years ago, 1948. I was a contestant on your wonderful show at CBS. Uh, played the violin. Really? Just newly arrived from New York and uh, I think I played Monty's Chardash. I won. Next week I played uh, Horace Staccato, a terrific uh, shortcut arrangement made by Don Wilson. Worked it out on, in the compound <laughs> on Magnolia. Yeah, on Magnolia. Yeah. Yep. And uh, it well, was... Wasn't that something? That was 1948. That's 34 years ago. And I remember one one day uh, you flew me up to Fresno. We played an enormous, uh, I guess it was uh, a county fairgrounds building. It was about the size of a, a hangar in uh, Palmdale. Yeah. <laughs> and it was 116 degrees, and Ralph was on that show. Yes, I remember. Uh, we ran out of material. Uh, Don made an arrangement of uh, some, uh, it was the Hot Canary. It was some, yeah. some sheet music I'd brought in with me. Yes, and, I remember uh, that. I, do you remember I, that? Yes, I remember you. And I got beaten out by a CBS page. You did, a page. In, in uh, a CBS page who sang, Enjoy Yourself, It's Later Than You Think. I'll never, ever forget that as long as I live. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, uh, if you remember the tune, I, yes, yeah, I do. He, he beat me out when we returned to uh, Hollywood to the CBS uh, studios. Well, I, you know, I wouldn't feel badly. After all, uh, Johnny Carson was beaten out by Dick Contino. <laughs> You're kidding me. He's never, no, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Let's hear, over. <laughs> let's hear that. Yeah. There he was. That's true. He Dick Contino? Well, Dick was the champ and Johnny yeah. was on the show. Yeah. Well, I lasted uh, four shows. What's that? I lasted four shows. Four shows, which is great for no. on the violin. That, you that's know. what I was going to say. We we ran out of material. Yeah, <laughs> I, said, I said to Don, think of something. He said, I can't. I said, you think of something. I said, I can't. <laughs> nothing that a fiddle could do with a, you know, with a with fronting a big band. Yeah, you couldn't uh, do a dance with a fiddle very well. I don't play that's all those right. songs. Right. And this guy was a real good-looking character and he and he was a cbs page yeah so he had a lot of in-house support sounds like gordon mccray you it know. could very well be i just Murray, I, I was so i was so ticked off that i promptly forgot his name <laughs> Murray, i've got to leave you but thanks for the call great right, bye. Pleasure. okay bye -bye. goodbye we'll be back in a moment my guest is horace height along with uh, johnny stanley and horace jr this is talk radio i'm ray brain Talk Radio, AM 79, KABC, Los Angeles. This is Talk Radio. I'm Ray Bream, and my guest is Horace Height. And, um, Horace, uh, you, you've discovered so many people, but I, I can't, for the life of me, understand 
how you discovered Art Kearney and that he was a vocalist. Well, uh, Art, <laughs> <laughs> that's a good question. But uh, we were playing at the Biltmore Hotel in New York, and uh, the management allowed me to bring in new talent on one night because it was always packed to place. You know? Right. And I went to a little fair up in New Rochelle, up on the island, and there was this fellow doing impersonations and surrounded by these kids that were screaming and yelling. And, and the kids would come up and say, I want an Eddie Cantor drink. And this fellow would do Eddie Cantor and give him a drink of uh, something, cold drink. And uh, then they'd say, well, let me have that Al Jolson drink. Let me have the different personalities. And he would imitate each one. So I went up and asked him. I said, uh, what, do you, uh, what are your plans for the future? And he said, well, I'd like to get into show business. And I said, well, why don't you come down to the Biltmore Hotel and perform down there? So he came down, performed. It was a knockout. It was wonderful. And then he learned to do an impersonation of Al Smith when he was running for president. And when Al Smith came down, he got up and said, everybody in New York has to come down and hear Art Carney. Well, that kept us there for another year. <laughs> and then after that, it was Roosevelt. So that's the way he... Uh... I never knew that you discovered Art Carney. Yeah. had no idea. All right, let's take another call. Hello there, this is Ray Bringer on Talk Radio with Horace Hyde. Uh, hello, Mr. Hyde. Hello. Your first name? Uh, my name is Diana. Diana. Uh, okay, um, you probably remember me as Diana Dixon, the bird girl. Oh, yes. Oh, how, how have you, you been? Well, I'm so excited. What, 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 34 what, years ago, you know. What was the bird girl? What was that about? Well, I did uh, bird imitations, oh. and I whistled, let's all sing like the birdies thing. Right. And Ralph Sigwall beat me. It was 1948 at the Long Beach Auditorium. And uh, then you put me with the Johnny Mungle show. And Dominic Frontieri was also there. He was 17 years old, just a child. I was 21 at the time myself. He was handsome, though, wasn't he? Can, oh. you, can you still do bird calls? Pardon? Can you still imitate bird calls? Oh, uh, I, I haven't whistled for so long. Let's, let's hear you do a meadowlark. Oh, God. <laughs> I don't, I don't know if I can anymore. Oh, sure you can. You never forget those things. Well, oh, well, first of all, I was a finger whistler. See, I, I did it with my fingers. I didn't do it with my lips. Well, well just do it with your... I don't even know if I can, call. Mr. Hyde. Well, just okay. give us anything, anything that you have. Well, it's... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I know something Something will... Come. Well, I'll figure it's come. We'll well, just I don't know. We'll find out. All right, here yeah. we go. Well, I have a lot of birds, you know, over there. If you ever want to drop right, over, uh, we have pheasants, all kinds of pheasants. You ready to give us a call? Uh, I was, Mike, uh, I don't know. I don't think I can. Well, Mike. try it. Just try it, for heaven's sake. <laughs> all right. All right. I do. He hasn't lost. You haven't lost your touch. Oh, God, I can't feel my fingers. Oh, you, know. you haven't lost your touch. That's beautiful. My fingers have changed Wonderful. so much over Wonderful. the years. Wonderful. But anyway, uh, you put me with, like I said, the Johnny Mungle show, and then you brought me back to the El Capitan Theater, where I appeared also with Dick Contino. Well, that was great. And, uh, and you gave me my first break in show business. I was in show business for about 10 years. 
uh, I appeared with people like Malika Corgis, Babe Dietrichson. I gave lectures to, in all the high schools and colleges. And now I happen to be a systems analyst with oh. the corporation here in the valley. And I, too, am a, a, a property owner. I own about four homes here. I took, uh, once you were talking about, uh, you know, buying houses and things like that, and I took your advice as soon as I, you know, was financially able. So um, every, every, every time I pass by your uh, place uh, where the ranch used to be, yes. I always think about you. Oh, good. Well, anyway, I just wanted to call and just say hi, and I'm so excited. And <laughs> thank oh, you for thank the you. call. Pardon? Thank you for the call. Well, thank you. All right. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Hello there, this is Ray Bremer on Talk Radio with Horace Height. Hello. Hello there. Hello. Yes, good morning. Good keep morning, your keep your radio down, please. Yes, Ray, this is Jewel. Okay, Jewel. And uh, I wanted to congratulate you on the show, and I want to say hello to Horace. Uh, I'm one of his uh, uh, talent uh, show people was on in Burlington, Iowa, in 1941. I'm sure he doesn't remember me, but I was so happy that I didn't uh, turn the radio off because I always listen to you, and I like your show, and I wanted him to know, Horace, that I certainly appreciate your inspiration to me. I'm still a musician, and I'm, I'm playing all in California, what have you. Next week, I'll go back to Burlington, Iowa, to do a... Uh, Jubilee, a 75 Jubilee deal in Burlington for a week from the 20 to the 20, uh... Jewel, this is Ray Breen. What, what kind of an instrument did you play? I play piano. Oh, Yeah, sure. but I'm still a pianist. I play both piano and organ now and sing. So I just wanted Horace to know what an inspiration he was to me to even have me on oh, the talent show. I wasn't a winner, Horace, but at least I well, enjoyed being no on the show. And I will be playing at the Bismarck Hotel in... August in Chicago, so I Wonderful. just wanted you to know, I certainly appreciate it, it's so nice to hear your program, and to hear that you're on tonight. Thank you, you. So, good luck to you, and continue to have a beautiful year. And the same to you. Bye, Jewel. That's kind of nice, isn't it? Yeah, very nice. Wonderful. Hello there, this is Ray Bremer on Talk Radio with Horace Hyde. Hello. Hello? Yes. Hi, uh... This is Shirley? Right. You're calling from Virginia Beach. Right. Mm -hmm. This, I had a couple of questions. One uh, about Fred Lowry. Whatever happened to him, and how did how did you meet him? Well, Fred Lowry. Yes. I, the, oh, yes, the blind whistler. The blind whistler. Yes. Oh, he's the, we keep in touch with each other for all the still time. Alive? He uh, he. Oh yes, he's still he's very much alive, and he's down in Texas, Texarkana, I think, is where he lives. I just talked to him the other day. And he just came in and auditioned and uh, went on our show and won and we just put then we made him a member of our of our troupe, you see. If anybody that won in the uh, on the on the on the radio show or the television show, we'd make a a member of my organization. And that's the way we carried them on to success and built the name up and uh, then they were free to go wherever they wanted to go and that's the reason there's so many people that have done well. There's another, no contracts or anything. Another question. I see that you co-composed uh, co I'll Love You in My Dreams. Have yeah. you ever uh, uh, composed any other songs? No, that's the only one. You would have, I'll Love You in My Dreams. You would have made a good composer. <laughs> well, thank you. I thank you very much. Thank okay. you. Right, bye. 
Take another call. Hello there, this is Ray Brainer on Talk Radio with Horace Hyde. Hello. Hello. Uh, this is Mel. Yes, Mel. Mel. Uh, Mel, M-E-L-L. Oh, yes. I want to speak to Johnny. To Johnny, Johnny. Stanley. Yeah. yeah. Well, hello now. Hi. <laughs> I, haven't, I haven't talked to you in 40 years, darling. Well... Well, where was this? <laughs> well, it was in Southwest Oklahoma at Mom and Pop Stanley's tent show. Yes. I own and I came to spend two weeks vacation with Marge and me. My sister Marjorie, yes. Yes. And it's the first time... Is that I own angle you're speaking about? Yes, darling. Uh-huh. And I'm Neil Andrews. Oh, my golly, Neil. This has been a long, long time. How did I, you get away from that short grass? Oh, I've been out here 30 years. Well, I used to say, Neil, you can always move. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, what I wanted to say was I have just returned from Rome, Italy. Oh, bless you. And I had to take the record. It's in the book to my nephew. <laughs> oh, you scared me for a moment now. <laughs> I didn't know where you would take that record in Rome. <laughs> no, he, he wanted the record to play over there. Uh-huh. And he has just been crazy about it. There's just one thing. Yes? When I play it, I can see you do it. With that tall hat and the foxtail coat, and you beat that podium and coat. The magazine was in just little bitty pieces. And I would just roll in the aisle. I was utterly delighted. Well, now, I talked to Marjorie last night. And they're seriously uh, thinking of having her run for senator in the state. So you should get in touch with Marge. She'd be just delighted to hear from you. And now we've got to go, but thanks for the call. Well, can I write you at the station? So I can get in touch with Marge? No, but uh, I'll, uh, you write Margie in Oklahoma City, and, she, and she, you can get in touch with her. I don't have her address. I've lost it. Well, write to my apartment house in the valley. That's in the phone book. Okay. 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 God right, bless. You. I love you, darling. <laughs> well, bless your heart. We love you. <laughs> All right. Uh, we'll be back in a moment. I guess Horace Hyde, Johnny Stanley, it's in the book, and Horace Jr., don't go away. This is Talk Radio. I'm Ray Breen. This is Talk Radio. I'm Ray Breen. My guest, Horace Hyde. We've got Johnny Stanley with us, who was a fixture on the show for so many years, and Horace Jr., who's going to be a fixture for many, many more years to carry on that tradition of uh, music in the family. Uh, Horace, uh, what, what do you really want to do? I'm well, speaking of Horace Jr. now. Y yeah, Ray. Well, I... I really, basically, what I have done is uh, continue one of my dad's many companies. He had quite a few. It's called Horace High Productions. Mm -hmm. And uh, we do about three different things and in very varying stages. I mean, we're just beginning in some. Mm -hmm. uh, the main thing that I do is uh, concerts, conventions, nightclubs, and amusement parks with a 14-piece big band, mm -hmm. uh, really outstanding musicians, 
over 2,000 of Dad's original arrangements. In fact, that call we had from the violin player, who was talking about or or staccato. Yeah. Uh, I have the arrangement. I still have the chart. And uh, we have all the Don Wilson and, and Frank Duvall, Benny Carter charts. So that's one of the things we do. The second thing we're doing now, we're just starting, is really exciting, is uh, we're starting, uh, we're reactivating Magnolia Records. And uh, we're, we're uh, right now putting together albums of all of Dad's hits. And we're going to get Johnny Stanley to put an album together and uh, as many of the people as we can and start uh, selling those in a new marketing scheme. Sounds interesting. Well, that does it for this hour. My guest, uh, Horace Height, Johnny, it's in the book, Stanley. Pretty soon you'll have me saying it like you do. And Horace Jr. This is Talk Radio. I'm Ray Brain. This is Talk Radio. I'm Ray Bream, and uh, I guess, Horace, you know who you are. And Johnny, I do you, now. you know who you are. And Horace Jr., you know who you are. I so. do. Oh. <laughs> Horace Hyde is my guest, along with It's in the Book, Johnny Stanley. Come on, give us a good It's in the Book. It's in the Book. Thank you. And Horace Jr. <laughs> and we're reminiscing about old times. I uh, I miss some people that were in the band. Uh, I didn't realize that Pete Condoli was in your band. Yeah. What a trumpet player. Oh, he, he was great. <clears throat> you want that high note? Pete Condoli's your man. Oh, yes. He was simply great. Mm. Uh, also, Al Hurt was in your band. I didn't know that. Well, we had, uh, on one show, we had three trumpets. I, uh, trumpeteers. I thought it was the best number for hot lips that I've ever heard. There was Al Hurt, Red Nichols, and Pete Condoli. Al Hurt, Red, the Red Nichols, the Red Nichols, and Pete Condoli playing hot lips, and each taking a chorus, challenging each other. I, is this the Henry Bussey thing? Hot lips. Yeah. Da 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 da. that's a great that. number. Oh sure. You know who uh, recreated that here in the '60s? Glenn Gray. Oh, he did? Oh, yeah, did a great job on that. Okay, so uh, then I, I'm i sure I've missed somebody uh, in, in in the sidemen there. Let's see, Pete Condoli. Shorty Chirac. Shorty Chirac. Shorty Irving Bobby Hackett, that was it. Bobby Hackett. Tell me about Bobby Hackett. Well, Bobby Hackett was probably one of the greatest ad-lib cover players in the world. You know, I love his, his albums with Jackie Gleason. Oh, yeah, they were simply great. Oh, what a series of albums. And then uh, we had uh, two, we had also had, I uh, uh, had Jess Stacy with me. Now, he was Piano player, Jess Stacy. Yeah. What a great pin. And you had Jess Stacy. Yeah. And but, uh, but I'll tell you, I, I tried to, to make these people featured artists, and they weren't used to it. He went, he went with Goodman. Yeah, that's right. He played played with Benny Goodman. Yeah. And you had him before Goodman? No, I had him after Benny Goodman. Oh. Uh, so I tried to make an artist out of... Uh, I tried to feature him. Mm -hmm. Have him play solos. And they didn't like that. Neither did uh, Bobby Hackett. You know, he didn't like to... Bobby Hackett out. didn't like to play solos? You know, he didn't like to get out on the stage by himself <laughs> with a spotlight on him. Pin, pin spot on him and build him. You know, that's the way I used to try to build these artists. Interesting. Uh, 
these uh, fine gentlemen are going to be with us for another 25 minutes. If you want to call and talk with them, then here are the numbers to call. My guest is Horace Height. Horace, uh, you have a, a philosophy on life, I'm sure, and uh, I think you have an idea on the work ethic. The what? The work ethic. Do you think that that's uh, is something today that that we're lacking? So many of us want something for nothing. Oh yes, I think that there's too many people. I call that uh, I call them lifters and leaners. Lifters and leaners. Yeah, the people that really get out and lift and build and do things, and the people that just lean. Mm-hmm. And uh, I feel that there is definitely people that feel that way. You've uh, seen a lot of life, and you've seen a lot of politics. How do you feel about our country today? Do you think it's in uh, pretty bad straits? Well, yes, I think it is. In fact, I know it is, and we all know it is. But I think that we've got the one man that is going to pull us out, and we have to be patient. And we must remember one thing. I was talking to my son and to Johnny, that uh, many governments only last 250 years. We're over 200 years now. And uh, we have to be careful because uh, when the people find out that they can get money from the Treasury by votes, and then the politicians step in and they pit the poor against the wealthy and things like that, I think think that's a mistake. Because... uh, I don't know many wealthy people with the income taxes the way they are. But one thing that Reagan has done that that had to be done, and that was they had to stop the presses from printing money. Because if, the, if you print money, then you the inflation rate immediately go up. All right, let's take another call. Hello there, this is Ray Bringer on Talk Radio with Horace Height. Hello. Hello. My name is Helen. Yes, Helen. And I I listen to Ray Bream program every night. Good. And was happy to hear that Horace uh, Height was on tonight. I am a cellist, and I played in his uh, band in the at the Masonic Temple in Detroit. And I just I wondered how in the world I got there. Didn't try out or anything. I remember playing, and I remember what I wore, but I don't remember how I happened to get into into the uh, band playing. I wondered if Mr. Height remembered. Well, uh, no, I really don't. I, I remember you, but I You really, do remember? Yes, I, I do. I was uh, the only girl in Henry Ford's orchestra. Yes. Yes. And as I sit here, here waiting to talk to you, it uh, I have a faint recollection that you asked me to come to the Masonic Temple to play. And I mm-hmm. said, well, come down and play. Well, I'm sure that's what happened. I'm sure yes. that uh, either I called you or one of my scouts that was out well, looking no, for... Well, no, I think you spoke to me at the Ford Motor Company. Oh, uh, playing for their automobile show. Now, yes. now uh-huh. I remember. Yes. yes. But it, it, it never came back to me until, uh, how I happened to get in there, uh, only that I was waiting to talk to you now. And so uh, I was glad to know but i it wasn't i knew it wasn't an audition or anything no it's probably uh, we just talked on the floor and you told me 
that you'd like to uh, appear with the band or something like that. And mm -hmm. I said, well, come down and play for us. Well, that was very nice. Well, it was, uh, I was very happy to talk to you, and, and thank you very much. Good. Goodbye. Thank, thank you. you. We'll be right back. This is Talk Radio. I am Ray Breen. Uh, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> Horace Jr., how did you ever get the uh, the inflection that you had in that thing? I guess that's from the tent shows, huh? Oh, yeah, you had to throw your voice <laughs> for 200 feet <laughs> and no microphones. Who, who wrote the material, Johnny? Oh, I did. You wrote it. It wasn't... Um, uh, written, it, it, it was, it, it just, uh, happened. <laughs> okay, I want to find out how Johnny Stanley came aboard, Horace. Well, he just auditioned, and, uh, uh, in, uh, out there in Oklahoma City, and he, I put him on the stage, and he was a, just, the audience just broke up. So I asked him to join, and he said he'd be very happy to do it, and he did. You know, I've got a, one little thing to tell about. Yeah, tell <laughs> tell Horace. Uh, I had me fly to New Orleans to join the show. Mm -hmm. And that particular show, they had the Natasha Louis Armstrong on on the show. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I was standing in the wing, and I had uh, rehearsed before the show. And Horace came running off, and he had all this excitement and everything. Well, anyway, he forgot to put me on the first show. <laughs> <laughs> but we went from there to Lake Charles, and I think Horace really gave me about an hour. Remember that, Horace? We That's did, right. We did uh, all the routines that I could think of. Johnny, <laughs> how, how many times do you think you've done It's in the Book? I really have no conception, because even in the Army, I was doing it back in that did you, long ago. Did you ever blow a, a line, forget it, as singers always... I did well, just you. <laughs> <laughs> you know, something that you know that well, mm -hmm. uh, if you don't completely concentrate, That's right. you can just lose it completely. Sure. You don't know where you're at. Because, mm -hmm. you, you're not because it just comes off the top of your yeah. head. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I'm on the road many times, I'd have to turn around to the band. Well, I can remember uh, in a couple of cities where Johnny would stretch that in the book to about a half hour, 45 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> the crowd just loved it. We, we might have a, uh, a new crowd here uh, who didn't hear the opening, and maybe we can do a bit of in the book here Good. in a second. Good. Right, but let's take a call. Hello there, this is Ray Bramer on Talk Radio with uh, the crowd. Yes, Mr. Breen? Yes. Mr. Hyde? Yes, sir. I was wondering, uh, Mr. Hyde, do you remember a singer by the uh, uh, name of Les Wade? Yes. Uh, what year was that? Well, I don't know what year. And, uh, uh, he said he always had a great time with your band. Yes, yes. Uh, where, where was he from? Uh, Spokane. Oh, you're yes. calling from Spokane. Yes, sir. Oh. Yeah, that's right. I, I remember. I remember Spokane. He always and told me that uh, when he sang, he used to pull his uh, ear or something. Well, yeah. it's better to build boys than to mend men. Is that what you asked? Pardon? Is that what you asked? No, he told me that uh, oh. when he uh, used to sing, he always uh, pulled his left ear somehow or... <laughs> I don't remember that. You remember that? <laughs> but I know up in Spokane, they had wonderful apples. <laughs> Marvelous. <laughs> and uh, 
Uh, I was wondering, uh, did you ever meet uh, Frankie Agavik, uh, the accordionist? Uh, no, I don't think so. Uh-huh. I was just wondering, uh, curious if you uh, ever met him. I, but, no, uh, I don't think one, so. One more question, Mr. Wright. Uh, where can I get some uh, albums of yours? Unfortunately, I don't think they, we can find any. Or, Horace, you tell them, what are you doing uh, about that? Uh, if you'd like some albums, uh, uh, Dad, it's in the phone book in Los Angeles. In Los Angeles, California? Just write to his uh, business address, and we'll see to it that uh, you get some. All right, I sure will. Thank you very much. All right, thank you for the call. Thank you, sir. Bye. Bye. Well, uh, this is Ray Bringer on Talk Radio with Horace Hyde, Johnny Stanley, and Horace Jr. Hello. Hello. I, am I on? Yes. Um, hello, Ray. Hi. Your first name is Toby. Yeah, and I was real glad to hear you had Horace Hyde on tonight. Woke me up. Um, I just remember when he used to have the ballroom down Southgate. Right. Back in the fun days. You bet. That was great. There was a lot of activity along the boulevards in those days. And I remember a, a little boy used to have on the... And the band was that uh, Horace Jr. Yes, yeah, that was Horace Jr. <laughs> <laughs> he was so darn cute. Oh, well, he's My still life. cute. He's the cutest little boy. Yeah, I, I, I used to really? sing. <laughs> I'm singing in the rain. <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, I had three yeah. songs. <laughs> well, is that the only boy you have? No, I have. Uh, I have two others. I have Jack Height, and he's done very, very well. He's president now of Union Bank, and oh. I have Jerry who uh, builds shopping centers and has done very well, and Horace Jr., uh-huh. and Hildegard is my oh. other child. Uh-huh. You know, we used to go to the supper club there across the street from me. Remember Howard Merrill used to have it? Yes. Back in those days. Okay, Toby, you have to leave you. Thanks for the call. Thank you. All right, bye. Bye-bye. We'll be back in a moment. My guest, Horace Height, Johnny Stanley, and Horace Jr. This is Talk Radio. I'm Ray Brain. This is Talk Radio. I'm Ray Bream, and we've got Horace Hyde here and Johnny Stanley. It's in the book, Johnny Stanley and Horace Jr. Uh, for those who didn't hear you do, it's in the book at the uh, top of the show. Let, let's try it again. First of all, we'll go to the record. Yes. And we'll take about uh, oh, a quick, brief uh, look at the record and see what you did with the studio <laughs> audience. Then we'll have you come in and pick it up live. How's All that? right, you dropped the finger. And I... <laughs> right. This is the way it happened on that uh, best-selling record, sold three and a half million copies. Little Bo Peep was a little girl, has lost her feet, and doesn't know where to find it. Now that's reasonable, isn't it? It's reasonable to assume if little Bo Peep had lost her shoes, it's only natural that she wouldn't know where to find <laughs> that, that basically is reasonable, but uh, leave them alone. Now that overwhelms me. <laughs> Completely overwhelmed. The man said she lost the sheep. Turns right around and boldly states she doesn't know where 
to find them. And then has the stupid audacity to say, leave them alone. Thou now think for a moment, think. If the sheep were lost and you couldn't find them, you'd have to leave them alone, wouldn't you? You, you can't do much harm to a sheep when you don't know where they are. So leave them alone. Leave them alone. It's in the book. Leave them alone. And they, they being the sheep, they will come home. Aye, as they'll come home. Oh, there'll be a brighter day tomorrow. They will come home. It's in the book. They will come home. A wagon, their tent. They tell me what else could they wag. They will come home. A wagon, their tail. Behind them. Did we think they'd wag them in front? Of course, they they might have come home in reverse. They could have done that. I, I really don't know. That's great. In the uh, next couple of minutes, in the time remaining, first of all, I want to thank you for being here, all three of you. Thank you. Because I've been trying to get you down here, Horace, for <laughs> I don't know how long. Ten years or so. Oh, very nice. <laughs> Thank you. And it's been great. Uh, what do you see happening in music today? And I want to include Horace Jr. into this thing. Do you see uh, a little change? We've had 25 years of rock and roll. Yes. I see the uh, big bands coming back. You really do? Now, yeah. I've been hearing this thing for the past 20 years, ever since Bill Haley hit the scene. Yeah. That big bands are coming back. Well, somebody's got, must just get to, uh, just must form a band, get a style of playing, stick to it. And it's much more difficult right now than it was back then because now there's very few places to stay. And how are you going to get airplay? you got to have airplay on the air. Well, you can make records. But, but nobody will play them. A Horace has all my arrangements, and the holes are left open. You know what I mean uh -huh. by the holes. Sure. Are left open either for a singing guitar or a great piano player like Frankie Carl. So, so Horace has got your the band greatest book. chance. Or, or as Johnny would say, it's in the book. It's in the book. <laughs> the band book. Number four. He's got the band book. <laughs> and he can get his triple-tonguing trumpeteers. And I feel that Horace, you know, he has such a wonderful personality and such a nice smile. I think he's going to do very, very well on television. Quickly, Horace, we've got about ten seconds. <laughs> what do you think is going to happen? Uh, I can laugh. But, uh, I think today that uh, the person in entertainment has to be a total person. He has to be able to book himself. He has to be able to produce shows. He has to be talented. Is this he kind of music going to have a future is it absolutely there will always be entertainment and people want mellow music today oh, that sounds great all three of you thanks for being with us thank you. horace hyde horace jr and johnny stanley yes thank you very much Bye -bye. i love being here this thanks, is talk Fred. radio i'm ray brain oh uh, hello mr hyde hello
and and Stanley on there with Ray Bream. But later tonight will be Perry Huntoon with Artie Shaw Part 4. And we'll see what the rest of the Sunday night show is going to be like. Anyway, mind you, we're going to be at the Spurvac meeting March the 10th at the Tybo Rubin VA Medical Center. So please join us if you're in there. Doors open 2 o'clock in the afternoon. So with that, may the good Lord Jesus Christ bless you. This is Yesterday USA. Jaws Professional Saturday 2100 tab Sound Forge Pro 11.0 Escape Escape Enter 1.2.7 Windows Enter Menu 5A Leaving Menus Sound 1 Star Save as Dialog File Name Sound 1 Edit S A T U R D A Y N I G H T S E C O N D P C Two dash one seven dash one eight double I T eight P A T R I C I A G U E S T C Y N T H I A M Y E R Save as type save but enter edit JAWS Professional Apple Software Update Dialog List Alt F4 Welcome to Skype Press JAW Alt Page Down Alt Tab Sound Forge Pro 11.0